Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, everybody. Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened Uh, is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Uh, It could happen here is the podcast that you're listening to. I'm Robert Evans, uh, the person that you're listening to, and one of the people who does this podcast. Boy, what a what a glorious introduction that mm-hmm. was. Let me also introduce some human beings who you might know. First, we have Chris, and and we have James, uh, our 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 correspondents in the field. Uh, joining us today also is James's Spanish Civil War era Mosin Nagant. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. very happy that it's joining us. It's going to make contribution throughout the uh, yeah. throughout the episode. Just going to it's a it's, bolt. it's an antique bolt Having action bolt. rifle served mm-hmm. in three world wars, counting yeah, the current that, one. That's right. Yep, and it's about to uh, it's about to kick off. Uh, yeah, this one now, which uh, it yeah. might it might be it might be two in the L column for the most in the gun. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 had a it's served a mixed bag. Um, yep. Anyway, uh, we're recording this the day of the elections, so everybody's having a horrible one. Um, yeah, I'm having a firearm. Yeah, yeah. I I I did. I'm still hoping my my Tech Nine comes in before uh, Oregon votes <laughs> on its next ballot measure. Anyway, um, today I wanted to talk a little bit about something that I've been thinking about kind of constantly, which is um, it's called effective altruism. And it's the short end of this is that like, it is a style uh, of thinking about charitable giving that Elon Musk in particular has recently highlighted as like how he thinks about things. It's very popular with the billionaire set who are who who are deeply invested in getting people to think that they're saving the world right um the folks who want to be seen as like looking ahead and 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 set protecting the future of mankind and, and saving the world um but not doing it through things like paying you know more taxes and supporting you know less money being in politics and and all that kind of jazz like not not anything that would would actually harm their their personal ability to exercise power so it it's gotten kind of attacked recently because it's associated with guys like Musk and because he is markedly less popular now than he was let's say 10 years ago um <laughs> 40, but i wanted to talk about billion dollars ago yeah, I, I wanted to talk because effective altruism, which is an actual movement, there's like organizations that espouse this. There's hundreds of millions of dollars in charitable giving that gets handed out under the aegises of effective altruism. And as a heads up, like most of it's fine, like most of it's charities to like get lead out of water and stuff like it, it's not like effective altruism is not comprehensively some sort of like scam by the wealthy. It's more of a an honest theory about how charitable giving ought to work that has been adopted by the hyper wealthy as a justification for fucked up shit and married to something called long termism, which we will be talking about in a little bit. But I want to talk about where the concept of effective altruism comes from. If you read articles about this thing, most people who study it will say that it kind of this got started as a modern movement in 1971 with an Australian philosopher named Peter Singer. Uh, And Singer wrote an article titled Famine, Affluence and Morality. Um, I think it was actually published in 1972. I, I don't know, one of the two, uh, 71 yeah. or 72. And, and the essay basically argued that there's no difference morally between your obligation to help a person dying on the street in front of your house. Like if a dude gets hit by a car in front of your house, you are not more morally obligated to help him than you are morally obligated to help people who are dying in Syria, you know? Um, and obviously like there's a, 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 a version of truth to that, which is that we're all responsible for each other and internationalism is the only actual path away from the nightmare. And when we do things like ignore authoritarians massacring their people, it inevitably comes back to affect us and like fuel the, the growth of an authoritarian nightmare domestically. That is very true. Um, but also it, it, there's a fundamental silliness in it because one reason why there is a moral difference between helping a person dying in the street in front of you and somebody who's in danger in, I don't know, Southern China is that like you can immediately help the person in front of your house, right? Like if somebody gets hit, but you have the ability to immediately render life-saving aid. It's actually quite difficult to help somebody who is, for example, getting shot at by the government uh, in Tibet, 
right? Like not that you do, don't have a moral responsibility to that person, but your moral responsibility to actually immediately take action when somebody is bleeding out is higher than your responsibility yeah. to try to figure out how to help people in distant parts of the globe. Um, this is more nuanced than I think a lot of, uh, especially like rich assholes like to, to th- it's more nuanced than like the, the, I shouldn't say rich assholes. What, what's the problem with Please this do. is that it's the, this is the kind of revelation. Like when you start talking this way, that, that feeds really well into a fucking Ted talk. It, 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 it's a, a perfect yeah. fix for that morality. Yeah. Whereas the reality is like a lot more nuanced where, and, and number one, it's also like, well, the, the kind of help that you would render to somebody who's been hit by a car in front of your house is very different and requires really different resources than the kind of help you would give people in, say, again, like Syria, who are being murdered by their government, right? If somebody gets hit by a car in front of your house, you run out with a fucking tourniquet and a bleed kit and you call 911, right? Those are the resources that you can immediately use. If Bashar al-Assad is firing poison gas at uh, protesters in you know, Aleppo, well, your your stop the bleed kit is not going to help with that one way or the other, right? A very different set of resources are necessary. <laughs> yeah. um, so it's it's foolish to compare them. Anyway, Singer did, um, and his essay was a big hit. It's often called like a sleeper hit for for young people who are kind of getting into the uh, you know the charity industrial complex, um, or at least we're considering it. Now, I found an interview with a woman named Julia Wise, who currently works at the Center for Effective Altruism. Um, and she was a uh, uh, started out as a social worker, like to give you an idea of the kind of people who got into this. When she read Weiss's article, um, she was a social worker. She kind of fell in love with the concept. And when it started becoming a thing in like the 70s and 80s, uh, it was, as she described, quote, a bunch of philosophers and their friends and nobody had a bunch of money. So it was also more when Singer put it out kind of a a way like a way of people kind of debating how to think about charity, which is is fine. People should always be like exploring stuff like that. So it's it's not I don't want to be like going after Singer too well, I, I do a little bit. Um because Singer, after kind of his movement has a couple of decades to grow, winds up doing a TED talk. Um and the TED talk winds up kind of electrifying a very specific chunk of the American techno set. Um, and it you can see kind of in in some of the writing on this, like the way in which his talking about sort of the morality of charity has gotten flattened over the years. Quote, which is yeah. the better thing to do, to provide a guide dog to one blind American or cure 2,000 people of blindness in developing countries? Um which is like I I don't know both. There's resources to do both. Um, we again, yeah. if you, for example, in the United States, were to tax the billionaire class and corporations a lot more, you could provide that blind person in the United States uh, with with free healthcare in a way that many countries do. Um, and we could also continue or even expand charitable giving. Maybe if we were to do stuff like spend less money on our military. Again, it's like a false <laughs> choice. Like it's worth. But but of course it's it's because the reason this choice is there is because they're thinking about they're thinking about helping people purely in the form of like noblesse oblige charity right they're they're thinking about periods like rich like things that get improved when rich people put money into them um, yeah so obviously it, we should help the, the you know one of these groups before the other because it's more effective and yada 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 yeah. Yeah, well, and, and, I, and I think I think that was one of the things that like the, 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 there's there's a second way you can look at the original sort of problem of 
we have the same ethical responsibility of someone who gets hit by a car or someone who's on the other side of the world. Is that like the other way you can look at that is like, I don't care about what's happening to someone on the other side of the world. So I don't have to care about this person who got hit by a car. And that seems yeah. like a thing yeah, that these people are doing. It's like, well, uh, eh, it seems do I really like, have to care about this person here because there's someone over there. Yeah, I did, like I can see like how this lines up with some of these like like bigger like meta ethical kind of perspectives on on what equality is and, and what like your ethical obligations are. But then, yeah, it it seems to just kind of be like. A, a very clear, like very clear, slippery slope to making kind of Malthusian excuses for doing fuck all. Yep, right. That, that's that's where the story's heading. So, oh, good. Early two thousands, he does like a TED talk. You know, the the momentum around this idea starts to build, and it it really gets a shot in the arm in two thousand thirteen with the work of an author named Eric Friedman. Uh, Friedman's new book or Friedland's book at the time that was new was called Reinventing Philanthropy, a Framework for More Effective Giving. Um, and he kind of he kind of extends the arguments that Singer is making. One of the things that he does is he he contrasts what St. Jude's Children's Research Hospitals are doing to like research children's medical or like like illnesses that, that kids suffer and treatments for them um, with the Malaji Provincial Hospital in Angola. Um, and he kind of contrasts two patients who are being served at the different hospitals for life-threatening conditions and concludes, quote, I'd probably also be very angry at the donors who are continually funding St. Jude and leaving Melange Provincial woefully under-resourced. Why are the patients of St. Jude so much more worthy of life? Mm. And like, <laughs> yeah, uh, if we what a aside, ridiculous way to think about a yeah, children's hospital. Fucking asinine. And the yeah. fact that like many of the people who are doing these fucking TED talks and contributing to this like a global tech class are the same people who are making fucking millions of dollars off the pharmaceutical industry, which continues to neglect the diseases that people like in the colonial periphery suffer from because there's no profit in selling them drugs and instead you're selling baldness cures to people in America, right? Like Yes. We can yeah, I mean like you are, you 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 could if we just if if every single person who had a who's gotten a TED talk had all of their wealth expropriated tomorrow we could fund both of these hospitals. Exactly. Yeah. It is yes. Yeah, it, yeah. The it, world it is, will be better. It's fundamentally a kind of obscenity to look at pharmaceutical company CEOs making hundreds of millions and billions of dollars selling people often literal poison and jacking up the price of things like insulin to look at these tech CEOs accumulating tens of billions of dollars and to say donations to this children's hospital are robbing an Angolan hospital. <laughs> yeah. So I won't be paying my taxes. Uh, yeah. Why don't you right. go fuck yourself? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And anyway, like, but the, this is like, you can see who this appeals to, right? If you've like the kind of people who love the Freakonomics books, which are bullshit, regressive, <laughs> bad statistics, yeah, yeah. bad can I, okay, statistics. Can I, can I, can I, can I tell bad. one Freakonomics story? Please. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So one of my professors at UChicago was a political science guy, um, or I guess he's public policy. And there, there's, there's a thing, there's a thing the Freakonomics guy wrote where he was trying to prove that money doesn't actually influence, uh, like doesn't actually influence elections. Yes, yeah. What, what yeah. of his yeah. real bangers? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and you know what my 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 professor wrote wrote a paper about that, which is that you know and the, 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 again this this is sort of a perfect example of how dumb this guy is. That he doesn't. This is how economists think, right? Like they they when they when they go into a field, they go in thinking they already know everything and they can prove sort of yes. whatever they want because okay. But the, the, the thing this guy doesn't understand, right, is that like 
and, and this is the thing most people in the U.S. do not understand about how Congress works is that like all of the shit that's happening on the floor of Congress, all of those votes, that is not that is not real Congress, right? That that is fake Congress. Nothing nothing important actually happens there. All of the important stuff in Congress happens in committees. And so you can't figure out whether money is doing anything by measuring its effects on like votes on the floor because floor votes are bullshit. Every, all of the important stuff has already by the time, by the time a floor vote happens, yeah. all of the important political stuff has already happened. And so he did this. He did this whole thing where he was, you know, he, he had this great, uh, uh, he, had, he had this great metric called like, uh, it, oh god, and it, it was called like like the 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 dairy cow coefficients, which is like measuring <laughs> like how how someone should vote versus like how many dairy cows run. And it turns out, you know, if you look at what these people do in committee, no, yeah, hey, look, it turns out uh, lobbying money is unbelievably effective, but because this fucking guy had like. And this is something that, like, like this sort of distinction between between Congress, like, on the floor and Congress and committee, like, there's a president whose name I'm forgetting who has this famous line that, like, Congress and committee is Congress at work, Congress on the floor is Congress at play or something like that. Like, it's, it's like, this is just, like, basic shit that if you know literally anything about how a field works, you cannot yeah, do yeah, the thing yeah. the Freakonomics if, if guy you, does. If you want to, if you want to, if you want a good breakdown of why the Freakonomics guy is full of shit. Uh, Michael Hobbs and uh, Peter uh, Shamshiri, I think is his last name, have a new podcast called If Books Could Kill. And they break down with like citations and everything, like why everything in that book is horseshit. But like the reason why it's uh, uh, the only thing I'll disagree with you on, Chris, is I don't think he's an idiot. I think he's very intelligent. And I think the thing that he's smart to do is he recognizes that there's a specific type of person and engineers and programmers are very likely to be this type of person who kind of fundamentally like they're oppositional defiant. If somebody, if something, if people say like, well, this is good or this is bad, um, they're going to take the, want to take the opposite stance. And if you can provide them a way to like, feel like they're enlightened and smart and actually looking at the data by doing it, then they'll take the opposite stance on stuff like, it's bad to let people buy elections or it's good to fund children's hospitals just because somebody's made them feel smart for being an asshole. Um, that's what the Freakonomics yeah. guy does. Malcolm Gladwell does a subtler version of yes. it as a general yeah. rule. Oh, um, and that's yeah, what yeah. that's what that fucking Friedman is doing in this this book in 2013. I found a good review of it in the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Um, okay. That is uh pretty scathing like surprisingly scathing considering it's it's written by a bunch of like stanford nerds this approach amounts to little more than charitable imperialism whereby my just cause is just and yours to one degree or another is a waste of precious resources this approach is not informed giving um and i think that that does a pretty good job of uh uh summarizing what I think is fucked up about it. There's another thing that's really messed up, which is that one of the conclusions that they gets come that they come to here is that um they don't recommend or there's an organization called Givewell that kind of gets gets formed as a result of yeah. the, the book Friedman Writes. And they recommend not to deliver like not to donate money to disaster assistance in the wake of the Japanese tsunami um and oppose disaster relief donations in general. Um because quote and this is from Friedman. Most of those killed by disasters could not have been saved by donations, um, which is number one. Like that's the, the, the donations are about like yeah, rebuilding communities. Yeah. Generally, it's not like about the saving lives. Usually it's about like, well, all of the infrastructure was destroyed and it must be rebuilt. Um, but OK, guy. 
Well, and it's annoying too because it's like it, it's it's not like there's not good critiques of like specifically orgs like the Red Cross. Oh, it's all where, fucked like, up. The every yeah, single yeah, yes, I yeah. I have but, seen, but their critique is like the worst possible. Like yeah, the actual uh, critiques are yeah, that every single large charitable organization is fucked up, and if you go and talk to people on the ground, they will bitch. Like if you go to fucking war zones, people bitch more about NGOs than the folks shooting at them half the time. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, um, and. It, yeah, they bitch about it being inefficient, about the stuff they're given being like bad quality or like um like nonsense, like just being handed out to be handed out, which is a thing that happens sometimes. And they bitch about well-paid aid workers staying in hotels and showing up for a couple of hours to like uh, do a photo op. Um Yeah. There's also more incisive like, you know, that that's not to say none of it's useful. Like for example, as many complaints as people have, everyone I've known who has been in a place where Medicine Sans Frontiers slash Doctors Without Borders has operated, while they have complaints about Doctors Without Borders, are like, it's good that there's more doctors here. We fucking need them. Um, and, you know, it's like UNHCR, plenty of things to complain about UNHCR. At every refugee camp I go to, also people have fucking water filters and tents and shit because of UNHCR, which isn't nothing. It's a damn sight more than nothing. And it's a damn sight more than any of these long-termist motherfuckers are doing for people who are, I don't know, displaced by war yeah and it like I, I some of the things that they're doing is like this just very strange kind of attempt to calculate and create markets for human life and human suffering right yeah. which you see a lot if you work like i've worked in non-profit I, i've worked in in disaster response i've seen some of these things on the ground and it it it, you see these bizarre fucking decisions being made by by someone in an office who has likely never been on the ground of these situations, and it, it inevitably results in it's it, within these big organizations like the Red Cross and MSF, but um, also on a governmental level, right, with people not having the autonomy to respond in a situation to reduce human suffering, and instead to be told to do something which is supposedly evidence based based on someone who's looked at the wrong criteria and come to the wrong conclusion hundreds of miles away and it's incredibly yeah, I mean, it's, it's, fucking yeah. it's bureaucrats right and it's like we, we've 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 somehow managed to create like the absolute worst possible nightmare system of you have a bunch of government bureaucrats and then you also have a bunch of sort of privates that you have you, we, have, we have like different we're, we're, we're watching a collision of different kinds of private sector bureaucrats like you have you, you have your sort of ngo bureaucrats you have and then you know and then you have these billionaires who are also just fucking bureaucrats and all of them are just doing box ticking, and we get like just the absolute worst nightmare fusion of horrible bureaucracy and capitalism, which yeah. is a great yeah. way to run programs to so, have people not die. And like so much of this comes from what that the whole like freakonomics thing to me strikes me as like we didn't like you said reading the Wikipedia article about a subject and then applying trying to find out where you can apply a market to it and then yeah, posting that as the solution. It's stuff we have the episodes we're dropping on bastards well, the week before this episode will air are about like why the rent is so damn high. And one of the complaints I have is that there's a specific class of media people who the only answer they will accept is because uh, there's not enough multifamily zoning, which is just a part of why the rent is so damn high. And reducing it to just that ignores um, the price fixing software that tens of millions of Americans uh, like landlords use. Um, it ignores shit like Airbnb it ignores like the fucking problems in the construction industry, the lingering effects of the 2008 crash. It's very frustrating. And it's the, the these kind of like Freakonomics guys like to do the same thing. Like it, the, the fucking Freakonomics dude in particular, one of the things he got famous for is being like, 
you know, the drop in crime in the 90s, this unprecedented fall in crime was due to abortion, which zero, I will say again, zero people who are experts on the topic of crime in America agree with. What they will say is actually there's a shitload of different things that contributed to the decline in crime, and there's a good chance that abortion had an impact. Uh, a bigger impact was probably getting the lead out of, like, reducing environmental lead, although that gets overstated too. There's all sorts of different shit, including, like, air conditioning, just the fact that, like, yeah, yeah. yeah now more people have air conditioning. And guess when yeah. violence is highest in the summer when people are stuck around each other outside and like all sorts of computer shit. Computer games, anyway, computer games still this, people doing crimes because they've got something else to do. But it's it you want to if you're going to be doing the kind of like if you're going to be doing TED Talk fucking uh, uh, public works philosophy, then it helps to just be able to like make one big Malcolm Gladwell style fucking reveal. Anyway, that's how all these people exist and how all of their morality is informed after 2013. Friedman uh, is kind of like followed up by this guy named William McAskill, who is currently the he's a Scottish philosopher, um, which, God, it's easy to get called a philosopher these days. Um, And (laughs) he is he is a personal friend of Elon Musk. Uh, When uh, Musk's text messages got released as part of that court filing, some of them were with McAskill. Um, who was considering like putting a bunch of money into buying Twitter. They ultimately decided not to. I think because they just like it seems like McCaskill just didn't trust that Musk had any sort of plan. So he is, I will say this, not an idiot, Um, but he's wrong in ways that are, are deeply fucked up. And he wrote a book that is currently a bestseller. It was published in August called What We Owe the Future. And the gist of this is that like it's merging this kind of effective altruism with what's called long termism, which is this argument that morally we have to consider the impact of our actions as not just on people alive today, but in future people, which is fine. There's actually a lot to that idea, but the way it always works out is we can't pay attention to problems that people are suffering. Now we have to, we have to work on saving the world from these bigger problems. Um, And again, it's almost, it's almost exclusively used as an argument for guys like Musk to like, well, we shouldn't, tax billionaires out of existence because I, you know, I see this that with clarity, the problems that we face and the long-term solution is for me to be able to push for these specific things that I think are the only way to save humanity, right? I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit here. Let's talk about McCaskill again. Um, when he was at Oxford, he's an Oxford boy, James. Um, oh, uh, look at that. We've had some bangers. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he, he started a group called Giving What We Can in 2009, uh, and members were supposed to give away 10% of what they earned to the most cost-effective charities possible, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that idea, basically. And it was like, it's supposed to be basically a lifelong promise that like, you know, we're all, because you assume Oxford people, a lot of them are going to wind up making very good money, you know, as we... Yeah move into our careers, this will be a more and more influential kind of giving. Um, but yeah, <laughs> drop the ball if they'd had me there, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. those <laughs> meetings might've gone a little bit different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Living in his car. Uh, yeah. Over time though, he's kind of moved into, he's merged this. And, and again, the, the whole effective altruism movement, a lot of it does start reasonably with people being like, are these charities we're donating to working? How can we make sure they're effective? Like, what can we do to make giving um, work better? Which is, again, perfectly fine, but it very quickly gets married to this kind of long-termist thinking. 
Um, and they focus instead of stuff like, for example, funding hospitals, stuff like preventing an artificial intelligence from killing everybody or like <laughs> sending people to distant planets, which are like cool and sci-fi and everything, but also deeply unrealistic. I'll say it right now. Our our threat is not that an AI kills us all. There's certainly a threat that different kind of artificial intelligences are used by authoritarians to make life worse for everybody. But by the way, Peter Thiel is a big backer of a, effective altruism. He's one of the people building that fucking AI. Um, this is the guy who wrote that thing about earning to give, right? Like that he was like, this mm-hmm. is the guy who did the, yeah, okay, I'm familiar with He's this. He's made a like who- a promise to never take more than... $31,000 or something in income over the course like uh, of a year in his life and give yeah, everything who, else to charity. He gives all his book profits to charity, but he yeah, also he, runs an organization that is spending more and more on keeping its people comfortable because I guess he doesn't have the money personally to spend. <laughs> anyway, I think there's some but, sketchy shit there. Yeah, this whole idea, and I'm sure we're going to get to this, right? Like, like it, 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 it completely overlooks our obligation morally to agitate for structural change. Right. Like it says, yeah. that, like, if you can become a billionaire through whatever bullshit, evil, fucking exploitative grift you can and then give 90 percent of that away, you're still perpetuating a system in which one grifter gets rich and thousands of people die without fucking clean water. But that's OK, because you also donated some water filters or whatever. Like, And it's not OK. Yeah. And it makes me very angry, actually. I'm yeah. Angry now. Yeah, it makes me angry, too. And it's one of those things, if you look at, like, here's all the charities that McCaskill and his organization are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into, they're not all bad. A lot of them are good, and I'm glad that money's going there. But there's always this strain of deeply unsettling logic running through it. Now, I want to quote from a Time article that I I think kind of gets, in a very subtle way, has this guy's number. When I start thinking in practice, if you've got if you've got some things that look robustly good in both the short and the long term, that definitely makes you feel a lot better about something that is only good from a very long term perspective, he says. This year, for example, he personally donated to the Lead Exposure Elimination Project, which aims to end childhood lead exposure, and the Atlas Fellowship, which supports talented high school students around the world to work on pressing problems. Not all issues are equally tractable, but McCaskill still cares about a range. When we met in Oxford, he expressed concern for the ongoing political crisis in Sri Lanka, though admitted he probably wouldn't tweet about it. The answer, he believes, is to be honest about it. In philanthropy, uh-huh. big donors typically choose causes based on their personal passions, an ultra-subjectivist approach, McCaskill says, where everything is seemingly justifiable on the basis of doing some good. He doesn't think that's tenable. If you can save someone from drowning or 10 people from dying in a burning building, what should you do, he proposes. It is not a morally appropriate response to say, well, I'm particularly passionate about drowning, so I'm going to save one person from drowning rather than the 10 people from burning. And that's exactly the situation we find ourselves in. And like, no, it is not. That is nonsense. Because among (laughs) other things, if you're a random person uh, and you have a choice between saving uh, someone from drowning or 10 people from dying in a burning building, well, you actually probably don't because saving people from drowning is a really difficult technical sk- skill, which is why people usually die when they try to rescue yeah. other folks yeah, who are the, drowning. Yeah. The, the guy, the, the, the creator of Yu-Gi-Oh died yes, trying to save yes. a guy from drowning. It's, it's like, really hard and dangerous. And also, so is rescuing people from a burning building, which is why we yeah. have firefighters. And guess what? A lot of firefighters may not be very good at saving people from drowning because they have not trained for that. They are different yep. skills. These are both problems, <laughs> well, but they're different skills. 
But what if you yeah. instead spent that time uh, buying some Tesla stocks and then you yeah. sold them and instead invested in, uh, I don't know, fucking yeah. something that stops water from, from drowning it's, people? It's a non- like, like, none it, of the problems bullshit. we have are, are, none of the problems, I'm, I'm going to say right now, 0% of the problems we have are the result of some sort of like lifeguard firefighter standing in between yeah. a burning building and like a yacht race gone wrong and going, oh God, no! <laughs> yeah, it's like the tra- he's doing the trolley problem. Like he, he's, yeah. he's just, he's trying to do the trolley problem. Mm-hmm. It's funny that he's talking about Sri Lanka too, because it's like, this is the perfect example, this is the perfect example of a political crisis that is like completely intractable to all of these, like, None of these people donating to charities can like do literally anything about that because that's actually you know like this like the, the crisis of Sri Lanka is a is is a is a, a, a both both it's a like it, it is it is both a sort of short term crisis of this like you know like utterly horrific genocidal political elite and then also a sort of long term crisis about like the sort of structural position of like specific, specific countries and sort of the the, the yeah. like global colonial system. This is not something any of these people can solve. The only, the only thing, yeah. the only way any of these people could solve this is if the people of Sri Lanka like just expropriated them. Yeah, but you know, but he, because because these because these people like because Sri Lankans do not have access to this guy and like six guns, right? Yeah. There's no there, there's no way you know he he can just sort of sit there in his chair going, well, it's a crisis. I'm gonna tweet about it. I'm not gonna yeah. tweet about it. He's not gonna tweet about it. I can tweet about it. Yeah, I, I will. Yeah. I will simply talk to newspapers about it instead yeah. of tweeting. What what I would say is that, like, here's the actual solution to the stupid problem this guy came up with. Well, if we were to tax all of the billionaires to the point that they weren't billionaires and then put that into a massive new, like, works progress fund that instead yeah. of, like, just building national parks provided, like, rental assistance to millions of Americans in exchange for them learning how to fight fires and getting basic life-saving care and getting trained in things um, like that so that they could deal with the consequences of climate change and be able to protect their communities effectively and be incentivized to gain the actual technical skills that would allow them to protect people, well then, you would have more people capable of saving someone from a burning building or from drowning. Um, but anyway, whatever. That's 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 my, that's my pie-in-the-sky leftist solution to that, <laughs> is use funds taken from the rich in order to incentivize people to gain the skills that will allow them to protect their communities in the event of disasters. Um, anyway, whatever. Uh, so, over the last decade, all of this thinking has increasingly given way from a wonky theory on charitable giving by big-hearted, guilt-ridden millennial kids. And that's that's how this guy is always framed in articles, McCaskill, is he's like, in fact, I'm going to fucking, I'm going to scroll down here to my notes, and I'm going to find the section of the article to, like, show you the way he gets fucking talked about in all of these. Quote, 13 years ago, William McCaskill found himself standing in the aisle of a grocery store, agonizing over which breakfast cereal to buy. If he switched to a cheaper brand for a year, could he put aside enough money to save someone's life? Like, that's the... Yeah, the sort and, of thoughts like, that you have when your engagement with global poverty is in the fucking Cheerios aisle. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, and then, yeah, of Waitrose in Oxford, I'm sure. Like, no, fuck off. Sorry, I, I'm so fucking angry at this shit. Like, yeah. And it's it's clearly, very clearly, I can see that this is going towards an excuse for incredibly wealthy people paying fuck all in taxes because they claim that that's not an efficient way to do things and they completely ignore all these fu- structural things which have to exist for their effective altruism to occur in the first place, right? Yeah. It's um, 
Anyway, uh, this is effectively like over the years given away from this, again, kind of this wonky theory by guilty millennial kids to this pop philosophy for the fintech set, because that's how these guilt ridden millennial kids wound up making a bunch of money. Um, And yeah, that time article gives like I I just want to read another quote from it about uh, one of the other guys who's involved in putting a lot of money into uh, McCaskill's organization. Quote. Mr. Bankman-Fried makes his donations through the FTX Foundation, which has given away $140 million, of which $90 million has gone through the group's future fund towards long-term causes. Mr. McCaskill and Mr. Bankman-Fried's relationship is an important piece in understanding the community's evolution in recent years. The two men first met in 2012, when Mr. Bankman-Fried was a student at MIT with an interest in utilitarian philosophy. Over lunch, Mr. Bankman-Fried said that he was interested in working on issues (laughs) related to animal welfare. (laughs) Mr. McCaskill suggested he might do more good by entering a high-earning field and donating money to the cause Ah, and by working ah. for it directly. Mr. Bankman-Fried contacted the Humane League and other charities, asking if they would prefer his time or donations based on his expected earnings if he went to work in tech or finance. They opted for the money, and he embarked on a remunerative career, eventually founding the cryptocurrency exchange FTX in 2019. (laughs) Oh, First off, that guy absolutely did not call any charities. Um, Sorry, this this was from the Forbes article I used, not the Time article. Um, first off, I don't believe that he, but if he did, it was something like, Hey, I don't have any skills or training. Do you want money or do you want me to volunteer? And they were like, who the fuck is this kid? Like, we don't, we don't need another asshole wandering around here trying to touch the cats. Um, (laughs) send us your check. Yeah. And and so instead of, I don't know, getting trained as a vet tech or something where he would actually be able to help animals. He founded a cryptocurrency exchange and contributed to the burning of massive amounts of carbon that will contribute to mass deforestation and the deaths of animals around the world. That's good. Mm-hmm. I think that there's another aspect of this which I think is sort of underexplored, which is that utilitarianism is genuinely one of the greatest evils humanity has ever created. Every <laughs> yeah. every bad decision anyone has ever made, if you look behind it, you can find utilitarianism. Like it, it's the basis, the basis of all neoclassical economics. An, yeah. it's, it's horrible, awful it's shit. Engine, Everything yeah. bad in the world traces back to utilitarianism. Yeah. It, it is an engine that allows rich people to feel good about hurting poor people. That's that's what it yes. is. But and that's what yeah. I think this all makes clear. So the actual rhetoric from these people is always like it's it, especially if you're just kind of encountering it out in the wild. It's hard to argue with a lot of the time because they'll be like, well, look, we need to look at what's going to help the most people. And, and that's why we're you know setting up. None of this matters if we don't deal with this problem or that problem. It, it, and it's it's tailor made to sound profound. And again, in like a TED talk or the website for some charitable giving organization aimed at getting you to like put 10 percent of your income to long termist causes. But again, the fucked up shit crusts kind of around the edges for the most part, and lines like these from a time profile on McCaskill. The first public protest against African-American slavery was the 1688 Germantown Quaker uh, petition. Slavery (laughs) was only, yeah, slavery was only abolished in the British Empire in 1833, (laughs) decades later in the U.S., and not until 1962 in Saudi Arabia. History encourages McCaskill to favor gradual progress over revolution. Abolition, he says, is maybe the single best moral change ever. It's certainly up there with feminism, and they're extremely incremental. They don't seem that way because we enormously shrink the past, but it's almost 300 years we're talking about. Um, that wasn't the result of incremental change. It was the result against the people who own slaves fighting viciously against any attempts to end slavery. Yes. Like, yeah, it yeah. was a, it was a battle. 
It was a series of, in fact, a series of revolutions in a lot of cases, including like the Haitian Revolution and guys like John Brown. There were a shit bleeding Kansas. There were a shitload of people died fighting in order to end slavery. Like the Civil War, dude. What do you call that? That's not incremental. A million people shot each other to death. You know, and insofar as we can talk about sort of incremental progress, it's stuff like, okay, so the, the, like, the slaves in Haiti freed themselves by means of revolution and then sent a bunch of guns and weapons to people in Latin America so that their armies could march through Latin America and end yeah. slavery. Like, okay. Many revolutions had to occur to end yeah. slavery because yeah. it was a powerful system at the center of global capital that a lot of entrenched yeah. and heavily armed interests were willing to die to maintain. Which also is yeah. fun because I, 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 I I bet, I bet if you look through these people's supply chains, and this is almost certainly true of Elon Musk's supply chains, like, well, I mean, okay, Musk's supply chains in China, you can have some kind of debate as to whether the kinds of forced labor you're going to be encountering are slavery, like, I, I, I bet if you look through 90% of the people who are effective altruists, you can find slavery in their supply chains, <laughs> yeah. and their argument will yep. be like, well, I can't yeah. end slavery in my well, supply chain because uh, I guarantee uh, it. They're all in than... the tech industry, and like yeah, nobody like, has a laptop or a fo- smartphone without the use of rare earth minerals that are yep. like yep. acquired via slavery. It's, it's the same thing if you're wearing clothes. You have something that slavery was involved in, because the garment <laughs> yeah. industry, slavery is literally inextricable from it. Like, the company that has tried the hardest to remove slavery from their from their production line, Patagonia, yeah, um, still continually up. finds like, oh no, there's some more. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. They're pretty good um, about calling it out, but yeah, they, yeah, they put a lot of money into that shit, and they yeah, still. It is hard. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, I'm going to read another fun quote from the Forbes article. Mr. Bankman-Fried said he expected to give away the bulk of his fortune in the next 10 or 20 years. If you're worried about existential risks of a really bad pandemic, you sort of can't stall on that, Mr. Bankman-Fried said in an interview. That is how his text messages popped up among hundreds of others sent to Mr. Musk. Mr. Bankman-Fried ultimately did not join Mr. Musk's bid. I don't know exactly what Elon's goals are going to be with Twitter, Mr. Bankman-Fried said in an interview. There was a little bit of ambiguity there. He had his hands full in the months that followed as cryptocurrency prices crashed. The Twitter deal has been volatile in its own way, with Mr. Musk trying to back out before recently announcing his intention to follow through with it after all. In August, Mr. Musk retweeted Mr. McCaskill's book announcement to his 108 million followers with the observation, worth reading, this is a close match to my philosophy. <laughs> so that's that's kind of the surface of where we are now. Um, it is not it doesn't quite get at all of the things that are deeply fucked up. And for that, I wanted to quote from another article um, I found on Aeon, uh, A-E-O-N. Uh, it's an yeah. essay by, uh, God, let me get the, the author here because it's it's quite good, about long-termism. It's an essay called Against Long-Termism by Emil P. Torres, a PhD candidate at uh, a university in Hanover in Germany, uh, Leibniz Universität. I don't know. I, I feel silly every time I try this say German, so I'm not going to try that hard. But the article is very good, um, and it kind of gets at how this effective altruism movement has merged with long-termism in a way that specifically exists to buoy the interests of wealthy authoritarians around the world. Quote, 
This has roots in the work of Nick Bostrom, who founded the grandiosely named Future of Humanity Institute, FHI, in 2005, and Nick Beckstead, a research associate at FHI and a program officer at Open Philanthropy. It has been defended most publicly by the FHI philosopher Toby Ord, author of The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. Long-termism is the primary research focus of both the Global Priorities Institute and an FHI-linked organization directed by Hilary Greaves, and the Forethought Foundation, run by William McCaskill, who also holds positions at FHI and GPI. Adding to the tangle of titles, Mm -hmm. names, institutes, and acronyms, long-termism is one of the main cause areas of the so-called effective altruism movement, which was introduced by Ord in around 2011 and now boasts of having a mind-boggling $46 billion in committed funding. It is difficult to overstate how influential long-termism has become. Karl Marx in 1845 declared that the point of philosophy isn't merely to interpret the world, but change it. And this is exactly what long-termists have been doing, with extraordinary success. Consider that Elon Musk, who has cited and endorsed Bostrom's work, has donated $1.5 million to FHI through its sister organization, the even more grandiosely named Future of Life Institute. This was co-founded by the multi-millionaire tech entrepreneur Jan Talin, who, as I recently noted, doesn't believe that climate change poses an existential threat to humanity because of his (laughs) adherence to the long-termist ideology. Meanwhile, the billionaire libertarian and Donald Trump supporter Peter Thiel, who once gave the keynote address at an effective altruism conference, has donated large sums of money to the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, whose mission is to save humanity from superintelligent machines and is deeply intertwined with long-termist values. Other organizations, such as GPI and the Forethought Foundation, are funding essay contests and scholarships in an effort to draw young people into the community. While it's an open secret that the Washington, D.C.-based Center for Security and and Emerging Technology, CSET, aims to place long-termists within high-level U.S. government positions to shape national apology. In fact, CSET was established by Jason Matheny, a former research assistant in FHI who's now the deputy assistant to U.S. President Joe Biden for technology and national security. Ord himself has, astonishingly for a philosopher, advised the World Health Organization, the World Bank, the World Economic Forum, the U.S. National Intelligence Council, the U.K. Prime Minister's Office, Cabinet Office, and Government Office for Science, and he recently contributed to a report from the Secretary General of the United Nations that specifically mentions long-termism. The short answer is that elevating the fulfillment of humanity's supposed potential above all else could non-trivially increase the probability that actual people, those alive today and in the near future, suffer extreme harms, even death. Consider, as I noted elsewhere, the long-termist ideology inclines its adherents to take an insouciant attitude towards climate change. Why? Because even if climate change causes island nations to disappear, triggers mass migrations, and kills millions of people, it probably isn't going to compromise our long-term potential over the coming trillions of years. If one takes a cosmic view of the situation, even a climate catastrophe that cuts the human population by 75% for the next two millennia will, in the grand scheme of things, be nothing more than a small blip, the equivalent of a 90-year-old man having stubbed his toe when he was two. So this is evil, right? Like, this is like, this is vicious and vile and cruel. And it's one of those things, there's a a book that I've talked about on the show a couple of times um, that is is quite popular called Ministry of the Future. Um, And I think it's a very good book. And one of the attitude, like the basic premise of it is that climate change is addressed finally and the worst aspects of it are are dealt with and like begin to be repaired because of the establishment of an organization called the Ministry of the Future. It's this international organization that exists to like look out for the interests of unborn people and animals and plant species. And part of how they do this is by murdering billionaires in their beds uh, and blowing up planes to end international air travel, which is so there's a verse like, again, the idea that like we should be thinking about people and and 
living creatures who have not yet been born is reasonable. And the reasonable conclusion of that is, and so we should deal with things like climate change and stop like thoughtlessly degrading our environment so that people in the future will be able to live a quality life. Um, the argument that these long-termists are making is, no, that's foolish because in a trillion years, none of it will matter. And I intend to be alive in a trillion years because I will be an immortal machine man, billionaire forever. You know, it's, the thing about this- Fuck that, these like, like, people. These people fucking suck. It's like, think about this, George. If, if you believe this, the only, literally the only thing that you should spend your time doing is trying to dismantle every single nuclear weapon on the planet. Like, you you, you should be forming your own private armies to, yeah. like, storm military bases to destroy nukes. And none of them will ever fucking do this. All these people will back candidates who, like, want to have more nuclear weapons. All these people who will back candidates who, like, like, you know, I, I, I wonder how many of these people personally supported dropping a nuke in the middle of a rock in 2004. Like, <sighs> God. Yeah, I, anyway, this is probably, that's probably enough. I, I wanted to, at some point, I think we will be doing a more detailed look into some of these people and a more detailed look into some, maybe maybe as a bastards episode, but yeah. this is just getting more relevant. And I wanted to give people, I wanted to connect them with some, like some, some resources, uh, particularly that article on Aeon about uh, the, the dangers of long-termism. And uh, yeah, anyway, be, be advised. This is what the fucking assholes who have spent, like, think about, how many cool things the tech industry has actually made in the last decade. It's, it's not many, right? Like it's mostly been vaporware. Like most of the different big apps and stuff have all are in the process of collapsing right now. That's why the industry is falling apart. Very you little value has been created. As we record this in the metaverse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Without I can, legs. This it's time. like you're sitting right next to me, James, except for you have no laying legs and your mouth is open in an endless wordless scream. Mm -hmm. um, finally, yeah, uh, anyway, th that's what these assholes want to do. What they've done to the internet, sucking the vibrancy and the life and like the freedom out of this, this incredible creation and turning it into, uh, an engine for sucking your personal data out and marketing things to you and making you angry all the time as much as possible and convincing your parents and grandparents that, fucking Joe Biden's been replaced by a, a lizard man. Um, like the people who did that, uh, now think yeah. that we can't take care of people today because that would distract from our mission to take care of people who have never been born a trillion years from now. Um, anyway, fuck them. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. 
Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Everything's dead! Uh, wait, no, sorry. Um, it's, it could happen here. A podcast about stuff falling apart. And today, about the fact that things fell less apart than people were worried they were going to fall apart. And in some ways, got, might get better. So that's kind of, that's kind of nice. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, On -hmm. the whole, we're talking about the midterms today. And on the whole, Okay. I, I yeah. feel okay. <laughs> yeah. Mid is an excellent description yeah. of, the, uh, of yeah. the terms. It's the midterms equivalent of getting like an ounce of, of, of like mid-grade weed for like 50 bucks. But you find out later that like kind of in the middle of it was like half of a paper towel roll that they, they stuck in there to, to push up the weight. But it's like, well, at least I got weed. But, All right. Yeah. I've introduced the podcast. <laughs> Who, who do we who do we have here today? Oh, you got me. Uh, I'm James. Still, mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm Garrison. I didn't uh-huh. vote. Look at you! Wow, way to be a Un- way to be an anarchist, Garrison, or a I'm- Canadian. Same diff. Democracy way, way was to be on the ballot. Is, is this yeah. what? Yeah. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. not committing voter fraud for the for the Democratic yeah. Party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I also yeah. uh, decided to not vote for the people who are doing yeah. like the war on drugs in California right now. No, Garrison, you you continued your your years long tradition of submitting uh, a crude drawing of the premier of Canada um, <laughs> to a to a ballot box. Yep, <laughs> shirtless Trudeau coming out of a cave. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who else do we have on with us right now? Uh- I'm here, I'm Christopher Wong, and I absolutely despise elections. So, I brought my friend, who actually does like elections. That's um, cool. <laughs> Excellent. Token election enjoyer. <clears throat> Pretty friend. much. Uh, yes, hi, I am Jack. I am 
Christopher's token friend, as mentioned. Um, and I'm here partly because of nepotism for knowing Christopher and partly because, <laughs> uh, as he reminded me before we got started, I had a 93% uh, accurate prediction rating for all of the elections that I was paying attention to this year. So That's I know good. some things. Yeah, congratulations. I only made one prediction before this election, which was, boy, it doesn't feel like Dr. Oz is going to win. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> which, which means you did better than a lot of the people who are paid to do this. Like, okay, yeah, yeah. that man, that man said the word crudite in an election okay. in Pennsylvania. <laughs> like, there was, he was never good. The moment that ad came out, he was going to lose. And, I see, and I, I say, that's much more nuanced than my my political analysis, which was the fact that the other guy was much taller than him. And also way harder. Like if they just uh, settled it with a fist fight, Fetterman mm-hmm. could have taken it. Yep. Which... Yeah, that seems good. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was fun. It was a fun election. We all had a good time. I enjoy that fucking Marjorie Taylor Greene and J.D. Vance are going to be in Congress together. That's going to be fun for everybody. We're all going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I suspect there's probably some stuff we haven't, like, as you may have noticed, listeners, we, we didn't do much in the way of pre-midterm content because we all hate it. Thank Christ. Um, <sighs> but but now now we're talking about it. So uh, what, uh, what, what what should we know about these midterms? What, what, what kind of occurred to you as somebody who's, like, actually has spent a lot more time delving into the nitty gritty and thinking about what was likely to happen? Um, so I told Christopher, I would say this and in fairness, I do genuinely believe it. Uh, I think the story of these midterms, when historians look back at it, will be that the Dobbs Supreme court decision had the same electoral impact in the United States as nine 11 did. Uh, I think that is going to be like how this plays out over time. Um, because when you look at how things were going before Dobbs and then how things were going after Dobbs. Um, obviously things got a lot worse on the policy front because abortion became illegal in a lot of states. Um, but the election essentially flipped overnight from what was going to be a Republican wave to the even split that we got. And that makes this one of three, uh, post world war two midterms where the incumbent party did well. And so this is definitely going to be a midterm that gets, uh, lectured about in poli sci one-on-one courses for the next hundred years. Also, one of those one of those other three was the nine eleven was the post nine eleven. Yes, yes, it was. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah, find yeah. that actually a really because obviously I I was aware just because there was so much coverage saying like this is the best performance from an incumbent party in a midterm since two thousand two. So I was aware of that fact, but for some reason I hadn't put it together in my head that way. That like yeah, the 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 this means that like the Supreme Court's decision on Roe v. Wade had kind of a comparable electoral impact to flying two planes into a pair of skyscrapers in the Pentagon with <laughs> yeah. three planes. I mean, or to, to be fair, three, whatever. to be fair, the Supreme Court have killed, like, in, in, in terms of the immediate impact, the Supreme Court will have killed more people than that by, like, <gasps> Thursday oh, yeah. or something. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. The other one was uh, was uh, FDR's first midterm, right? Uh, no, the other one. So that so I said post World War Two. Um, oh, okay, my bad. The other yeah. the other one was 1998 when the American electorate apparently got so mad at Republicans impeaching Bill Clinton that they decided to vote for Democrats in a midterm again. <laughs> well, yes. that's the that's the other thing Biden can do if it uh, if it goes south. It's good to know there are options on the table. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but um, I There's think non-zero chance that'll happen anyway. I mean, I guess we're still waiting <laughs> to knows? see it shake out. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Doc Brandon. I enjoyed from uh, from a an entertainment perspective the like three months of lucidity that we got out of Joe Biden this year. We'll see how many more he has in him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who knows? So yeah, like it. So you're you're suggesting that Dobbs has been like the really pivotal thing here in in swinging a lot of these close races, right? Absolutely. Um, Dobbs definitely being the number one factor. Um, tragically, because it's very cringe, and I wish this hadn't happened. Uh, the January sixth investigation does actually seem to have also swung several uh, important I mean, races. That's I. I mean, I'm I'm interested in your thoughts on this, but I actually. I'm I'm glad that it mattered that they tried to do a coup and they yeah. just like I'm, 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 I'm glad, glad that people cared about that. Yeah. I'm glad it mattered. Yeah. I just I just think it sucks that because the way they went about the investigation was so incredibly terrible. Oh yeah. And I mean there was yeah. yes. Yeah. Um but, like Merrick Garland is gonna go down as like one of the most cowardly attorney generals in American history. But um yeah, it's it's pretty clear that in a lot of races, like the the investigation made a difference. I think this is really clear if we're getting into like very kind of under the hood um democrats ran the table in competitive state level secretary of state races and these are the officials that run elections um and not only did democrats run the table pretty much every single one of those candidates outperformed the top of the ticket so they outperformed governor and senate candidates um so there were a lot of people this is another big story the midterms is that swing voter swing voting is back uh, not swing voting, I'm sorry, split ticket split voting ticket. is back. Yeah. Um, yeah. There were quite a few, there were quite a few millions of voters this year who uh, voted for a Republican in the Senate or a Republican for governor and then a Democrat to run their state's actual elections. That's kind of good. It's all, That's also like, a, like speaks promisingly of people's like engagement with the political system and education about mm-hmm. it and the, the awareness of what these different things do. Yes, Um but other like like not other than that, but just overall high level Dobbs was 100 percent the big one. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a person whose name I'm going to unfortunately mispronounce and that I should have looked up beforehand. It's all right. This is a safe place for that. Thank you. Um, but there's a person, there's a guy down in Louisiana named John uh, Kulivan, I think, is my best guess. And he is one of the people who makes money off of like looking at elections. Mm-hmm. Um And his big thing is that you can predict the outcome of elections just by looking at the nationwide composition of the primary electorate. So, like, if Republicans turn out more voters in their primaries than Democrats do, Republicans are going to win the election and vice versa. This has been true in pretty much every single election for the last 30 years or so. Um, And he unfortunately got led astray. Um, this year because nationwide at the end of the primary season, Republicans were up by about like five points. And so he was insisting the whole rest of the campaign that Republicans are going to win. That's obviously not really what happened. But if you look at pre Dobbs versus post Dobbs, the primary electorate post Dobbs was Democrats plus like up by one point. That is the electorate that we got in the midterms. So Dobbs 100% set the tone of like what the midterms were going to be. Um, 
because we are not going to be legalizing abortion nationwide in the next two years, because we are going to have a Republican House almost certainly, Dobbs is almost definitely going to be a huge factor in 24 as well. I mean, and I guess that, like, because the question I had, and I think a lot of people had running into this, especially people who are not election lovers, is like, do things matter? Right. Mm-hmm. Like it, it was Dobbs going to matter. And was the were the constant sort of Republican assaults on on the ability of people to vote was the 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 fucking attacks on children's hospitals and on trans kids and stuff like was all of that going to work? Like, do do things matter still? And uh, I, you know, we'll have to re-answer that question in 2024. But it does kind of seem like that's the positive takeout from this is mm-hmm. not like. You know, it, it's it's probably probably too early to say, are we seeing some sort of pr- grand progressive swing or are people coming around on Biden or, Biden or whatever things politicos want to take? But it does kind of seem that like uh, uh, on a on a very like ground floor level, uh, it mattered that the Republicans were doing awful things. Yes, 100 percent mattered. Um, I think Christopher and I have talked about. Uh, how, in his words, Leah Thomas cost the Michigan Republican Party the election. Um, let's talk. She's let's so talk powerful. about that because I think a lot of people. I mean, yeah. Let's. let's we'll, we'll, yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll, but, give, I'll give the I'll give the meme version of it first. The, the meme <laughs> version of it basically is that there, there was okay. So there, there 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 was a report released by the 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 Republican Party in Michigan after the election when they sort of just got hammered, and part of what they're talking about was like okay, so. The inflation is like 7.7% right now, right? This is the freest election anyone has ever been handed, like, yeah. in human history. It, like, a, a child could have won this election, and the Republicans managed to blow it. And one of the reasons they managed to blow it was that they talked about this, in their board. They, spent, they spent, like, $25 million, like, specifically on ads about trans, like, trans kids in sports. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And everyone in Michigan was just like, what the Yes. Really? Okay. Like, yes. Not not just not just blew it, but blew it in a way that they haven't blown it in 40 years, because for the first time in 40 years, Democrats will have complete control of the Michigan state government. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and, and it's like it's like the other thing is it wasn't just in Michigan where this happened. Right. Like like quite possibly like one of the ways they're going to lose the Senate is because the, like the Republicans like entire sort of apparatus in Nevada was running mm-hmm. against the, the Equal Rights Amendment. Which yeah. and specifically they were they were running against the equal Nevada passing a version of the Equal Rights Amendment like specifically on the grounds of transphobia and the ERA passed by seventeen points uh, and Republicans are about to lose that Senate seat and it's just like I the, the, my main version of this is that the Republican Party ran a platform that is like the political equivalent of like a street preacher, right? Like that, that is the constituency for this. It is like, they unbelievably hate trans people. They like a, a, a unbelievably hardline anti-abortion position, which again, like nobody actually yeah. likes. And, you know, it turns out like if, 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 if your constituency is street preachers, like the thing an average person does when they run into a street preacher is walk past them. <laughs> and it turns out that's what happened here. <laughs> like they tried yeah. this and they got owned. And that, okay, that's, that's, that's the yeah. meme version of it. Absolutely. I mean, that's not just the meme version of it. It's essentially what happened um, in Michigan and Pennsylvania in all of these states where hardline Christian nationalists won Republican primaries like they went down hard. 
Um, and so as Robert said, yeah, things actually mattered this election and that's a good thing. Um, and I think I know for me, uh, as like, I went into election night very nervous about my own predictions because when I put together my, um, Google spreadsheet that will never be shown to any of you because of how insane it is, um, (laughs) and I was picking, you know, I, I got more races wrong, by the way, by picking Republicans to win that Democrats actually won than the other way around. Um, because I kept second guessing myself. It's like, no, 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 I'm not. I'm being too kind to Democrats. And then I went too far. But when I was making those predictions, honestly, I just kept thinking about like, so I'm adopted. My parents are both white. And my mom is this like white woman from Appalachian, Ohio. And She is um, in her upper 60s. So she grew up in a world before Roe v. Wade. Um, And I had never seen my mom so angry about anything in politics. And like she was very, very angry when Trump won. Um, She has been very angry. She's been very angry about like January 6th. She's been angry about a lot of stuff the last several years, as is my dad, Um, because they're both very normie Democrats, but my mom has never been angrier as far as I've seen her than she was angrier about Dobbs. And it wasn't just like my mom. I was hearing from friends of mine uh, from across the Midwest who also have like normie white suburban parents. And that was kind of the same thing that I was hearing from them too, is like, my mom is so upset about this. My grandmother is so upset about this. These women who remembered what it was like to grow up in a world where abortion was not something that they had access to if they needed it. Um, and that honestly, you know, it's, it's obviously completely anecdotal. It's not data-based or data-driven in any way, but that was just what I kept thinking about as I was making predictions about how the midterm was going to go was, you know, I, I think that these people are angry enough that they are not going to care about inflation. They're not going to care about the fact that our economy is very clearly headed for a recession um, because this is going to matter more to them. Um, and it did. I kind of want to move on to talking about what, what we think this sets us up for in 2024, because I think the, the clearest, and we talked about this a little earlier, but sort of the clearest thing that's positive about this is that we have fewer state secretaries of state and state legislatures in the hands of the Republican party which means more of a chance that like what people actually vote for is is going to matter. Mm-hmm. Um now we're still dealing with the judiciary that is as fucked as it was prior to the midterms and in 2024 probably won't be less fucked in a way that is notable um in aggregate. Yeah. We, we can um, all we can always hope and pray. Yeah, they could Clarence, have could, yeah. there could be a couple <laughs> that, of very that, specific that car Sam. accidents. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But on that point, actually, so they um I know I bang on about about uh, like uh, how the United States deals with its indigenous people a lot, but like mm-hmm. they they slated and we'll do an episode on it, but we're trying to do it properly. Uh like slated for this uh Supreme Court session is is to look at ICWA, right? The Indian Child Welfare Act. Mm-hmm. Uh and like uh, the the challenge to it challenges a lot of the bases of other tribal law, mm-hmm. and I, in, in places like Arizona, right, like indigenous people are a large like often like in in twenty twenty they were supposed to be like the swing electorate um for like blue Arizona so 
that that could have positive outcomes for for Democrats. It could they could I don't know how they could go out their way to disenfranchise indigenous people, but they find new and exciting ways to do it all the fucking time. Uh, so like that would be interesting. Um, one thing I wanted to raise is like. So I live in California, which I think is seen as like the left coast and stuff. But we have an alarming amount of really chudly people going to the house uh, yeah. from California. And um, <clears throat> yeah, it's becoming increasingly a bit like where like some of you live in Oregon, where like you have a very divided I mean, yeah, state. The far right in California is larger than the population of like yes. many United U.S. states. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. And uh, they're increasingly big mad about uh, yeah. like, like small things. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I'm just looking at the districts around the one I'm in, and a, and a number of them have sent uh, a, like anti-reproductive rights House representatives back to the House. Hmm. California is a state where um, the Democratic Party likes to flop its way to victory. Uh, it's one of it's one of the most incompetent state Democratic parties in the country, which is really yes. saying something. Because yeah. we should talk compete- about New York after they're this. Com- they're competing. Yeah. They're competing with New York. They're competing with Florida. Like I mean, hey, Oregon's yeah. not didn't do great either. Like the state Democratic mm-hmm. Party in Oregon had their most narrow governor's race in a long time, yes. and also there are, Although, the De- the Dems lost their uh, their supermajority in the state Congress. They did lose their supermajority, but Democrats in Oregon do now have the ability to uh, redistrict again, so they yes. can take back that seat that Republicans picked up uh, because there was a constitutional amendment that got passed by the voters of Oregon. Uh, that says that if Republicans do what they have done in the last few years in Oregon, which is walk out of the state house any time that a law yeah. they don't like might pass, they get banned from running for re-election. But also, like without the supermajority, I don't know that there's as much of an. I mean, I w- we'll see what happens. Um, but yeah, it's there. As a general rule, it seems like when you've got there's no meaningful competition for what party is going to be in control of the state. It becomes a haven for like po- the political equivalent of grifters to mm-hmm. yeah. suck in oh. huge salaries and do very little. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. our mayor. Uh, or yeah. to just do like, like our mayor. <laughs> <laughs> well, look at that. Our mayor also. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And she's and, up yeah. for re-election in a few months, and we can only hope that she that she loses. I, I can't imagine her winning. I mean, it, it could happen, admittedly. It could happen here. It could happen here. Here's an ad break. Good work, Garrison. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a professional. Ah, we're back. And you know what talking about the midterm elections makes me feel like doing? Smoking a cigarette. Buy cigarettes, kids. They're as good for you as democracy. All right, we're back. (laughs) Uh, In some other interesting news, this is also the this this past midterms had uh, more LGBTQ candidates win office than ever before in a Mm -hmm. midterm election. There was a few uh, notable wins, uh, specifically with trans people in the Midwest, actually, uh, which has been probably a Decent sign. It's a, it's a good sign, yeah, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. the yes. heroes are doing good. Yeah, yes. so there's been a, 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 a multiple multiple trans people and trans, uh, uh, particularly uh, quite a few trans women elected to state legislatives um, across across the Midwest, like in uh, Montana and inside uh, 
Controversial Listen. putting Montana oh, in no, the Midwest. You call, you call Montana a Midwestern state. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you're going to get murdered. Token European. Montana a mountain yeah. state? I'm really? calling that out. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. See, the thing Montana is, is a mountain west. See, well, the, the thing is, I, I, grew, I grew up in Saskatchewan, which is like above Montana. And whenever you would drive down, we would always stay in the more Midwesty sections. And everyone talks. It, it felt very Midwest to me because of where I lived in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apolog- ap- apologies to people who are Montana mountainers, I guess. Um, also but apologies to the people of Chicago. <laughs> no, no, we don't need to be apologizing. No, we don't need to apologize no, to Chicago. They can fuck um, off. <laughs> so Zoe Zephyr, who uh, testified against anti-trans legislation previously, is now able to vote against it um, in Minnesota. Yeah, I want to talk about that like very briefly, which is that like... Sure, sure. Okay, th- there are a lot of queer communities in places that people just fucking ignore. Yes. Yeah, ab- absolutely. You, can, you cannot really, discount like, these places. Yeah, like I said, yeah. it's like, like Missoula specifically has yeah. has a like... A, like pretty substantive queer community they do good shit they're out there like they're like uh, there, there's there's this sort of tendency i think to like like look at like a state and go like oh it's a red state like there's whatever the community are just fleeing and it's like it's not true like there there are a lot of people who are like have for many years been building a community there and hanging on tenaciously and building it and oh, also in know, missoula the, while, people take notice uh, also in missoula the first non-binary uh candidate was elected in uh, uh, S.J. Howell. So mm-hmm. two, uh, t- two trans people it, it elected there mm-hmm. in in uh, in uh, Missoula. So which by the is... way, did did did, Mont- did 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 Missoula do this before Portland? <laughs> I mean, this uh, would follow probably, I, I but Portland's Portland's like city council's like four fucking people. And, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but entirely. I mean, this, this, contr- yeah, and it this, swung this and it swung pretty conservative th- this yes. past election actually. Um, yeah. but, uh, we also had, uh, in Minnesota, uh, Leia Fink is the first trans person in state <laughs> legis- le- legislator and in New Hampshire, uh, they elected the first trans man to a U.S. state house. That's dope. So, yeah. So, yeah. And, and the other, other good thing is, um, Arizona got a democratic governor, uh, which means a whole bunch of, pr- uh, yes. potential legislation will probably not get signed on. Because uh, Arizona did have some pretty, Oof. pretty, pretty bad anti-trans yes. stuff come up in the past I, yeah. few years. Yes. I also yeah. want to talk about. So the Arizona election was critical, not just because it's amazing that fucking Carrie Lake's not going to be governor because yeah. she is a election denying ghoul. Um, but fucking <laughs> nicest Blake, thing I've Blake, ever heard Blake, described. Blake Masters might be the scariest person who was running for election. Abs- he is. He, he is he, the scariest. He, 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 he was hardcore scary serial killer energy. Yeah. Yes. yes like, yeah. Yeah. He, he was. He was scary until he was funny. Is the thing because like I you know when they uh, fail they're always funny. Yeah. But like Chris, yeah. Christopher and I were yeah. talking about this before the podcast and like. <laughs> During the during the final debate between Blake Masters and Mark Kelly, yeah. like am, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes. I, okay, oh, yeah. yeah. Like, <laughs> as, like we're allowed the, to say whatever the hell we want. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Big in their fat final load debate, in, in their final debate <laughs> between Mark Kelly and Blake Masters, Mark Kelly's like final statement, his concluding argument was essentially pointing at Blake Masters and going, "Look at this fucking freak." Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was and great. It was which is, the, yeah. which is yeah. one of the most powerful things you could do in politics. Yeah, because yeah, he was, he was just like the, like the specific thing he did. Because his language was was 
I, I think a lot more um, nuanced than that because what he was saying is Blake Masters. For those of you who don't don't know, like one of the most like famous moments of this campaign is he sh- he put out a campaign ad that was just him parking in the desert with a silenced handgun. Yeah, ta- silenced mentioning- twenty two. Desert twenty mention- two. Yeah, he's a coward. <laughs> Which is a child's gun, first off. But anyway, yeah. mentioning twice that the gun was German <laughs> and like made in Germany as he, two as he caressed yeah, yeah. it. <laughs> And then yeah. firing it blindly at nothing, and then the ad no, ends. No, he fired it across a lake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah to <laughs> we see don't how see far him shoot go. at something. We don't see him hit a target. He is his stance is dog shit. Anyway, but it's yeah. just him taking a silenced pistol out, repeatedly yeah. mentioning that the gun is German, firing it, and then the ad ends. That's yeah. the whole ad. <laughs> it's it's yeah, like yeah. ninety seconds of him just yeah. like, fondling yeah. this gun and badly <laughs> shooting it. It's worth giving the context that the person he's running against is someone whose wife was shot in the head. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah because uh, Mark Kelly's yeah, Gabby, Gabby, Gabby Giffords. Very nearly yeah. assassinated. Yeah. So that's, but it's also just like, look, guns are a big part of American life. A lot of politicians have, ad, including Democrats, have ads that involve guns. And usually it's like, here is me hunting. You know, yeah. or even like yeah, here is yeah, me yeah, at yeah. the range with friends engaging in a thing that many Americans do. Masters was just blindly <laughs> shooting a twenty-two caliber handgun after repeatedly <laughs> mentioning that it's German. It was like someone showed an alien, like a regular yeah. campaign ad of someone shooting a gun and then... Yes. I mean, it's funny that that's the term that you use because that was a term that was flying around like Arizona social media the entire campaign. It was like Blake Masters looks like an alien. Yeah. Um, This is so fucked up and You get pumped with Peter Thiel money for so. (laughs) So he has this, and he has a couple of others. Like he is, he is on. He he's a number one. He worked with Peter Thiel for years. Um, He's doing all sorts of fucking ghoul shit on Twitter. Like really mask off fascist unhinged shit and mark kelly in the debate isn't just like look at this freak he's like hey we all know guys like this Mm -hmm. who talk about how dangerous and how scary they are but they they've never done anything they're just like weirdos trying to scare you so that you'll think that they're they're powerful and like don't don't fall for it and it was perfect and the good news is that Arizona voters did not fall for it because no, they only, sure did. You know, not only did Blake Masters lose, mm-hmm. but the best performing Republicans in Arizona were their House candidates. Yep. Uh, like the the statewide House popular vote for the for U.S. Congress, not the state house, was I think Republicans won it or are going to win it by like five. So yeah. Kari Lake already drastically underperformed that by six because she's going to lose, and then to Blake Masters underperformed his house uh, candidates by like 10 or 11. Unbelievable. It's, it's, I mean, it, it really goes to show that whatever most Americans want, they don't want a fucking weirdo fascist freak threatening uh, their, an astronaut's wife with a gun. No. <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Really briefly, like also like on this note of all of the queer and trans candidates who won, um, I will point out this follows the pattern that has taken shape in the last decade, which is that these supposedly well, not supposedly they are, but like these red and purple states in the South and the Midwest are sending queer and trans people into the halls of power 
a yeah. lot faster than deep blue states on the West Coast and in the Northeast. The first yeah. non, I unfortunately forget their name, but the first non-binary state legislator in the country was elected in Oklahoma. Yeah. And they're not only non-binary, they are black and Muslim non-binary. Um, so I, it's this, like, you know, these... Okay. Um, these communities, as Christopher's like, A, these communities do matter. Uh, we can't forget about them. We can't abandon them. But also, like, not just they matter, but, like, as I will happily argue with any political operative from either coast, uh, we are much more likely to see some kind of progressive resurgence in, resurgence in this country led by candidates out of the South or Midwest than yes, either yeah, of our coasts. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, like, like, look at, like this is one of the other things that, that you know, so I, I have a lot of friends in the, uh, like, Michigan Teachers Union, right? And, you know, like, right right now, what is happening in, Michi- like in Michigan is that the Teachers Union is literally sending lists of laws, like, to, to the governor that are, like, you need to get rid of this. And, you know, if, if, like, if, even if you look at, like, like, almost every other Democratic Party like in the country is just constantly at war with their teachers unions. And, you know, and then you look at like, you look at what's happening in Wisconsin and it's like, and you look at what's happening in Michigan. Well, also also Wisconsin too, where like they have a much more labor friendly, like Mm -hmm. democratic party than like fucking San Francisco or like the ghouls in like, like honestly the the, the ghouls in the Chicago machine, right? Like in Eric Adams office. Yeah. Right. Like there's, 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 I don't know. They're like everyone ignores the Midwest and we're here, damn it, and we do good things. <laughs> well, it's, it's a little bit like I mean, it's a little bit of what we were saying earlier that like when you've got these states where because of the population layout, the 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 Democratic Party doesn't have to struggle to actually win for the most part. Mm-hmm. You're a hell of a lot. Number one the party becomes effectively a cartel. So they're very good at stopping any like upstart, young, progressive, non-binary, queer, trans people from like getting a hold on in local politics. You know, we, we just had the most progressive member of the Portland City Council ousted by corporate business interests. Um, and, you know, it, 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 which is very different from the trend that you're seeing in places like Montana and places like mm-hmm. Oklahoma with a lot of these very progressive, you know, young candidates. And it's because... Um, number one, maybe the state parties are a little more willing to throw a Hail Mary, but also just like those individual people, the people running and the folks doing their campaign have had to be a lot harder and a lot smarter to survive surrounded by people who hate them. Um, And and I, and I think also like like, there's one of the ways that I, I was pretty sure that this wasn't going to be a red tsunami was, so I have some friends, I have friends who go to Wheaton college and for people who don't know who, what Wheaton College is, it is like we're, we're sorry that we're about to inform you. Yeah, so Wheaton <laughs> College is one of like I don't know, maybe the second behind like Brigham Young, like most right wing evangelical college in the U.S. Like they 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 famously it's, it's, it's not as bad as Liberty. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like number three, right? But like, so the, it, it's it's this is the sort of this is like the, the the intellectual center of um like of sort of evangelical politics like uh I, hold on, let me make sure i have this right uh yeah like billy graham's family has funneled money into wheaton college for decades yeah. and decades now and okay so like wheaton is a like broadly speaking like a, a fucking ferociously hostile place to be anything other than a like a cishet white person right 
It is like unbelievably homophobic. It is really anti-Semitic. And like a few months ago, I, I, I was walking like through Wheaton downtown to visit a friend. And in, in the middle of fucking Wheaton downtown, there, 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 like there, there, there was someone who on in their in their like fucking lawn had had like had a giant pride flag and like it wasn't like it was like it was like the the, the it was the, the the like the brown pride flag too right mm-hmm. like that was like even like five years ago that would have been unimaginable like you would have been like you would have been fucking chased out of town by a mob like and that it's just, it's just there now mm-hmm. and I don't know like they haven't been run out it's still there. Uh, no, I, it's literally, yes, everything that Christopher just said. And, you know, these are people that Christopher Christopher and I grew up with. Like, we literally, I was, there was a granddaughter of Billy Graham in my high school class. Um, and I think, you know, as much as, you know, these people are not going to be socialists or progressives anytime soon. They are very much like normie, moderate Democrats now. But there were a lot of suburban white people who got very turned off by Trump. Uh, yeah. for the Republican Party. And I think the this midterm is the confirmation that barring, you know, some kind of economic catastrophe that always, always throws elections to the out-of-power party, uh, these normie white suburbanites are not going back. Uh, and we, you know, when you look at trends across the country, um, you know, J.B. Pritzker won DuPage County, which is the county that Wheaton is in, yeah, uh, which is like you like, know this is this used, yeah, like this used to be within Christopher and I's lifetimes. This used to be a county that Republicans banked on getting three hundred thousand votes out of on a statewide margin level, um, and now it's being won up and down by Democrats. Like Democrats flipped the county executive office in DuPage County this year, um, so like Chicago suburbs are trending are continuing to trend left. Atlanta suburbs are continuing to trend left. Uh, the like Raleigh Durham area in North Carolina is trending left. The Texas urban areas are trending left. And this isn't just like in comparison to 2016. This is in comparison to 2020, two years ago, which was a democratic environment. Um, so the fact that these counties are swinging left in a year where the country, even though the overall results were fine, the country definitely swung right. Like these people are not going back and not just that these people are not going back, but the ones who are staying Republicans, A, they're moving, they're leaving the suburbs, and they're establishing their little new white flight outposts in other places. Um, and the people who are replacing them are largely people of color. Like, the suburbs today in America are 60% white as compared to in the year 2000 when they were something like 75 to 80% white. Um, so this is, I think, this year was the confirmation we needed that this is a permanent trend, that the suburbs from now on are either going to be a wash or even, frankly, just Democratic places where Democrats will net votes. And, and this is all there still is a lot of fear and there still is reason to be uh, very concerned about the ability of the GOP's power to push things mm-hmm. in a revanchist direction uh, in an anti-democratic election to remove the ability of people, because that that is, you know, we're seeing them talk right now. We're seeing guys like Matt Walsh. Uh, Christopher Rufo talk right now about the need to like stop young people from voting to mm-hmm. like c- crack yeah. down on mail voting. Like this is not not to say like all right it's all done, um, but it this is like I guess the thing that's that's optimistic about this overall is that it is um, 
it's evidence that the 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 the, the tr- there were, there was this kind of open question after Trump won in in 2016 um and if one thing you could look at you could look at 2018 you could look at 2020 now 2022 and go like well clearly the trend since then has been for the GOP to lose big in most of these elections but that was also anything but clear kind of as a result of of 2020 and the way covid fucked things up and this mm-hmm. this does seem to like cement that that like yeah it it may it may have in the long run proved to be a, a major major tactical failure to to have gone for this guy the way that they did oh yeah i mean and we can only hope um yeah i mean i hope personally from an entertainment factor uh cannot wait for the desantis versus trump primary um i will be i will be rooting for trump because he is funnier online um and also i don't think it would make a substantive difference uh in whether or not like who would be the nominee because desantis is just trump without the charisma yeah um but I think, yeah, hopefully, like, we saw the Republican Party pay a price this year for arguably the first time in a long time for their insanity. Um, and it's good to see that that happened. Uh, hopefully, it will happen again. And I will also note for anyone listening who does, you know, you care about elections, you want to get involved somewhere, the next somewhere for you to get involved in is the state of Wisconsin, where the there is a state Supreme Court seat up for election in April. If Democrats win that seat, they will flip the Supreme Court in Wisconsin. And that means that the absolutely insane Republican gerrymanders in that state, which pretty much render the state of Wisconsin a non-democracy, will likely get overturned if Democrats are able to flip the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, which would mean a lot of good things could happen for a lot of people who live in that state. Okay, there is one other thing that is like basically unrelated to this that I want to touch on before we close up, which is that the extent to which the Republicans have sort of entered chaos mode now, A, with with Trump just sort of like going off on DeSantis and like the, the Republican <laughs> Civil War happening. Yeah. And then secondly, because they, they, they seem it looks like they've gotten the chaos mode configuration of their house majority. Yep. Yes. Um, <laughs> any, anyone who pays attention to Congress, I would encourage you to get very, very familiar with the term discharge petition, uh, which is a mechanism by which if you have a majority of the House that is willing to sign a piece of paper that says we should put this bill on the floor no matter what, it goes to the floor no matter what. Um, and I think you're probably going to see Democrats successfully put a lot of bills on the House floor in the next two years because they're going to get they're going to pick off the Republican moderates in the Northeast uh, to sign these these pieces of paper. Um, you know, I, we should. I think we should explain what exactly the Republican position looks like because it's. Oh sure. So yeah. um, it's so I I should caveat this with the statement that there is still like I would say a five percent chance that Democrats manage to scrap like scrape their way to a one seat majority. Um, it's not likely by any means, but like it is still theoretically on the table, mostly because Lauren Boebert managed to put herself in a position where she might actually <laughs> lose. Um, and but default modal outcome, I would say, is 
Republicans end up with a three or four House seat majority uh, in. But what that means is that uh, Cal- we get Calvin Ball for the next two years, essentially, uh, because Kevin McCarthy as a person um, is, well, a he's like very unintelligent in general. And this is like a very common sentiment that you will run into uh, in people who pay attention to Congress. He is not personally capable of managing a house majority of four. This is so widely accepted that Nancy Pelosi was willing to go on the record in an interview the other day saying that. Um, And so who knows? Kevin McCarthy may not even end up being the speaker. We may not have a speaker until March because no one would get 218 votes. Um, But whoever has that job, Whatever Republican has that job, it is going to be the most thankless job of their life that they will suffer through for the next two years. Uh, because, you know, the the pundit class and political operatives love to talk about how ideologically diverse the Democratic Party is in the House. And it's true because, like, on the left wing end of the of the caucus, you have people like Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ilan Omar. And on the right wing end, you have people like Henry Cuellar, who tragically survived his primary this year. Um, but... I think it has gone under the radar that Republicans in the House are arguably more ideologically diverse than Democrats are because the moderates or the moderate Republicans in the House are like your very standard, like socially liberal, fiscally conservative types that were very popular in like 2010. Um, like you had like some of these northeastern Republicans who are were more than happy to vote for same sex marriage. They they would probably vote for, uh, like to codify Roe. They would probably vote to codify birth control, uh, legal like uh, legality. And on the other end, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, and like M- if, M- MTG. Yeah, if if there is a person on this earth who is capable of managing that caucus. Um, I don't know who they are. I don't think anyone knows who they are. Um, And I think that the smartest thing that that person could do is um, not take the job and let someone else take the fall for what is going to be two years of chaos that will most likely hurt the Republican brand a lot in the next two years. Yeah, that's like one of the things that actually makes me like slightly optimistic is that like the, the, the Republican Party like is it is it like a, a diverse coalition and it had been being held together sort of but like by trump and now trump's not on twitter anymore <laughs> and twitter may not exist by like the Next time week. we get a new speaker oh yeah, yeah. So, like well it's so, also i think i might add chris it's not just by trump and a part of why trump was able to get the position he did is it's it's a mix of trump and owning the libs, right? Like that's that's a huge part of why the most visible members of this caucus are where they are. Like there's no there's no Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? Without the way that particular social reinforcement pattern works. And um yeah, I I think that like that's not like number one, if Twitter goes away, which could have happened by the time you listen to this episode, that really gets <laughs> gets in the way of their ability to own the libs, but also if they're just getting their asses kicked up and down the country, they're they're no longer owning the libs. The libs have not been owned. <laughs> no, they have not. And I think the other, you know, the other consideration here is that um, we like to talk a lot in this country because it's true about how neither party ever puts forth a substantive policy agenda. 
Um, and there are a lot of Republican political operatives who are running around right now complaining and saying that Republicans lost because they failed to offer a viable alternative, except that's not true. Republicans did offer a policy agenda in this midterm. And that policy agenda was Christian nationalism. And mm-hmm. American voters took one look at that and said, are you fucking for real? Yeah, yeah like that, that's, the, that's yeah. the thing that like everyone like like people like every, all the fucking New York Times columnists like people don't understand that like there's maybe 30 percent of the population who actually likes that shit. And everyone else in the country is like, what the fuck? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, but, but, you know, like the 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 the. The, like the, the the actual sort of median person in the U.S. is so much less like that than the median person that every pundit imagines that like the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the version of reality that exists in sort of like the minds of the media class. Like it's not. Dramatic. Real. Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> they, they, they've, they've, created, they've created like incredible sandcastles in their mind. And now the tide's like washing them away. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know if the tide's washing them away, I think. We we can we can only hope that the New York Times gets washed out to sea, but yeah, um, yeah. I think you know I what? sorry go for it no 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 please I was just gonna say like you know obviously the next two years are gonna be the next two years um, and no one can predict the future anyone who anyone who tells you in literally the next eighteen months that they know how the 2024 elections are going to go uh, is lying to you and you should block them and perhaps report them to like whatever like non retributive forms of authority exist in your local area. But um, my, you know, based on how this went, if the same trends play out for the next two years, which would be suburbs continue swinging left, Democrats continue to rack up problems with minority uh, voters, but like not to the extent that we're going to like lose urban seats anytime soon. Um, and Republicans continue racking up margins in the states and like the seats that they're already winning by 80 points, which helps them on a statewide level, but does not help them in the U.S. House. My I would say, like, assuming the current trends continue, the trends we've had since 2016, um, that would mean Democrats flip back the House in 2024 uh, it would also mean that we are once again in like the fight of our lives for the Senate, as we likely will be for every single cycle for the next 10 years. So, you know, just kind of get used to that um, while you can, while you have the breather. Um, but yeah, like we had an OK midterm that was literally a year ago looking like it was going to be possibly the worst midterm wipeout. Uh, possibly, in, possibly the end yeah. of 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 the republic as a yeah, literally, literally, yes, <laughs> literally, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, um, so you know, so twenty four might the, might be good. <laughs> I think the responsible thing to do now is to close out by each giving one of our unhinged predictions for what we're going to see in twenty twenty four. And I'm going to mm-hmm. start. I think we're going to see Musk and McConaughey vie for the governor of Texas once oh. Greg Abbott is forced out. God. from a sex scandal um that's my that's my call <laughs> prove to me show show when 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 it happens everybody everybody allow me yeah some uh, some french fries oh god mm-hmm. it's gonna happen calling it now tom brady mm-hmm. i reckon tom brady's gonna uh tom brady's gonna take a swing at it at texas no no, one of those states uh, up in where it's cold and rains all the time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of those. Yeah, I assume yeah. he's from broadly speaking Illinois mm-hmm. to yeah. Wisconsin. 
Yeah. He, he, he's yeah, from, yeah. He's, he is, he would be running in New England. Please do not pin that on us. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah, bro, but not that kind of cold. Like, yeah, just, just gray, not like, like miserable cold. Like you all have up there. Okay. Uh, yeah. Tom Brady running in a place where you can't grow tomatoes is my, yeah. Yeah, is my prediction. That feels good. After his massive success selling the, the, the hit crypto platform FTX, what, what mm-hmm. can't Tom Brady do? Who knows? Don't mm-hmm. answer. Don't ask that question. Put that out there, Robert. <laughs> Win games for the Buccaneers. <laughs> yeah, true. They aren't yeah. in Germany. Yeah, survive eating what any normal human being would eat on a given day. Uh, Garrison, I don't know. I don't. I don't care about this type of thing very much. Uh, that's um, the perfect reason to make a un- prediction. Uh, unhinged mm. prediction. Yep. I don't know. I think one of the funniest things is that in, earlier this year, there was this big Bitcoin account who said that if things continue, Bitcoin's going to be a major uh, factor in the midterms, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny. So I'm <laughs> not wrong. Excellent. So I'm saying that oh, what's a what's what's an even dumber cryptocurrency? Um Doge would be Doge the obvious coin. one. Yeah, I was Doge thinking of Doge. Yeah. I was thinking of Doge. Doge coin's going to be a, a, a significant factor in the twenty twenty four election. Yeah. Yeah. We still got to go. Mine is that. Mine is that. Okay, we're, Pritzker's going to bring back like the old school Democratic machine, and but Bi- Bi- Biden is going to fall out a window. Like Kamala Harris <laughs> is going to sort of like turn up like they're gonna drain a dam in 30 years and find her body and do we Pritzker's... think that biden's gonna run again yes. oh yeah oh, no yeah. He, wo- he won't yeah. because he will have fallen out of a building yeah. near the end of 2020 like the end of about 2023 okay that's your prediction that joe biden will fall out of a window no no Pritzker is predicting Pritzker, the uh the administration of prague yeah. Yeah. Yo, like, here's the thing. like we 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 all think that the, like the, the the sort of like threat like the, the threat to bourgeois democracy comes 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 from the Republicans. It's not. It's Pritzker. Pritzker's gonna coup the fucking country, and probably sixty percent of the population is gonna be completely on board because he's going to be less insane than like everyone that's been like in charge of this country for the last yeah. fifty years. Yep. And you know Pritzker who's gonna save democracy Putin. then? Matthew Vladimir McConaughey. No, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. That that leaves me. What is my unhinged prediction? I don't think I'm going to top Christopher's prediction about J.B. Pritzker. Um, I, you know, I, I think my unhinged prediction will be that Taylor Swift runs for Senate in Tennessee. Oh God! <laughs> oh, she could do it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't. Don't. <sighs> look, if I, she I mean, uh, if look. she brings on if she brings on the head of her fan club who went to jail in Israel for refusing to serve in <laughs> the IDF, yeah, yeah. I think she that actually might get some progressive votes. Yeah, that may have been untrue. Sadly, the uh, oh the Swifty refusal, J- but maybe really, not. Really, really, J- why why did you even introduce yeah, that? Why, why would then? you Why would you say that to me? <laughs> but yeah, because not all these beautiful things we believe in could be true. But uh, yeah. t- Taylor Swift running for Tennessee, she would almost certainly be better than whoever is a Tennessee senator now, right? Yeah. Like um, it's, it's now Colonel Sanders or someone yeah. basically <laughs> the same she, as Colonel Sanders, I imagine. Sh- Colonel she Sanders was a Kentucky. Kentucky. That's Blackburn. Kentucky. Yeah, yeah, come on. Come on, British Jesus James. Christ, Colonel Jesus. Sanders is yeah. Kentucky. Oh. It's called Kentucky Fried Chicken. James, that, that, was, ba- that was basically a slur. <laughs> <laughs> 
There is a type of guy epitomized by Colonel Sanders who mm-hmm. also occupies all the Senate seats south of the Mason-Dixon line. Not that's not there. true. That's, that's, that, that's I'm, my, I'm, that's my I'm stance pushing, and I'm sticking to it. I am pushing back on this. <laughs> no, well, I'm going to watch a Foghorn Leghorn video because that's that's who I'm thinking of now, James. All right, everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's yep. been the episode. Mm-hmm. Go vote Swift. Yeah, vote another couple of times. Just make sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, look, there's the, the old Chicago motto, vote early, vote often. Yeah. Pay, yep. pay, for, pay for a few mules. Everyone go to Colorado and vote yeah. against Lauren Buffett. Yes, yeah, yeah, like yeah. literally seven of you or whatever could swing this. <laughs> Look, Move to Colorado. We can't deal with her shit anymore. Fundraise in order to purchase a huge number of drones and drop ballots over wherever it is in Colorado. They count votes. I assume Denver? Yeah. Blanket Denver in your ballots and mm-hmm. stop listening to podcasts. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Legal Disclaimer. Uh, Okay, it's actually me, not the uh, Legal Disclaimer guy from Medical Adverts. 
We just wanted to mention that both of our guests today are members of UAW, but they do not speak on behalf of UAW. Okay, enjoy the podcast. could happen here it's 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 this podcast it's a podcast we're doing a podcast it's a podcast and today it's a podcast with me i'm james and i'm joined by chris and i'm joined by a couple of grad students from uc san diego today we're going to talk about grad student strikes we're going to talk about the grad student strike vote that's coming up at uc san diego and some other grad student strikes that uh, chris and i have been part of uh, back in the middle ages uh, okay so <laughs> i'm joined today by alex alex you're you're a you're studying, I'm trying to get this correct, cancer genomics at UCSD. Is that correct? That is correct. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah, you're welcome. And Tyler Bell as well. And Tyler, you're a postdoc and you're doing Alzheimer's research. Is that right? Yes. And you're both members of UAW? Yes, that's correct. I've been a, a member for at least two years. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. And I'm a member of the actual uh, the uh, subset of UAW that just formed representing student researchers in uh, completing their PhDs. So we'll explain all the details of that, of course, uh, going forward. Yeah, I think maybe we should start there and explain kind of the economic relationship of PhD and postdoc students to the university. Like what what work they do and the I guess as we were talking about beforehand, people might not even be familiar with the fact that you get paid by the university in many of these positions, right? So can you explain like how that works? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, as you mentioned, um, we do uh, in our various roles as uh, graduate students, uh, teachers and postdocs, uh, we do a lot of work. Uh, majority of the work, in fact, that is critical for the university to function as it does. Um, and we do that in a few different roles. Some of us are paid uh, to teach or TA classes. We call those academic student employees uh, who are represented by uh, one of our unions, UAW2865. Uh, the remainder of PhD students are actually paid directly to do their research. And this is usually funded off of grants or other money that the university has uh, earmarked for research. So as we are progressing towards our degrees, we are doing work that is productive in our labs to uh, get papers out, get grant funding coming in, and we receive a stipend uh, to perform that work. Uh, those students are known as graduate student researchers or GSRs, uh, who are represented by a new union that just formed because it actually only became uh, recently legal to form such a union in the state of California. Uh, we are represented by SRU, bargaining for our first contract. And then uh, we have the postdocs, which uh, Tyler can probably talk more about, um, who are students who have uh, completed their, or no, I'm sorry, I should... We want to really clarify they're not students. They are they are employees of the university who have completed their degree, so are no longer students and are doing uh, research work in labs, usually driving their own projects forward under supervision of professors. Uh, so they are represented by a third union that's part of this sort of collective um, uh, organizing uh, called UAW 5810. Wait, you have postdocs unions? Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. so cool. <laughs> uh, I think the one here at UC is actually the biggest and one of the first first ones that formed. Um, I remember I was on a Wikipedia page, which I shouldn't use as an academic, but <laughs> I totally saw us on there and I was like, holy made the game away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think it's, 
It's fascinating because there are all these like memes that you'll see uh, as, as a graduate student. And then it's like when you finish your PhD, where it's like you always think that you're going to get off the like the grind. Right. Like you're like, oh, I'll do my MA and then I'll get off and then I'll do my PhD and then the pe- people will respect me and I'll be compensated for the massive <laughs> amount of work I do. And then like, I'll just finish this postdoc. And then you're like, oh, I'm 55. You know, like it, it's uh, all of those positions are heavily exploited by by universities that make a, a metric shit ton of money from these people who, as you say, do most of the work that keeps the university running. So perhaps we could talk about the issues that are at stake that are that are leading to this this strike authorization vote. And maybe if we could go through a little bit of a timeline as well, that would be great. Yeah. So maybe Tyler, maybe you could like explain the fifty eight ten timeline and I can talk a little bit about this. Are you in, I guess, kind of two eight six five one? Yeah, so chronologically, the postdocs were up for their contract negotiation, which that's just to set our wages, benefits, and workplace safety and other type of protections we want. Um, And that actually came up, I think, in September of 2021. Um, And I could be wrong on the date specifically, so much has changed. But we initially, back in 2021, um, started actually asking people what they wanted to see in their new contract, like our members. Because the union isn't like, like I, if I didn't care about the union or no one else cared, it wouldn't exist. Like it's the postdocs and we have to take out like a couple of hours a week to do this thing. And sometimes it's 20 hours on top of our research, which is 40 hours. And so during that time, we surveyed everyone, got the demands that people wanted. And the top two issues that people asked for that they wanted changed was our wages and also the housing. Um, We wanted affordable housing because right now, um, you know, over 70% of academic workers, including the postdocs, who you would think, you know, you have a PhD, this is a time you can finally have affordable housing, and you don't have to worry about food scarcity and all these other things that you've worried about as a graduate student. So just take this in the context of like, we're postdocs, we're supposed to be like the most paid, um, or at least the better off because we have our PhD. Think about like what that means for the graduate students and those that aren't yet at that stage yet. Um, and so when we went forward with our proposals, we um, created a lot of other things that we thought were important, including things like transit, um, bargaining demands to in- make public transit like affordable for postdocs, because currently we don't get any kind of like free pass for that. Um, they don't even consider it. Um, in fact, you know, they they probably think we all have cars, which isn't true because a lot of postdocs are international scholars. We were also asking for childcare support because currently like a good bit of, you know, uh, our postdocs have children. Um, which is normal because this is a normal like um, family creation time or whatever you want to call yeah. it. But um, and indeed, it, mm-hmm. it can be one of the only times as an academic when it when it really sort of doesn't massively disadvantage your career to have start a family, yeah. right? Exactly, and like postdocs, like the whole preposition of a postdoc was, you know, there's not enough faculty spots for once you get a PhD, and postdocs now can last five, if not longer, like five years or longer. And there's a new position called an academic researcher, which is a type of like title that you get when you can no longer be a postdoc, but it's also because there's just not enough faculty. So they put you into a different title to do research. And um, collectively, both us postdocs and people that are academic researchers, we don't get any affordable childcare. We don't have affordable housing um, and our wages are below the cost of living. And currently we went through the proposals back then and we, over time, a year and a half, have not really made any leeway on these proposals that actually change the material conditions for postdocs. Like the university has been, you know, bargaining in bad faith that we have multiple 
um, unfair um, labor practice lawsuits against from our public relations board from the employers. Um, and three of those have been, um, sorry, let me get those numbers right. Multiple of those have actually been successfully um, had complaints filed against the university. Some of the things that the university has done and particularly while we've been bargaining is one, not bringing the information to the table that we request, like denying our request for information. They have also refused to bring the people that can make the type of decisions that we need to the table. And they've also been making unilateral changes to things like um, bullying policies and other workplace issues without even being at the bargaining table. And uh, the last thing that they've been doing during this process is surveying um, members of our union outside of like the bargaining process. Like we, we don't know about it. <laughs> I mean, we did find out about it and then we filed the, um, the, the complaint. And so right now we're at a point where we've gotten a lot of things, you know, kind of like moved on in terms of things that aren't compensation in terms of our bargaining, um, like things that we won, such as bullying protections. That was something that we actually had to like have a big action for to actually get that on the table to move. So currently we won protections against bullying, um, which is kind of like pretty enormous because in academia, the university says we're against bullying and that they have all these resources for you, but the resources always end at we're right, you're wrong. And um, now we have something in our contracts, not just for the postdocs and academic researchers, but also for um, the other bargaining units to actually protect us um, in a process that like we could grieve it as, you know, union represented workers. Um, and so right now, the reason that we had to authorize the strike, especially for our group as postdocs and academic researchers, because they started bargaining kind of like maybe um, further along in that year with us, but they're kind of at the same place of like not getting the same type of responses. And um, we just want them to actually come to the table, bring the people that can make the decisions so that we can have, you know, affordable housing, fair wages to actually do the research that we do here. And I just want to say that we bring a lot of value to the university through grants in particular as postdocs. So we do most of the writing of research papers, conducting the experiments, um, people think that if people think that faculty sit there and, and run a wet lab and actually do the wet, you know the work of the wet labs, um, you know that would be an amazing faculty person. But they're really busy in terms of like having to write grants themselves. We do the bulk of the work in actually making the research happen. Um, we do a bulk of the training in terms of the the graduate students and the undergrads that are in the lab, and so we provide an enormous value to the university. But at the same time, while we provide these values, um, the university doesn't want to give us a fair living condition or affordable housing. And the last thing I'll say, and then I'll let um, Alex talk about the other units, um, is that, you know, we bring a ton of value to the university because of these grants. And for every $100 of that grant that is um, given to the university, the university charges things like the NIH, you know, um, you know, $58 in indirects. So this is a ghost money that we don't know where it goes. Our PIs don't get to have a say over. And that's money that usually goes to things like capital projects that could go back to keeping, you know, um, the postdocs actually living in uh, an okay living situation. Can we uh, just explain what capital projects are? Uh, so capital projects are things like, you know, um, planning out building buildings that they want and other things, things that aren't really like compensation based or employee based, you know, because the university like UC is the biggest landowner. And so they obviously we want more and more things that they can develop. Um, or lands that they can buy. Um, and that's kind of what they kind of 
focus many of these indirects on. And I really don't know the clear picture on indirects. And that's kind of the problem is that we don't know where all this money um, kind of goes. It's the if, if people obviously lots of our listeners aren't in San Diego, the scale of construction at UCSD is incredible. Like mm-hmm. I've been here for 15 years now, and I swear every time I go back, there's a new building. <laughs> like, it, it, and like in terms of st- student housing, like it, it's nearly all student housing I think that they've built. But yeah, yeah and if I can jump in about one of those, which relates yeah. a lot to why graduate students have become uh, more active on this campus. Um, three or four of those extraordinarily large buildings you're talking about were actually intended to be built as subsidized graduate student housing, where you would be, you know, you get on a wait list, you're guaranteed once you get off the wait list, you can live there for two years and pay below market rent. Mm -hmm. Um, that lasted for a little bit of time, uh, but the university, uh, just a couple of years ago or so, uh, almost doubled, um, the price for those units. Uh, they tried to hide it behind saying that their capacity increases, but um, what they're saying is for the same price as before, you can live with two people in a very small square footage studio apartment. Um, but really, that studio is now just double. Um, so that is one of the things, uh, certainly, that we are concerned about is that, yeah, money, a, lot, a significant portion of the university's budget does go into these capital improvement projects, which are nominally intended for student and uh, and postdoc benefit um, but which um, uh, tend to come back and, and and not be quite as helpful in the long run. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they're just doing real estate speculation and then uh, doing rent extraction from it, which... Yeah, and this is something they've done, like they did this, this a very, very similar thing in, what, like 2009? Uh, like, like again, like they built, what, I built a new building, it was affordable for a short period of time, and then it suddenly became completely unaffordable. Uh, and they, they've really consistently extracted rent from the people that they are underpaying. Yeah, and those buildings were actually, this this incident even got a lot of faculty on our side because those buildings were a major um, draw for how we were able to recruit new people to come in and do research mm-hmm. with us as we were to say, yeah, the cost of living here is really high. You're not going to get a huge stipend or salary, but we do have this subsidized housing. And People had actually already committed to do their PhD here in, in labs at the university. And then the rent increase came out that April or May. And people Jesus. said, well, no. And then they, a bunch of people decommitted from programs. So it was a, it was a significant issue here, but they have not uh, backed off of that. Yeah, and the problem with like the university being one of the biggest landlords is that when they increase the rents for these even grad housing, it affects everyone else. So like the uh, prices, like my current rent, I live maybe a mile away from campus. My rent was, you know, seventeen hundred, which was eating up most of my income anyway, and it went up to twenty five hundred. And you know, this is directly tied to like the university setting a higher market rate, um, which then allows them to hurt everyone else that lives, you know, not just in around UCSD, but also in San Diego generally. Yeah, one of the big things about um, that we're trying to get the university to understand, and one of the reasons I'm proud of the demands that we're making. Uh, in this uh, round of bargaining is is the effect we have on the local economy and of people who aren't even affiliated with the U- university uh, have their lives affected based on the rent and based on the cost of things because of the economic footprint that we have. And as Tyler mentioned, one of our demands is um, uh, some more subsidized transit passes. The university already subsidizes a significant amount of transit, but it's not enough and it's not enough to actually really make a difference in terms of emissions in our region. So we're trying to raise both our own working conditions as well as as make meaningful changes in the university's impact in the region. And 
In response to that, uh, the university released in part a uh, very funny statement the other day that accused us and used transit as an example, accused us of having a, quote, social justice agenda. So I wasn't <laughs> quite sure <laughs> if uh, the university or um, uh, Ron DeSantis wrote that particular press release, <laughs> but uh, it was it was quite funny. You know, OK, like the, the, the more I'm thinking about this, right, this is a public university. Why are they even charging rent? They own the land. Right? Mm. Wait, why are they even charging yeah. rent in the first place? Like what what is Oh my god. Like this well, is just this the is housing absurd. the housing example I brought up was funded through what they very proudly refer to as a public private partnership. Oh, so boy. that's where the money is going. Yeah. Oh, great. It's going to investors. Oh. And recently for the postdocs, their solution to our housing crisis was they obtained some um, b- building in downtown San Diego, which is, you know, 12 or more miles away from campus. And the building starts at like rents of $3,000 or more. But like I said, oh, or this it, building. Yeah, yeah, with the one with the creepy bed and the, um, the <laughs> closet that comes out and kills your cat. But <laughs> the what? <laughs> it has like a, a, a closet that folds out. Um, oh, good. Comes yeah. out the wall. Is that their extended downtown? Yeah, I've been trying to PRA a bunch of stuff about that building and they've been quite mm. reticent to hand it over, um, oddly. So, uh, Alex, is there any more context you wanted to add from your side about like, is, is about sort of what is driving people to, to ask for a strike authorization vote? Yeah, definitely. I mean, our concerns as graduate students are um, certainly very similar to a lot of the concerns uh, that postdoctoral students have, uh, except that we make even less money uh, than they do. So <laughs> certainly uh, uh, urgent on the compensation side. Uh, our units are demanding a minimum uh, uh, graduate student uh, stipend of $54,000 a year, um, whereas uh, none of us make more than 33 or 34 right now. And that's very Jesus. dependent on the program and very dependent yeah. on your uh, source of funding. So most make uh, quite less than that. Um, we also have a number of other issues that have come up and, and caused problems uh, for students that we want to be able to have a union in order to rectify. I mentioned that um, our Student Researchers United Union is actually new. We're bargaining for our first contract, and we think we're going to be able to get a lot of practical benefits out of that, not just um, you know in terms of a contract, but actually something where we can have some parity and and some for some 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 organization to come to bat for us when the university creates issues. For example, uh, the university has known this for a long time, but the uh, payroll system that manages graduate student stipends and fellowships and 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 stipend disbursements is a bit unreliable for reasons that they can't quite oh, explain. Oh boy, yeah. We, we so, had this at uh, when, when, so I, I wasn't I wasn't a grad student, but I was an undergrad when our U Chicago's grad students went on strike, and that was a big thing of like people. Like people would get paid and the university would sometimes they would they wouldn't get paid enough. They wouldn't get paid at all. There was another times where they they'd accidentally get overpaid and the university wouldn't tell them. And then they just take all the money out of their bank account. And yeah, yeah, it was yeah, but- a catastrophe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is, it, is, are you, yeah. is it similar things here? Very much so. Yeah. Uh, very I got much overpaid so. and then I got um, overpaid. Once. Yeah, there is uh, at least my personal story with this is. um uh Pretty much ever since, so I, I applied for and received an NIH uh, individual fellowship for uh, all the other nerds out there. I got it. It's an F31 uh, NIH fellowship. But essentially what that says is the NIH likes my research proposal and they are going to fund uh, a portion of the rest of my uh, PhD. So in a sense, I have offset the cost of my labor by bringing an extra few tens of thousands of dollars to the university. Um, however, 
the processing for that has not been smooth. And there are months where I simply have to remind them to pay me. And when that paycheck doesn't come through, uh, my uh, very hardworking program coordinator, it's not her fault, but she has been open support tickets. She has to go through 10 different levels of bureaucracy to find out where the holdup is. And so what that results in is um, people often at times not getting significant portions of their stipend until well into the beginning of the first or second week of the month. Um, I personally have been lucky enough to you know, build up some savings uh, living here, um, but many students, especially our first years coming right out of college, um, have not been able to do that. And a lot of times at the first of the month, we have people, you know, people will come to me and, and say, they just didn't, they, I don't know why my stipend check didn't work. I can't pay rent or I can't get groceries. Yeah. And these issues have been going on. This is have not been one-time things or sporadic things. These are things that have been continuously going on for years. And uh, yeah. what we're really hoping for is that with the creation of this uh, student researchers union, that we will be able to not just, you know, send polite emails and say, hi, can you pay me if you get a chance? Uh, we will actually have a literal international union that will be sending those emails and say, you know, you fix this or by the terms of the contract, we get X, Y, and Z damages. Um, and we're hoping that that leads to improvements in the system as a, as a whole, because it will get Hell more yeah. expensive. So Yay. that is certainly I, one of the reasons we formed uh, SRU in our, after a, uh, a brief vote to strike for recognition because the university uh, ignored the uh, Employee Relations oh. Board of California, oh, boy. Um, which resulted in some very spicy press releases from PERB, uh, which is great. <laughs> Um, yeah. But we did eventually get recognition, and and now hopefully in a couple in a month or so we'll have a contract. Yeah. To explain for people as well who aren't familiar, if you're teaching, right, you may not have been paid over the summer um, in in some positions. Like I know I wasn't in, in mine. So like a late payment in, in September or even waiting till October, like is you're already at the bottom of your savings. Uh, like uh, I, there were there were fall quarters that quarters at UCSD where like I lived in my car because I didn't didn't make it all the way through the summer on the savings I had you know so it it really is and I'm sure there are a lot of still like unhoused graduate students at UCSD because of the cost of living and the the wages are so divergent yeah hey Chris you you know what won't make you uh live in your car Oh God! There's no way uh, you can yeah. actually. <laughs> That's great. It's, it's going to be the Washington State Highway Patrol again. <laughs> the San Diego yeah. Police Department will let you live in your car. Todd Gloria. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, this is brought to you by landlords. Enjoy these adverts. And we're back. And so, what I wanted to talk about was some of the actions that have been taken by student organizations so far and also some of the repercussions that have come from those actions because again student organizing is a little different and i want people to understand that so maybe if it makes sense to start with this 2020 wildcat strike we can start there if you want to start further back then we can start further back too yeah, no, uh, 2020 is is probably about uh, the extent of my uh, how far my experience goes back. Um, but I can tell kind of the story of that a little bit. Yeah, um, there was a movement uh, that we refer to as COLA, which stands for Cost of Living Adjustment and convenient has a very convenient acronym, which resulted in people coming to protest with empty bottles of Coke on a stick. And that was a really common <laughs> sign. It's fantastic. Um, but that was a movement that started at University of California, Santa Cruz, one of the, uh, as, as for people who aren't familiar with UC, it is really actually many campuses uh, together in one system. And this particular uh, one started at our campus in Santa Cruz. Um, and it was what is called a wildcat strike, which is, if you're not familiar with unions, that is 
Um, um, at least in America, there are very uh, uh, careful rules that you have to follow of when exactly you are allowed to call a legally protected strike. And that's often dependent on your contract or the labor laws of your state. Um, but it is possible for workers to get together without the uh, explicit approval of their union and uh, take the uh, added risk that, that involves uh, to hold a labor stoppage. So um, I'm not sure of the exact number, but somewhere between 50 and 100 or 200 or so TAs, um, so teaching assistants at the Santa Cruz campus, uh, decided to withhold teaching and also final uh, exam and uh, semester or sorry, quarter uh, grades uh, for a quarter uh, in, I believe this would have been fall or uh, fall of 2019. Um, and they held um, they held da essentially daily pickets and protests um, at at their central entrance of their campus, and uh, this resulted in uh, quite an extreme response uh, from uh, Santa Cruz administration, uh, University of Santa Cruz administration. Uh, they called in the California Highway Patrol. Um, also, there's uh, well, I've asked uh, I'll send this to to uh, Chris and James put in the footnotes, but there is a Vice article where someone did a lot of public records requests and found out that the FBI was also involved, or at least FBI provided technology was involved. Um, there may have been sort of counterterrorism uh, units involved in the state uh, in interesting <laughs> ways, um, but essentially there was a highly militarized response to what was essentially a few uh, grad students not doing grades. Um, so this response, the images that came out of this, people getting arrested uh, for being in the street and such, um, started to actually provoke uh, sympathy actions across the rest of the campus. And there was really a campus-wide or a system-wide movement starting to build. And then March of 2020 happened. And almost all of us, our labs shut down, the campuses shut down. Uh, those of us who work from home could. Um, those of us who couldn't often had, you know, many other struggles to deal with and that kind of killed uh, the pandemic essentially killed that movement, but at the same time, um, you know, these uh, SR, uh, uh, UAW 2865 and UAW 5810 already existed. Uh, SRU was starting to get formed at this time. We actually managed to get card check recognition during the pandemic where no one could actually go to one central point and get cards. <laughs> so I'm quite proud of that. Hell yeah. So we sort of rebuilt yeah. off of kind of um, uh, sort of the ashes of that movement. And even though it was not um, and, and I personally support it, but even though it was not a, a, a university sort of, or excuse me, a, certainly not university supported, but <laughs> a union supported uh, uh, movement, um, I think it really helped to kind of um, uh, plant seeds for uh, graduate students and postdocs having some, you know, some degree of labor consciousness. When I was doing walkthroughs to get people signed up for the union, get people to vote on the strike, they would say, you know, they haven't obviously been keeping track of all the bargaining, but they say, oh, yeah, I remember. Is this like in Santa Cruz? I remember what they did. And and people would be and be ready, you know, to get involved. So um, uh, it was a deferred kind of uh, benefit given the, the uh, pandemic. But I, I think it helped uh, get uh, a lot of the energy that we have today. Yeah. That's great to see, actually, because I know we really struggled with sort of political consciousness on the on the among the grad students uh, in my time at UCSD. Um, yeah, I guess it makes sense. Like, the, the, I remember, like, I remember talking to some people who were sort of involved with it and like watching the videos coming out of it. Like, that was, I think, like probably the most intense military response I've ever. I, I think I've ever seen to a strike in the U.S. It was wild. Like, I, yeah. The university oh chancellor, uh, chancellor of Santa Cruz at that time, uh, bragged, or I, I don't know if it was bragged or complained, that they were spending three hundred thousand dollars a day Jesus on that response. Christ. Yeah, they went yeah. incredibly hard. And I want to kind of get into why 
like the universities really, really strong, strongly dislike strikes, and <laughs> look, partly because they rely heavily on underpaid graduate student labor, right, and are increasingly relying heavily on underpaid adjunct labor as well uh, to take the place of these expensive tenure track positions. So, can we talk about a little bit about like? What it means to strike as a grad student, because it's not the same uh, to strike as a grad student as it is to strike if you work on a production line, right? Like it, it really can make a serious impact on your whole career and it can make it a serious impact on your relationship, uh, perhaps with your with your supervisor or advisor or mentor. And so can you, can you, well, one of you or both of you explain a little bit about the repercussions that come from striking as a graduate student? Yeah, I'm happy to share my thoughts and then, and then, um, and Tyler, you can maybe talk about what the what postdocs are thinking. Um, from the uh, TA perspective, I think I, I, I don't want to. I'm not currently. I'm currently a student researcher, so I'm not currently teaching. I think in that sense, it makes it, there's a little more cut and dry. It's you're not going to teach your discussion section. You're not going to grade your exams. Those are very concrete things you can do that are sort of separate from your research work. Uh, for those of us paid to do research, it's a little bit. Um, harder to figure out where exactly your sometimes your labor for the university is and and where your um uh, uh kind of research and 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 not wanting to sort of harm yourself like i know people who have planned their advancements to candidacy during this time and i think they're still going through with that because we consider well that's more academic that's more your personal uh a kind of progress okay. um in life and and so those sort of things will continue um uh but but i think it's uh one of the things um that that sort of um uh important is is um sort of your day-to-day work in the lab um and not necessarily just on your research project but on just sort of maintaining things answering questions communicating with collaborators sharing your results with people helping uh undergraduates in the lab helping um you know prepare figures or prepare text for your advisor to submit grants and all these other things that are not necessarily like i am doing this particular you know thing for my degree um, so I know a lot of people are worried about, especially because in, in the life sciences, we have situations where we have experiments that go on for months and they cost tens of thousands of dollars to run. And if you miss a time point on that, you're throwing months of your life and out the window and that hurts yourself really more than the university. So yeah. it's been, a, I, I think, especially because organizing grad student researchers is something new, at least in America. Um, I think it's something that in the coming years will be kind of considered more and people will kind of, I think I hope what I hope is people learn from our, whatever our experience happens to be next week when we walk out and start to kind of calibrate. What does it look like? What is, what is an effective work stoppage for a researcher look like? Um, and I think people are, are, we've had a lot of discussions we've had program meetings. So a bunch of students from my program got together and talked about this. Um, and I think it might end up looking different for different people, but really what we're trying to communicate is, is don't do something that's going to, um, you know, damage yourself. Um, and, but, but, but do what you can to disrupt normal operations, show up at the picket, um, uh, and, and make sure you, you communicate, you know, to everyone and around you why you're leaving and, 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 you know, cause as much disruption as you can. Uh, that's kind of what our, our thinking is at the moment. Yeah. Anything else you want to add, Tyler? Yeah, so I wanted to add that. Um, so for this one, this strike, I mean, the reason that we're doing it is because they're not coming to the table in good faith. So I was going to correct my number. So we had 27 um, complaints that we filed with the California Public Employment Relations Board, and six of those 
were um, actually official complaints to the University of California. And so this strike is a little different because it's, you know, it's um, interesting to have to explain to other people why this is so important, um, especially in such a short time frame. And so for postdocs, like on a day-to-day basis, we do so much research that every day matters and our employment schedules aren't very long. So I say that postdocs are generally in there for five years, but PIs don't want to keep a postdoc for a year um, or two or longer. Um, especially like I've noticed a pattern here in academia in general that postdocs, it's some people prefer to keep them a year and two years because by the time you ask for pay raises or the time you ask for career development and to get to your next stage, you're not worth it to them anymore and they change you out. So when I come in as a postdoc, each position I've come in, every day mattered. And setting up my research experiments, setting up my papers, setting up what I was going to do for the job search, because you don't have that much time. It takes, you know, six to eight months to get get even an initial interview for a faculty job. Um, And that's a rare thing that you would get anyway. I think about 2% of postdocs become faculty at this point. And so we're giving up a lot of, yeah, it's really bleak. And so like right now, I think the fact that we authorized a strike based on the um, bad faith bargaining, we did that because like things are so important, but we know what we're going to lose. So if you have to strike for weeks, that is lost experiments. That's lost time to do our publications be competitive for this competitive job field. Um, and also we're going to let down a lot of people because we're kind of anchors in our lab for uh, the undergraduates and the under uh, and the graduate students and also the, the techs in our lab. And so if we're gone, the lab just kind of dies, especially if the grad students walk out too. Um, but I think we know that the value that I would get personally for my career, um, it isn't worth it if I see not only myself suffering each year, not being able to make my rent, and able to feed myself, like eating one meal a day is um, not really great. <laughs> and being able to afford one um, wardrobe this entire two years of employment is not great either. Um, and I'm a postdoc and I see the graduate students who I was a graduate student two years ago. There's not a real border there. Um, and seeing them suffer, you know, most of us postdocs don't want to see anyone else have to go through that. So it's worth the lost time. And it's kind of incalculable, but I could say what we would lose because grants are um, so up in the air, but, you know, we're talking millions of dollars for a grant cycle being lost if a postdoc can't, you know, submit the application. We're talking, you know, uh, what Alex said, how expensive this equipment experiments are in these big labs um, in biology and engineering. So it's really immeasurable. And I think it's on the UC to come to the table in good faith and say, hey, let's not do this. Let's not ruin their research and their teaching um, because that's the thing that we're here to support. Um, and I just want to say that overall, we're only less than 1% of UC's total budget. So what is it to give us a fair wage and a good housing so we can continue to not um, to continue, continue to do our research and teaching and not have to go on strike and lose all of this? Yeah, yeah I think it's very fair. Uh, you know what else uh, only pays out 1% of their income to their employees? <laughs> is it uh, the Washington State Highway Patrol? No, it's not. They pay... No, they, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's disappointing, isn't it? And yeah, we're we're back. Yeah, so I think you've done a really excellent job of explaining uh, sort of what's at stake and what uh, people can stand to lose. I know it can be very confusing. Also, as a teacher, I will add, like, 
what do you do when you're you're not supposed to communicate, right? Like, so like, what what about when your students email you? That can be very difficult, or uh, especially if it comes towards the time when you're writing application letters or you're writing letters of support for your your BA students who want to go into an MA or PhD program. Like, you don't want like if many of us teach uh, as much out of vocation as for the thirty odd grand a year we can make in a place where the cost of living is insane, and. So like we want to help those people because we care about our students and and so it can be very hard for us to uh, to go on strike. I will say that we're very fortunate in the community college district here which is a different system for people who aren't aware. Um it's a entirely different university system. Uh we have a very strong union and as a result our adjunct faculty here are I believe some of the best paid in the country. And they teach at a community college sometimes and that's exclusively thanks to a strong union and faculty being willing to back up that union. So like it, it does work, which is nice to see. But let's talk about some of the actions that have been taken already. I understand it, uh, some, some folks occupied like a very busy intersection uh, earlier this year in the spring, right? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, that was um, the uh, action that we had um, um, back in April um, mm-hmm. to uh, sort of raise... Um, awareness of the you know issues with bargaining and and some of the other things that were going on at that time, um, and I uh, was really impressed with uh, how well it went actually um, in terms of uh, the number of students who came out, number who were actually willing to participate in that. But yeah, we got a several hundred people all together marched down to um, the intersection for our San Diego listeners. That's uh, via La Jolla and La Jolla Village Drive. Just so you can get a picture of how important of an intersection this was. Those of you who know it. Um, and did not allow any cars to get at intersection for an entire rush hour, uh, which uh, was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, and Locked off for Whole Foods, it's a real. We did, real, yeah. That was real, the Whole Foods up there. Real yeah, statement. it took. Uh, uh, a, I hope that um, San Diego PD build UCSD for that because they had about fifty mm-hmm. officers controlling traffic, two helicopters. Um, it was fighter response. I talked to an undercover cop on the bridge over the highway. They had. <laughs> He was upset that he was missing something, some baseball game or something. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Shouldn't have been a cop. Could have, yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, could have just left. Could have had a real job. He could have just left. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm actually um, staring at that intersection right now. And if I could tell you how busy it is, like, I we were terrified of what, like, safety was our yeah. most important thing. And I think we did a good job making sure everyone was safe. But, like, it's busy. It's, it is a heart line over here in La Jolla. Yeah. My first day in America, I was walking with another grad student to try and find some food. And uh, we tried to cross that road, got stuck in the middle, got a jaywalking ticket. And uh, <laughs> really, oh, no. <laughs> I knew I'd made a great choice in coming to California at that time. Yeah, uh, that is that road takes like if you want to cross all three ways, because it's one of our one of our stupid California roads, where you can only cross an intersection on three sides. So if you want to go all the way around, that's going to be like five, six, seven minutes waiting at crosswalks it's it's oh my god but, but that's that's for maybe a different podcast about our transportation yeah. nightmares <laughs> here in san diego yeah um Don't i think there's one other action that we had that i would really want to highlight and 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 this was about you know related to a postdoc so maybe maybe tyler can kind of fill in the details um uh about the um the action we had for um for the uh that postdoc screens i can't i can't i'm blanking on her name but tyler were you we maybe oh, be able to talk about there's been so many postdocs in actions. So this is a really horrible case where someone who, you know, had brought up that there was data uh, ethics issues in their lab, mm-hmm. which obviously as any postdoc or graduate student, telling your boss that they're doing something wrong never goes yeah. well. 
Um, but this person was bringing up this issue. This person also was, um, was pregnant. And um, at that point, the person, once they found out that this person was pregnant, um, had decided, oh, well, you need to leave by the end of the year, um, which would make the make it to where the person would get deported because this was an international scholar um, in their third trimester, um, you know, in in January. And so and it was a no horrible case. And income or insurance yeah. during her third trimester. Yeah. And so, Alex, if, if you have a good memory of the action, I'll let you speak about it because it was pretty awesome. Yeah, it was pretty great. We got a ton of people to rally uh, in the um, in the health sciences area of campus. Mm-hmm. Um, people uh, essentially set up little mini pickets of uh, the relevant buildings, um, basically not blocking the entrance, but making sure everyone who went in knew exactly, you know, why we were there and what the issue was. And they were eventually uh, towards the end of the day. I was I wasn't there at that point, but they were able to actually get up to um, uh, where um the chair of her department's office and lab were um and i i there was nothing threatening that went on but i do believe the cops were called nonetheless um and and my understanding was uh this is just rumor but he told someone that he really needed them to leave because he had to get to the bathroom and didn't want to talk to the students so that was funny uh part of the story um but they did get him on video because they eventually were able to talk to the chair of the department and got him on video saying, I think this person deserves an extension of their contract. And a day or two later, uh, UCSD did actually award uh, this postdoc um, an extension of her contract. But yeah, that this is an incident that, you know, never would have seen the light of day um, unless this had been raised, uh, unless we hadn't already had this kind of activist kind of consciousness going on because of the ongoing right. bargaining and the union was able to, postdoc union was able to win kind of, I think, out of a really terrible situation, I think salvage probably one of the best outcome. Uh, mm-hmm. She'll be able to have her child here um, and look for new jobs uh, in the meantime to, um, you know, whatever her family wants to do, extend the visa or, or go back uh, to their uh, um, original uh, country. But they essentially they have security, uh, some measure of security now, um, which uh, wouldn't have happened without uh, raising a, a mm-hmm. quite a disruption over it. And I also want to say that this was a postdoc and the grad students came out to protect a postdoc. So all these invisible lines that the university draws, like obviously there were postdocs there too, but if you think about the number of graduate students, like they are the immune system that has come out and saved a bunch of postdocs through these actions. There was another action with someone that was um, being let go within four months of their employment um, in an inappropriate way. This person was kind of using their lab as that research mill I talked about only really hired women postdocs and really did not treat them well, um, despite doing research in women's health. (laughs) And um, the grad students also came out for that and we got to uh, save that person from getting immediately fired and they're better off now. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's great. I think that solidarity is super important. And yeah, it's the only thing that stops university from just rampantly exploiting everyone apart from like 150 people at the very top. Yeah. Actually, on that note, can I ask, have y'all been working with, like, I guess, what's the tactical name for them? Like, uh, the, the, like, the, the, like, the, the, the other non-student unions on campus? Oh, it's like AFT. Employee um, unions. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, they um, unfortunately most of the unions don't have sympathy strike or um, yeah. uh, yeah. Uh, those sorts of things in their contract. If if they they cannot do an official strike if they are under contract, but yeah, they've definitely been helping in terms of kind of raising consciousness and awareness. I know 
the ones that have the ability to, um, you know, maybe cancel their classes or use class time to teach about the strike or, you know, do things like that um, have been, um, uh, they're, they're, they're planning to do that. Um, what's nice as well is I, this isn't really a union, but there's kind of a non-university affiliated sort of group of faculty uh, who, you know, advocate for, for, for changes across the entire uh, campus. And they're organizing a very large petition and letter writing campaign from faculty members supporting um, our action, which I think is is really critical because um, yeah. the university won't yeah. listen to us, but they <laughs> may listen to uh, if you get to a critical mass of, of professors uh, supporting what we're doing. Um, so there's been, uh, you know, not universal, certainly, but but there's been a great deal of solidarity, even coming from uh, some of the people who who the university, I think, has relied on to be more on their side, <laughs> which is uh, yeah. the, the professors. Uh, so it's, yeah. It's been, it's, yeah. And if like the faculty association, I think that's pretty awesome because you could imagine that UC doesn't want them to ever unionize, <laughs> but um, yeah. they obviously see the leaky pipeline where grad students are, you know, either not staying in their programs or postdocs aren't coming. And you just, you know, what you happen to have at the end of that is people that have generational wealth um, at the end of it who happen to stay in these programs. And I think that's what really motivated the faculty to come out and say something because like UC says, oh, we support equity and diversity, but and they have seen constantly the university not do anything materially to change that. Yeah, yeah, it's good. It's good to see the faculty showing up. Um, and again, that's this sort of that's that's how we fix these things, right? Is by sticking together with solidarity with organizing. So maybe to finish up, if we talk about what next week's going to look like, or what next week might look like, I guess. Or I guess it'll it'll be this week by the time this comes out. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, what can people look for on the on the timeline from UCSD? Uh, from the university or from from uh, from, the from the from the strike? Yeah, from the strike. Yeah. Like well, we'll have a number of uh, pickets throughout campus, mm -hmm. um, mostly kind of trying to keep them geographically oriented. So everyone from the surrounding buildings just go to you know one one specific spot. Yeah. We've we're doing you know signups, organizing strike pay, all of those sorts of typical things uh, been going on this week. Um, and the walkout begins November 14th, uh, for across, you know, not just UCSD, but all the campuses. So that's, uh, our total, um, um, bargaining unit membership across the three unions is 48,000 people of those 75% voted on our strike off vote, 98% voted yes. So we're expecting a pretty significant turnout of that entire membership, uh, to be on the picket line. Um, so that will, uh, there will be, um, you know, those TAs who are walking out will be the, that'll be the first disruption university feels before they feel the research disruption. They will very clearly see the teaching disruption and exams not taking place, grades not being entered, uh, sections not being taught, uh, across every single campus. And, um, and that will, uh, certainly be, um, uh, something that they will, um, have to, uh, deal with and, and hopefully the, the size of the disruption in the first few days will convince them uh, to uh, come to the bargaining table in a, uh, a reasonable way. Um, and if not, we are prepared uh, to continue until they do. Nice. And the other interesting part about what's going to happen next week is that this is um, a picket line that is going to be not just including, you know, uh, researchers and instructors, but also people that support us. So there's a big conference downtown for a lot of neuroscientists. And um, it's it's called SFN. I can't remember what that stands for. Um, but a lot of them are actually coming to the picket line to support yeah. us. Um, <laughs> Amazing. You know, oh, that's awesome. I didn't know about that. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. We, 
yeah, it's, I think that's pretty exciting. I didn't know that it was in San Diego, but um, they're going to be here and also, you know, vouch for us. Um, Cause UC does like, we are the leading research group and we contribute to a lot of the research that are at these meetings anyway. Um, there's also going to be, it's a child friendly picket line. And for people with access needs, we're going to have, um, you know, virtual picketing and you'll see what that looks like. Um, it's still being developed, but I think that's pretty exciting as oh, someone, yeah. you know, with a disability myself, it's exciting that other people can contribute to that. Yeah, it's very cool of you guys to do that. It's very cool. All right. How can people help? How can people support you? How can people find you on the Internet? Yeah, so I think if you want to keep up with the strike news, there's three Twitter accounts, the SRU UAW, UAW5810, and UAW2865. I think they kind of share a lot of the same content sometimes because we're all kind of doing this together, but that's a good place to keep track of the news. I know there is a link to, um, there's a they've set up a hardship uh, strike fund. Um, I don't have that link off the top of my head. Yeah, we can put it. Uh, but we'll, we, can, you, we can put that in the notes, I yeah. guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. send to us later. And if yeah, you go to fairucnow.org. It'll have all the information about what's happening, but also those type of links too. Um, so if you want some context, okay. so it's a pretty good website. Yeah. And then how about you two personally? Would you like to share your personal Twitters or do you just want to stick with the uh, the organizational ones? Um, I would love to. I promise I'm not that fun, but uh, mine is <laughs> Tyler Bell PhD. That's my tag. Yeah. And I'm uh, Alex T. Wenzel on Twitter. I, uh, okay. once this is over, I'll probably go back to tweeting entirely about my work and pictures of buses. Uh, um, I you love like your Twitter, students, Alex. <laughs> yeah. Alex, Alex is a high value follower. Oh, you thank you. It. You're too yeah. Alex gives yeah. live updates about transit and I, it's mm -hmm. exciting. You see a train. It's all good. <laughs> Alex, Alex pretty like hits that like five-year-old child. We have pretty Dem electric buses in San Diego now. What can I say? Yeah. Yeah. No. I, all right, well, thank you so much for your time, both of you. I really appreciate it. Best of luck next week. Maybe I'll come up and bring you, I don't know, some soup or like like an oil can that we can start firing on campus or something. <laughs> I would love, I love it. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I have one here. Let's do it. I'm, I'm down. All right. Yeah, best of luck. And uh, we'll, we'll look forward to hearing what happens. Thank yeah. you so yeah. much for, thanks so much for talking to us. Hello, podcast fans. Uh, I know you got to the end of the episode and you were thinking, not enough James, not enough strikes, uh, not enough UCSD. So lucky you, I've been up to San UC San Diego today uh, and I've recorded uh, with Tyler and Alex uh, at the strike and we got some, some audio of the strike going on as well. Uh, it, just, it was really amazing, really incredible to see that many people out. Never thought I'd see that at UCSD. So without further ado, here's my interview with them. All right. So I'm here with Tyler and Alex again, uh, this time with more background noise. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're at the strike now. Uh, how many people are here, roughly? Oh, man, somewhere probably around at least a couple thousand, right, right now? Yeah. Definitely a couple thousand people out here. It's really impressive. Uh, like I, I went to UCSD, if you haven't picked that up yet, and like we did not get this many people even when like uh, people started hanging nooses around campus. I don't, I don't think our project's <laughs> got this big. Uh, <laughs> So this is, yeah, this is genuinely very impressive. And how have things gone so far? What's been, what's been happening? Um, I think things have gone uh, really well so far. This is day two uh, as we're recording this uh, that we've been on strike. Um, there has been some progress at the bargaining table that I've heard, um, but we do know that uh, UC is going to try to drag this out. They think that they can outlast our momentum, but uh, so far as you can really hear from the noise behind us and see all the different, you know, uh, thousands of people converging from all the picket locations across campus that they've been at since eight in the morning. I think our energy is going strong. What do you think, Tyler? Yeah, so I think the energy is really strong here today. 
uh, the UC did not expect us to come on day two, uh, which we know because at bargaining they canceled our meetings for today because um, they didn't expect us to show up. But somehow, magically, a meeting emerged around two o'clock today, and it may be due to the fact that two thousand people are out here pretty pissed uh, and want a fair contract. But yeah, I think the momentum is pretty high. We actually did more disruption today, going directly talking to the deans and the faculty and screaming in their offices as they sat really comfy. But I was gonna say, yeah, first floor seminars didn't go well today. I'll put it that way. Nice. All right. Um, there was something that I know both of you have posted about, like intimidation and unfair labor practices. Are you comfortable talking about that, even in big terms? Yeah, I can talk in generalities. Um, there's, uh, uh, well, the labor law that governs us is 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 a little bit complicated because uh, some of us also receive uh, course credit for the work that we do that is protected under activity that protects our strike activity, which is a little bit of an anti-labor practice in and of itself. There's no reason I have to sign up for 12 credits of just existing doing work. That doesn't make any particular sense, but it's the way the university run things. So um, there has been some emails that are sent out that are, are of questionable legal correctness as to whether um, we can be hurt in terms of our academic standing for participating on the strike. That is definitely not true. Um, is if we are, if the is uh, activity that's governed under the uh, what our union is representing us for. Um, so we know we've had some issues with that. Tyler, I guess you could talk about maybe some other examples that have come out. So on the postdoc side, right now the university has released like an FAQ of sorts in an email where it says, oh, well, you have to tell the NIH that your, your postdocs aren't doing research and that their funding needs to get pulled. But that's kind of a joke. There's no like reporting mechanism for that. <laughs> it's more like a stipend for a living. Um, so we're telling people just to stay strong and uh, people see kind of past like the threats that they're making and a lot of faculty see through it too. Is that okay? Huh? Yeah, we've just intercepted you when you're going somewhere else. That's right, I'm here. Yeah. Would you like to introduce yourself? Alright, so I'm Vidya, I'm a postdoc. Um, I'm pretty new in UCSD. I joined in April and I came here having already done another postdoc and a PhD in Europe. I joined the union almost instantly when I came here since I've, I was basically horrified, for lack of a better way to put it. So I studied in the EU for 10 years, and my experience of academia is what I experienced there, which was decent working conditions, being able to save money, not having to spend 50% of your salary on rent. So when I came here and experienced postdoc life, I, I couldn't believe it. So I, I believe I met Tyler when I came here for the first time, and we did this orientation. That was awesome. And also horrifying at the same time, sorry. It was awesome to meet you because I realized it was then that I learned how a labor union worked. My knowledge of labor unions was minimal up until the point that I moved here. So minimal that I didn't even know what labor unions in the EU functioned like until I came here and realized, oh my God, we are actually lucky to have a union that supports postdocs. And this is not the case in a lot of places in the US. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, so how has the strike action gone so far from um, your perspective? It's been crazy. Um, we've been planning this for so long. It's a bit surreal to be part of it. I think it's been going great. It's been very energizing. And it's been intense. Yeah, it's hard, right? None of us really want to be out here and strike. And the fact that so many people are putting work on hold just speaks to the intensity and seriousness of the problem and what we're striking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's very true. It's really impressive how many people here I can't overemphasize that. Yeah. Sometime. Yeah, very impressive. So what's the outlook? Do you guys know how the bargaining has gone and what 
we can expect from here? Well, what we would like would be for the UC to meet us at the bargaining table and give us a fair contract. But um, repeating that ad infinitum, while we withhold labor is, is the plan thus far. But what's actually been happening is um, the UC just hasn't been <laughs> paying fair, as you know. Yeah, it's, it's, been, it's been infuriating for me. It makes me very angry. <laughs> it's very surreal, especially I think if you're used to a sort of more uh, sane labor context, to see them just like gaslighting and lying and doing um, what on the face of it is illegal stuff. It's disrespectful is what I feel. <laughs> yeah. And maybe, maybe illustrates sort of what they see post-oxygrad groups as in, in economic terms. Yeah, as a, a workforce whose rights are not to be valued to do a bulk of the work, it's, it's very disrespectful. Yeah, no, I think it, it certainly speaks to, uh, like I said earlier, uh, they're, they're trying to outlast us and they think that we will reach a certain point where we, we no longer feel like we can avoid our work, that we can stay out here. And I think you would think that if that's their strategy, they would realize that we are in a point of desperation. We are in a point of precarity um, where we really need wages and compensation and, and, and workplace protections that meet the current economic situation that we live in, because right now, that's not what we have. And currently at the bargaining table, they're kind of putting a lot of our labor reps into like uh, something that looks like, like jaw, like jigsaw, like type trap rooms, uh, where they have only fluorescent lighting and no windows, and then them not knowing whether or not they're going to have to get a flight back because they're not going to meet with them that day. Um, them saying that they haven't reserved rooms, even though that you know they have so much power. Who's, who's taking up a room from them? Um, to meet with them and actually come up with some proposals. I got, I got an update that admin wasn't bargaining because they couldn't reserve a room? What does that mean? There's 48,000 people on strike. The entire system isn't working. What do you mean? It's your rooms also. <laughs> you own the rooms. I'm, I was, I, that, that was a fascinating update. I'm sorry. I just had to mention something about that. So that's just all we have to know right now is that they keep canceling meetings, adding meetings. They're kind of just waiting us out to see how long we're actually be on strike and whether or not... Uh, we actually care about our contracts, which I think you being here today, you see how many people are out. No one's going to leave this picket line throughout the week. So, yeah. Yeah, I, th I think that's basically it. People aren't going to leave the picket line. And the energy is awesome because people are fed up. People are fed up. People are fed up of being poor and homeless. And this is not why we come to grad school, right? I mean, I was very fortunate to have a good grad school experience. And that's why I'm still in academia. But a majority of the people who come to the university, spending savings. I know people with student loans back from India who are here to do a master's and are TAing, doing research, killing themselves because they had a dream. They literally moved across the world to come here following a dream and are ending up being broke and that's that's heartbreaking from a university as big as this nobody deserves to be treated this way and i think everybody here is feeling it if you go to fairucnow.org there's a link to a strike fund right now a hardship fund and people can donate to that any amount they want to and there's also we're taking donations to actually feed people out here um, so if people have questions about that they can just email the links at that website um yeah yeah. Can people show up to the picket to help too? Like, would you like people to? People are very, very welcome to show up to the picket line to come help. All help is appreciated. You want to join us, you want to chant, you want to bring supplies, we'll be there. This is across all 10 UC campuses. If you're near a picket line, if you want to show support and solidarity, come join us. Yeah, the virtual picketing is still happening. And what they've been actually doing is making sure people get here and know where to go since the uh, picketing is so transient. Like, we're literally moving building to building as it's needed, and they're doing the calls for us and directing us. So 
which is a wild thing. But also the other thing is just people retweeting everything that we post, making sure that no one can silence us because that's what you see once. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks for giving us this platform. Uh, the awareness is really critical to make sure that you see can't ignore us. So thank you so much for coming. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but, like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. It's the podcast. It's It Could Happen Here. It is about something that could happen here, very specifically. Um, yeah, I'm I'm Christopher Wong. I'm, I'm here with James Stout and Garrison Davis. Hello. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. We all joined the Zoom call. That that did happen here. And it that's did. the show, everybody. All right. Okay, <laughs> so that's the thing that, that did happen here. And now we're going to talk about something that could happen here. And okay. that specific thing is uh, a, a call by two Harvard academics to hire 500,000 more cops. Nope. So, okay. Uh, the, the, like, uh, I, don't, I don't know when this is going to go up. But sometime in the past there, there was a piece that went viral by a civil rights lawyer and anti-prison activist turned media critic alec caricatonis about a pair of harvard academics yeah who, who wrote this article calling for five hundred thousand more cops and this is okay like 
the fact that we have academics writing position papers basically that are calling for 500,000 more cops is terrifying in and of itself. But, yeah, but but crime is 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 at a record high. Garrison, no, you oh, are about not? to see oh, shit. Oh, okay. You, you are about to see you're about to see and hear shit that is going to make your fucking ears bleed because <laughs> it's not shit like okay, normally you, th- these are Harvard academics, right? So you're assuming these are like right-wing Natset ghouls, right? Or like the equivalent mm-hmm. in 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 the sort of like Yeah. You know, these are not. This was written yeah. by a socialist. And when I say a socialist, right? Like I, I don't mean a sort of like one of the sort of like terminally online desperate cranks trying to hold together like a Maoist microsect. I'm talking about people who are incredibly well connected inside the mainstream socialist left. So the, the authors of this call for 500,000 more cops are Christopher Lewis, who is a Harvard law professor who makes me embarrassed to have my own name. And <laughs> more interestingly, Harvard sociology professor Adener Usami. So who is Adener Usami? Um, he is on the board. He's on the editorial board of Catalyst, which is a a Marxist. Ma- I, 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 okay, do, do have you do either of you two know what Catalyst is? Yeah. I'm, Besides the sequel to the Mirror's Edge original game, no, I don't. Yeah. Okay. So they're they're, they're a, a Marxist magazine. They're supposed to be a more a more sort of theoretical Marxist like yeah. magazine founded by a guy named Vivek Chibber, who's a pretty influential sort of like soakdem Marxist who could be found. Literally in any de- any of the last like five decades, you can find him yelling about the cultural turn in academia and calling for a return <laughs> to political economy. <laughs> the cultural turn. Yeah. He's oh, been is, that is that a quote? Yes. Yes. Okay. Oh he's yeah, been, that is, that he's is been quote. yelling that about is... this for decades. Longer. I think he's been yelling about this for longer than I've been alive. Oh God. Like that's how long this has been yeah, going it, on. It, people have definitely been like fetching about the cultural turn for longer than any of us have been alive. Yeah. Uh, and, and and they've been wrong for that entire time. Yeah. And oh okay, Ch- Chibber's like one of the guys who trained Usami in the first place. Now, Catalyst's other major founder um is much more famous. And that's someone you probably have heard of, uh, who is one Boshkar Sankara who is the current president of the nation and also the founder of Jacobin, where, and this is where it gets fun, Usami, also on the editorial board of Jacobin. <laughs> this is the guy caring for 500,000 more cops, right? This isn't coming from the usual sort of like rabid reactionaries. This is coming from people who have serious credentials in the mainstream socialist left. And, okay, so, all right, I want to talk about what's actually in the paper and the first thing I need everyone to understand about this from the get-go is that this is maybe the worst paper I've ever read. Like, <laughs> if if I had tried to turn this paper in to my, like, freshman, under, like, into, into, like, my, my an undergrad lit class, I would have failed. Like, when, when, when I was in my freshman year in college, I had to read biblical analysis written by a freshman Ted Cruz supporter who was arguing that there was a problem in the Bible where there was no way for God to talk to people. This is worse than that. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the Quran. How is <laughs> like how is how how is it worse, Chris? Okay, so let, let let's let's just start off right. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with a, a, a random part in the middle so you understand how just mind-numbingly atrocious this is. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. This is an article called, and and I, I'm not kidding about the title of this. Yeah. Quote: <laughs> The injustice of under policing in America. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, so mm-hmm. <laughs> we're starting off great. This. We're starting off great. <laughs> yeah. 
both of them wrote this article. So, but like, actually, yeah. So, 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 be- before we get into the actual main argument, I'm just going to read this quote, which is. Uh, All right, let's hear it. Even if our answers prove unsound, we hope that the combination of empirical social science and analytic moral and political philosophy we can oh God. we contribute can help eliminate what alternative answers to those questions might have to look like to be sound. Which, first off, terrible the writing. science of Marxist-Leninism. <laughs> this is, I, I would prefer the immortal <laughs> science of Marxist-Leninism. This is awful. Like, send this writing terrible. Send it back to an editor. Give them a decade. They'll come back with it. Second off, I literally cannot imagine two disciplines I would, like, rather less apply to the problem of mass incarceration than those like th- these authors yeah. have dared ask the question: What if we combined the bone-rattling stupidity of analytic philosophy with a sociologist's complete inability to do statistics? And the answer <laughs> is this. And, and when I when I say complete inability to do statistics, right? I I, I need people to understand how bad this article is, right? Like I I I, I like I, I like viscerally need you to understand. So okay, help here us. here help is here here is a quote. Here, here is another section of this article. But while firearm availability no doubt has some impact on the level of violence, we think the effect is likely to be small. A large effect would be difficult to square with other patterns across place, persons, and time. Consider, for example, that while the United States has 10 times as many guns as El Salvador, the homicide rate there is roughly 10 times higher than it is here. Now, stats knowers, think for a second about what they just compared, right? The United States has 10 times as many guns. The homicide rate in El Salvador is 10 times higher, right? Famous think about countries this for a with second. a similar population. Yeah, yeah. Think about, okay, what, what does the U.S. have more of than El Salvador? Guns. Um, that's it. That's guns. The, that's the only, that's no, the no, thing. we have more guns, but we also have 50 times the population. The Not U.S. Relevant. has 331 million people. El Salvador <laughs> is 6.5 million people, which means... Again, if if you're looking at this in uh, terms of guns per capita, right? Yeah. Uh, El Salvador's guns per capita is actually five times higher than ours. Oh wow, that's quite impressive. Yeah, and, from and, a like, financial perspective, because we have a lot yeah, of guns. Yeah, right. And, and you know, okay. Again, the, you, the, the, if 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 you're if you're going to do basic statistics, right? You would think that these professors at Harvard University would know the difference between a rate of gun ownership and the pure ownership of guns? They do not. They do not. Do they not, or have they decided that they're going to pretend they don't? I don't, I, I, okay, here's the thing. Going into this, right, I assume this was just sort of pure hack shit, and I think a lot of it is. I think they also are genuinely this dumb. Like, I, genuinely, I, 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 it's, it's really incredible. Like, I I mean, again, like, the, the thing... Like, like, the thing they've actually demonstrated with their own numbers is precisely the opposite of what they're arguing. The thing they've demonstrated yeah. with the numbers they have given us is that there is a correlation between gun ownership rates and the homicide <laughs> rate, right? Like, and they're trying yeah. to, they're, this entire section is about proving that they're, that they, that the number of guns doesn't, and like, this, this isn't even, like, this isn't me, like, like, I don't, like, this is not, like, me yelling about gun control or whatever. Like, this is just to get you to understand the level of statistics these people are on. And also, I should point this out. I tracked down their citation because I, I wanted to make sure I didn't, I wasn't misunderstanding their argument, right? So I tracked down their citation on these numbers, and I went to the paper they cited. And the thing they cited does not have gun, uh, gun ownership numbers for El Salvador, so I have no idea where they're getting any of these numbers. They've apparently, they quite possibly have pulled this out of their ass completely. Uh, 
because yeah. the, uh, and apparently apparently nobody checked if their citations actually contain the things that they're supposed yeah. to. Yeah, this is what I wanted to talk about. There is a thing that happens when you get tenure or you become a professor at a very established university, and that thing is you just say shit and people trust you. Like, we've seen this time and again in the academy, right? That, like, peer review is not serving its function because, like, the status hierarchy of people in academia is more important to both the peer reviewers and the people doing the writing than the actual process of peer review. Yeah. At, like, I don't know, their citations are... Uh, this is an interesting... Uh, this is... I don't know. They, they, I, they, they've, like, made the capital letters larger. They use it's, a it's small arms survey, I guess, for that. I'm just but the thing, it does, it does, it does small arms survey. It doesn't have those numbers. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. Oh, uh, okay, so yeah, you know, we, yeah. we've we've established that these people are absolute hacks who, whose work would have mm. gotten me failed out of an undergrad course. Though, to be yeah. fair, maybe it's actually it, it's it's technically possible that University of Chicago just holds its students to more rigorous standards than Harvard or MIT, whose journal published this, does their intellectuals. So you know, I. I we we, we never this know. Is, this is also yeah. why I never use Jacobin as a source on the show. Yeah. Also, because they pay fifty bucks per article, and that Jesus shit is Christ. way out of order. Yeah, Jacobin, not a cool publication, actually. Not mega based. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, pay yeah. your workers if you're pretending to be socialist. Yeah, if you're trying to be like a labor. <laughs> Bashkar Sankara is on the record talking about the quote his quote petite bourgeois hustle. Talking about how we made Jacobin, so you know, okay, we'll 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 get back to the class aspect of all of this next episode, but okay, let, let, let's go back to this paper and let's take a second to look at what they're actually arguing. All right, and the first thing I need to, you to understand about their argument is that their entire the entire substantive argument of this paper hinges on an absolutely enormous lie. Um, uh -huh. here, let me let me let me let me let me quote this lie. Yet it also illustrates the much less well-known fact that America is not in all an outlier in its rate of policing. The United States has around 212 police officers for every 100,000 total residents, which ranks it in the 41st percentile of today's developed world. Now, as Alec Caricatonis points out, uh, they've deliberately picked the lowest number of cops they can find any, like the lowest reported yeah. number of cops in the U.S. they can find anywhere. Um, so they they, they picked six hundred ninety seven thousand from basically like it, it's it's they, they picked this number from an FBI reporting thing, but the FBI also says that they don't have all the cops there because it's it's like it's basically like a voluntary reporting thing. So there's a bunch of cops that aren't there. And then um, here's from Karakatanis, uh, who's a piece about this quote. The professors, the professor then admitted privately over email that the U.S. <laughs> census count is actually 1,227,788 police. That's 76% higher for the number they chose to use in their public article. What is the significance of this? Using this number they admitted to me, the United States truthfully has 1.1 times the median rate in rich countries. <laughs> <laughs> so they've been over email that they have this whole article is based on them lying about how many cops there are in the u.s and it's actually way worse than this because as as as, as he points out right this number the, the number that they're using only tracks uh public police <laughs> so it doesn't count private police and if you count private police that it's number not, doubles it's not, again it's not like there's private police in yeah, america no, no, no. though in america. No, there's, no, there's no private cops no. right and, and the no. other thing is doesn't this, the other thing is doesn't count 
is this counts zero federal agencies. I was going to say, I bet it doesn't count federal agents. Yeah. Does, does it count like state police even? Okay. Sheriff's I think deputies? It, I think it, I, yeah. Actually, does, I don't know does, if it counts sheriffs. Does it count I, sheriffs? It might. Because they're not police. They're, they're deputies. They're different. A highway patrol? I mean, <laughs> who's who's to say? Who's to, uh, all of yeah, the I research mean, here, going to this is here's incredibly, incredibly here's dubious anyway. Yeah, yeah we've spent okay. more time on this than they have already. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And, and, okay, like to, to 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 get it to to get an understanding of this, even if you exclude the feds entirely, right? If you exclude and, and, and again, and this is actually a bad idea because again, we have like a fucking trillion federal agencies. For example, ICE and the Border Patrol, who again run just another police state inside of the the American police state, uh, right? Yeah. We have that. And obviously, okay, so th- he's comparing our, our level of policing to policing in, in, uh, in like, European countries, right? And, okay, I, I, I don't want to minimize how many border cops European countries have, but the U.S. has way fucking more border no, cops it's, it's, than it's, they it's, do. It's, it's it is not, not it's comparable. It's not comparable like, at like, all. They, they do horrible things. I, I, I will yell at the until the end of time about how every every Frontex member needs to be, like, redacted, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. parody. But, like, I, no. <laughs> great great but, work. But even, <laughs> yeah. even, even if you cut that <laughs> yeah. out, right, the actual number of cops in the U.S. is three times higher than the number they've given us. Actually, it might be more. Yeah. Yeah. So if, okay. If I yeah. f- I feel like there's a, there's anything that we can agree on as a nation is that America kind of has a lot of police. Mm-hmm. That's ki- like that's like what everyone kind of knows. That's like pe- like people, people in Europe are like yeah, America, the, place with, the place with like the really like it like really militarized and heavy policing. Yeah. Like as yeah. A, like a person who moved to America, it is shocking how many cops there are, how many different cops there are, and how there are cops everywhere all the time. It, it is. Yep. The thing that it is very different about yeah. America. Oh God. Uh, okay. So all they right, may uh, have used Statista to get that number. Quite like, possibly. They, yeah. Like, like <laughs> that, this is that the most is bad shit. Oh, yeah. God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would uh, absolutely. Uh, if one of my students in community college did this, we'd we'd have a talk. Okay. Okay. So uh, do do you know what else is based on the myth of under policing? Uh, these adverts for private cops. Yes. Mm-hmm. Federal Protective Service gets them. All right, we're back. Uh, okay, so, all right, the, we, we've established that this, this, this is this is this argument is built on a pile of lies. However, the actual content of the argument is also really funny and uh, completely incomprehensible. So their argument is that somehow, if the U.S. had more cops, right, and 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 if 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 the ratio of cops to people like that the u.s had was like in line with the european countries that somehow and, and they never have a mechanism for how this would happen this would somehow lower the incarceration rate i think the mechanism is line uh red, that's, red line that's, that's what everyone yeah. says is that yeah. when you have more police it lowers incarceration rates yeah mm-hmm. yeah the, the entire argument here is what if the u.s was like sweden then there would be five hundred thousand more cops mm-hmm. but somehow also less one also 1.9 million less uh prisoners so yeah well okay. the only thing that's different between <laughs> us and sweden is the cops they have more cops i i, I oh god Okay, so so what? Why are socialists pushing for this, and especially socialists? And again, as these are these are people who, in their article, admit that they think the best way to deal with with poverty and with crime is welfare programs, not mass incarceration. 
So, okay, so why, why, why are they pushing for this? And the initial answer is that they think they can reduce crime, specifically homicides, by increasing policing. And they think which they is, can do which, this. Which, which, to be fair, is an opinion that I would say at this point probably the majority of Americans have. Maybe. I, 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 I don't know if I buy that. I, 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 I don't I, know if that's true. I think you may be a little bit further out of the Overton window. <laughs> Uh, maybe, I think maybe a majority, of, I a majority of Americans, I think, do do believe that if there's a few more cops, maybe we'll have a few less murders. I don't know. We'll we'll we'll, we'll see about that. But okay, the, the other thing though that's sort of like amazing about this, right, is that they think okay, so they they think they can cut the homicide rate by hiring more police. They also think that hiring more police uh, will solve the problem with policing because the problem with police is that. The police don't do enough, and so we need more of them. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, this and is, then and then also like the, yeah. and then also this will make them less violent. I mm-hmm. mean, this is something. This is even the. This is even like the whole like uh, Joe Biden. Like, oh, we have to. We can't. We can't defund the police. We have to fund the police. We have to give oh, them yeah, more resources. Yeah, yeah. Ber- if, Ber- if Bernie they, Sanders if they, also made this if argument. They, if if they have less resources, then that means they'll have to use more violence, and it's that. That style of argument. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, great. it's a neoliberal it's great. talking point. Yeah, yeah but yeah. What, what's interesting about this, again, is that these people nominally are socialists. And, well, yeah, you know, in, in order to justify this, right, they, 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 they argue that while being in prison is bad, and then they list a bunch of uh, uh, consequences of being in prison, okay. being in a neighborhood is with high oh, crime is also as bad for the same oh, reason. Oh, they are literally oh, arguing that being oh, in a place with crime is uh, basically the same as being in prison. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, big time prison understanders, the old Harvard professors. <laughs> like, I, 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 look, uh. okay, I, 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 there are there are very few people I would ever You're say still this in to. The Panopticon Garrison. By the look, way. I, I, I hope it's these people get to do ethnography of this one day. Like, I, I, I hope, I hope they get to go study what the inside of a prison is like. Some participant observation. Yeah, some, I, I, some I hope they get play. to go do this. Like, yeah. you, and, like, there, there, there are, there are lines in this article. Like, here, 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 here is a random line I've pulled from this article that they say at one point. Quote: In fact, black people seem to be underrepresented among those who report ever having been arrested in their lifetimes. What? That Kate. Wait. All right. Yeah, all right. right. Hold on. Yeah, hold that on. is a direct what? quote. <laughs> Citation needed. What is? Yeah, what yeah, are yeah. they? They've done some absolutely insane. Like, I'm, I'm not even. I'm not. I'm not actually going to dignify them by laying out the stats bullshit that they've 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 attempted to justify this. Like we have already seen what their stats look like. Right. Because, like, that, their stats are trying to compare a rate to a false. number. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. It's completely nuts. Like that's the oh, one thing whoa. that that's the one thing that even like racist like Republicans like know is like yeah. <laughs> yeah. they'll be like, yeah, there's more because uh, because I don't like black people. And you're like, that's not why, but uh, whatever. Yeah, I'm just reading this paragraph now and it is actually uh it is Yeah. Pretty bad. So okay, I, I the, the okay. So we, we have established this is bullshit, right? I I I, I want to read a, a kind of long section that I think gives the game away as to why they're arguing this. Mm-hmm. Quote: We think in the long run, a significant expansion of social policy would reduce crime by addressing its root causes and, in turn, reduce the need and demand for both policing and imprisonment. 
Okay. In other work, uh, uh, yeah, this that, is true. I would say prob probably true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In other work, we argue that any coherent conception of distributive justice or economic efficiency entails that the United States should expand its social policy. But a significant expansion of social policy requires significant redistribution from rich to poor. Redistribution of this magnitude would require the poor to wield some kind of leverage over the rich. Given the collapse of the American labor movement and the electoral fracturing of the American working class, we doubt we will see anything like this soon. <laughs> Our aim in this essay is to say something useful about what should be done in the non-ideal world in which we live, not just in the ideal world in which we would like to live. What to say, to say something... Argument. Hold on, hold on. Yeah. Wait, let, let, me, let, let, me, let me read this next sentence. Yeah. It gets worse. Okay. To say something about that question, we limit ourselves to options that are revenue neutral. Ah. These are socialists. That's so bizarre. <laughs> I think they may have walked outside of the They've just given up. Yeah, like, like they've, they've uh, you know, we'll get to this. There's, okay, yeah. so there's actually more of this that is also, like, They're like nuts. We can, it, it, it keeps we going. We can never have a better world. And yeah. Yeah. And you know what that means? Yeah. It's that we should instead just have more police. <laughs> yeah, no, here is their defense of this. But why consider only prisons and police? Why couldn't the government redistribute the existing pool of money from prisons and police to social program policy? So true. As, as, many, as many reformers have demanded. How we we argue in, in What's Wrong with Mass Incarceration, which is a book that they're going to release that I hope nobody buys. I don't trust I them. I hope gets to them arrested. Yeah, 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 yeah. Make a book about yeah, yeah, mass incarceration yeah, yeah. This book now. Is awful. <laughs> this is because social policy is bedeviled by what we call the efficiency feasibility paradox. To address the root causes of crime would be meaningfully to change the opportunity structure for the most disadvantaged people in America. To do this by expanding untargeted universal social programs would require significant resources since the vast majority of beneficiaries are not America's most disadvantaged people. Because penal spending is hyper-targeted in a way that social spending is not, it costs about $300 billion a year to run the world's most extensive penal state, but something like $3 trillion to run its most anemic welfare state. We admit there are significant. This is this is a, a slightly later paragraph. We admit there are significant obstacles to changing the balance that state and local governments strike between the arms of law enforcement. There are, after all, reasons that the United States has involved its present-day penal balance. But our view is that the first world balance. So the first world balance is is the, the thing they're talking about that like supposedly Norway has or some shit where they have more cops but like per capita but less people incarcerated. Um. But our view is that the first world balance is nonetheless substantially more feasible than any of the than the kinds of things that reformers <sighs> tend to demand today in the highly unequal oligarchic America in which we live at present calls to calls to reallocate a fixed pool of revenue will meet with less powerful opposition than calls to tax the rich. That is why we assume it is infeasible to expect the United ah! States to build a generous welfare state in the mold of the Scandinavian social democracies. Proposals to use hyper-targeted social policy to adjust the root causes of crime are similarly infeasible. As we have argued, to be efficient, a social policy intervention must meaningfully transform the opportunity structures of those most likely to commit crime. I mean, yeah, an intervention oh. that transforms the structures of opportunity only in the, in only those in this position will upend the effective incentive structure of unequal societies, thus gumming up the economy and eliciting political opposition. I mean, gumming so here's here, here's the thing: is that yeah. in some ways, I agree that the United States won't 
get better by making social policies within my lifetime. But my solution to this is a legalist lifestyleism, not hiring more cops. Yeah. Well, don't worry. There is there is a significant section of this where they shit on anarchism. Oh, oh yeah, well, we'll, get, we'll get to that. We'll yeah. get to that. Okay, okay, good. Yeah. Uh, and this is what fucking happens when all your friends are also Harvard professors. You I mean, give it's also, up on yeah. real fucking people because you don't fucking talk to them. And, and, and they're it, like, oh, well, we, they'll never, they'll, it's, it's obviously written by somebody who's currently, like, well off. Like, it's, it, they're currently doing yeah. well, which is why, the, because they, because they don't think the world's going to turn into a socialist utopia, but they're personally doing okay, the way to make the world feel better for them is maybe more police will make yeah. me feel safer. Like, because that's, you, that's what, that's what they're doing is because they're already well off and they're like, well, social change isn't coming. I want to live a happier life. Maybe police will keep the bad people away from me. Yeah, because they see poverty as an issue of, poverty is upstream of crime and crime yep. is a fucking annoyance to them because someone might steal their fucking BMW. Well, no, it's worse than, again, cr crime, living in a place with crime is the same as being in prison. <laughs> this is the yeah. argument <laughs> Because you cannot conceive, because it's a socialism without fucking empathy or experience of fucking poverty, right? So yep. you can make these ludicrous statements, and all your friends in the smoking room at Harvard will agree with you. Go ho hum, yes. Uh, yep. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, uh, yeah, and I mean, I mean, yeah, this is the thing. Very like, frustrating. Like they, they, they fundamentally like when Bernie lost the election, these people gave up on politics. Right, like that's what's happening. They're they're arguing that like not even is not even just like the class struggle is un, is unwinnable. They're arguing mm -hmm. that basic liberal politics is impossible. Yes, right. Like yeah. taxing the rich like is a thing that that that's not like a radical thing. That's like like the basic. That's like a basic Democratic Party thing. And they're they're arguing that it's so impossible that anyone who has a plan to change anything has to pre-means test it to be compliant with a non-existent balanced budget amendment to get the yeah, right to support it. Like Liz Trust here shit. Like, the, the, this, is, this was written by one of the people on the editorial board of Jacobin. Yeah, well, that doesn't shock me, but... Uh, <sighs> it, it is very funny to look at their citations, which are like about 80% people being like, this article is horseshit. And then, like, uh, like cop publications, <laughs> just yeah, being like, yeah, let's go. <sighs> so, uh, okay, so, so have, having actually, oh, well, okay, so before we do, we should, we should do another ad thing. Mm -hmm. uh, do, do you know what? Uh, who else has uh, completely abandoned the idea that there is any possibility of social change in the world? The Conservative Party and Unionist Party of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah. Do they? Do they sponsor sponsored the show? By, I guess now we're going right. to take their money and well, give it to the IRA. Uh, yep, yep. Uh, thank you, Rishi Sunak. And okay, we're back. So, so uh, ha having abandoned politics in favor of complete capitulation to the forces of reaction, they turn towards a cost-benefit analysis of having more cops. Um, <sighs> oh, the the, the benefit they argue is less crime, and this is bullshit. There is no statistical evidence that having more cops reduces crime. I I have done like. I, there, there are other reasons why yes. this is bullshit. I have done I, think, a, I, I have I done have, entire series about there. There is a lot of writing on this topic and how this correlation how this correlation is not actually effective. Um, but yeah, it and, is, and, it, it, and, it, and it's also like an, it's, a very important thing here is it, it, this is it, this is a, this is the thing that's about what kind of crime you care about, right? Like I I have written an entire series about why my about you know 
the times when my police department was literally being run by multiple drug cartels at the same time when they strapped dudes to fucking radiators yes. and attached yes. to the balls to car batteries. They shot children into the street. They disappeared people to be tortured into fucking black sites. And then they went to fucking Iraq to teach the CIA how to do it. Like, the, the, like these people, the, the cops are, they are rapists, they are kidnappers, they are extortionists, they are thieves, they are torturers, they are murderers. A lot of them are in literal neo-Nazi gangs who run their own serial killer competitions. Um, none of this apply, like, appears in any of the analysis that these dipshits have compiled. And you know, it's, it's... You know, when the old cultural turn to get involved, you yeah. look at the material conditions here. Yeah, yeah, the material conditions apparently are cop go up, crime go down, which yep. it's yeah, also well. important, like, I think it's important to note, that there's a really good article, I think it was by M plus one, called Raise the Crime Rate, from, this is from like 2006, but they have they have this point, which is that, like, the reductions in the crime rate that we, like, see insofar as they happen are not actually reductions in the amount of crime going on, like, What's happening is that, like, we put people in prison, and then the crime happens to them there, right? Like, ev- even even if you reduce the homicide rate outside of prison, there's still the mm-hmm. homicide rate inside of prison, which nobody fucking gives a shit about. And, you know, cause, because, again, th- this crime doesn't go away. All that happens is that it gets, yeah. it gets, you know, intensified and inflicted on a group of people the American public doesn't give a shit about. So, you yeah. know, all of the violence, all of the all of the rape, all of the fucking murder, all of the theft, all of the shit we normally throw people in prison for, in theory, is just happening to people inside of prisons. It's just that academics can stop pretending to give a shit about it when they don't have to see it. Yeah. I like where I live, right? We just reelected a sheriff who has overseen like 19 deaths in jail this year yep. in San Diego, right? But that is not seen as an issue of evidently to the people who voted for her, to the Democratic Party who endorsed her. Uh, and, and instead, like, they would much rather have that because they're presumably worried that the person who ran against her in the primaries would be too soft on crime and therefore, you know, their Teslas might get keyed. Yeah. So, okay, let, let's look at the supposed benefits. Oh, let, let's. I guess. I sh- I, sorry, sorry. Yes. The, the, those, those are the benefits. Let's look at the, let's look at the costs. Quote, okay. finally, cool. consi- finally, consider the cost of policing. On the one hand, a world of more policing would, perhaps unsurprisingly, be a world of more arrests. Based on recent work by Chaflin, our best guess is that the first world balance would be a world of almost 7.8 million arrests. What? On the other hand, for some... for and, and, Okay, this is a direct quote, by the way. I need everyone to understand I am directly quoting them when I say this. On the other hand, for the somewhat speculative reasons we gave earlier, we guess that a world of more policing would be one of less police violence. About 900 fewer people killed by the police. Based on what? The a miracle occurs! <laughs> that, that's, what, that, that's how, James, a miracle occurs! Uh, very, yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> more yeah, cops, yeah. they do well, yeah. less violence. Yep. Yeah, it, it the, makes this, sense. The, you know, and, and you, you could, if, if you were, for example, a social scientist, right, at all, you could look at all of the all of the other times the U.S. has gotten more cops and tried to see if that, like, increased or decreased the amount of violence the police do. Nah, no. And, you know, but, but they don't do that. Line. They've drawn a line. It's all good. The li- I just I do want to draw attention to figure one, where they have exactly one data point. <laughs> yeah. And then they've just drawn a line to it. <laughs> From where so the axes funny. intersect at a data point and just yeah, like I mean, line, we've got line. Like, like this whole thing is just sort of yeah, like like yeah. you know, okay, so e- even if somehow, right, by some miracle, 
this occurred unless people were killed by the police, like were killed by police violence because there was more cops, which this is the kind of thing that for, for, for the purposes of this thought experiment, right, we are allowing people to believe this, like for the same reason that we allow children to believe in the Easter bunny. So assuming, assuming this is real. Hold up. I, kids don't believe in the Easter bunny. I, 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 I have, I have met kids who yeah. believed in the Easter bunny. I understand believing in Santa, but do people actually believe in the yeah. Easter bunny? As not a many, character? not many, but al- okay. also, All also, right. also right. most people don't believe the police will be more violent if, if you have, if yeah. it will be less violent if you have more of them. How but, about okay. the tooth fairy? So, the tooth fairy was, uh, yeah, let's, 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 let's let them believe this, right? This entire argument hinges on the theory that incarceration and arrest are distinct outcomes of policing, right? They're arguing that there's going to be more arrest, but that's okay because there will be less people in prison. Now, there is one tiny problem here that you may have seen, which is that when you arrest people, it leads to people going to prison. (laughs) Nowhere in this entire article have these two Harvard professors at any point considered the fact that when you arrest someone, they sometimes go to prison and that arresting (laughs) more people will mean more people go to prison because that's what happens when you arrest someone. They've never considered this. And in fact, in fact, not only have they never considered this, they seem to believe that there is an inverse correlation between the number of people getting arrested and how many people go to prison. They think that 7,800,000 more arrests will somehow lead to 1.2 million people less in prison. <laughs> it's, yeah, even... What the <laughs> fuck? <laughs> what? People in this country die... In between arrest and their hearing, right? Like, in between arrest yeah. and, uh, and having a, a fair trial. Like, yeah, to ignore that, it's, it, it's not just, like, uh, it's not just wrong. It's callously cruel. Also, like, they appear to have not uh, looked at any point at the opportunity cost of having all these cops, right? Yep. Like, we pay cops a metric shit ton of money yeah. because they're, they're the only unions that, that apparently the state cares about. And, like... We could do something useful with that money, right? Like, well, we the, could... the thing the thing they claim they're doing is is that they're, they're going to fund less prisons and fund more cops, and this will lead to less people being in prison. Now, if this doesn't make any sense to you, that's because it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. And 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 again, we have to come back to the question: What do you think happens to people who get arrested? Like, do these people <laughs> think they get sent on vacation to Tahiti? Like, I I I know none of these people, none of the people writing this have been arrested, but like. Like, you yep. can't be this stupid. Like, there's no way. Like, no, you can't. Oh. <laughs> God. So, okay. Like, so, so we're, I'm going to close on some stuff here, which I'm going to close on the sort of anarchist stuff that they that they're ranting about. Um, I'm, I'm going to read another quote from this. Some civil libertarians might prefer radical decarceration without any increase or perhaps even some reduction in police force size. On the grounds that state-imposed violence or harm is morally different from and worse than interpersonal violence committed by private individuals. An extreme version of this position would hold that no amount of interpersonal violence could ever justify the use of coercive force by the state. But any state completely lacking in coercive power would be unable to enforce tax law and policy and thus unable to collect revenue. Without revenue, the government could not provide public goods or a social safety net. Which also, by the way, I want to stop here and Mm -hmm. like... Uh, point out that like they like in any other context none of these people believe this because like these these people are all neo-chartalists like they're all nmt people 
And so they don't actually believe that money that they, they, in any other context except this one, they understand that money is something created by the state. Except here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where they have to justify yeah. police. Uh, without revenue, governments cannot provide public goods or a social safety net. So this extreme version of, libertari- of civil libertarianism is essentially a kind of political anarchism. And we doubt many are in fact committed to this brand of anarchism. So, okay, let's unpack this a second. When they say civil libertarianism here, what they say is that anyone who proposes to defund the police or reduce the number of people in prison, right? In the next paragraph, they argue that anyone who wants to do those things uh, is actually in favor of increasing the homicide rate because when there's less co- when there's less cops, then quote serious crime runs unchecked in poor neighborhoods, which leaves you with two choices, right? You can be an anarch quote unquote anarchist and let the crime happen because you supported so decreasing so the number true. of cops, or so you true. can support having more cops. Yeah, it's yeah, it's just an absurd extrapolation of a position. Yeah, well, like, but it's it's not just that uh, they they've give, what they're doing here is they're giving their entire game away, right? What they've admitted is that their ideal society requires, and this is what they are saying about the state's need for coercive power, right? With their own argument, they the, the coercive power they need is the police. And so what they are saying is that their politics requires an entire class of rapist neo-Nazi murderers to, inf- to you know, like, to enforce their vision of the welfare state. Like, in, or- in order for there to be a welfare state, there have to be a bunch of people who can fucking walk into your door and shoot you, right? There have to be a group of people who can fucking stand there, grab your child, smash their head into a wall 15 times, and then fucking grab you and throw you through a window, right? Th- this is what they are arguing. And, and this begs the question, okay, so why do these people want more cops? And, you know, the caricature they offer up is that without cops, everyone will just murder each other. And so we need neo-Nazi death squads to stop us all from murdering each other. But, okay, that's stupid, right? Like, self-evidently, police are only, like, police are not that old. They've only been around for, like, 200 years. So we know that's not true. So why do they actually want more cops? And, you know, something, something that's very interesting, given that this is an article about the police that is written by people who are on the editorial board of socialist magazines nowhere in this article does it mention the fact that the cops exist to protect private property right this is this is a huge part of what their existence right their job is to ensure that there is one class of people who owns the factories and the fields and the grocery stores and the fast food chains and the fucking car dealerships and that there is another class who was forced to work for them and have their labor stolen every day of their lives and of course these sort of like faux pro-cop these pro-cop like faux social democrats will never mention it right these people's version of quote-unquote socialism is one in which all that shit, all the stuff that makes things, like all of the businesses, all of the corporations, all of, the, all of that shit is owned by capitalists and not the working class. They need those cops specifically to protect the property of the ruling class from you, right? Like that, that, that is ultimately what this is about. The specter of crime, and, and this is true whether it's coming from socialists or whether it's coming from the most like – unbelievably deranged blue lives matter cop freak it is about stopping you from taking what is yours and that that's the end of part one in part two we're gonna look at the 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 whole sort of background ideology that's running all of this and it also sucks so yay come back tomorrow for more great news (laughs) ah love it
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Podcasting. Oh, I love it. I love Mm -hmm. when you're talking to microphones and people listen. Yay. Good for them. It's going to outlive microblogging. Apparently. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who could have thought? (laughs) We've won, guys. We are the last medium standing. Yeah. I, well, to be fair, I do think the majority of people on this call got got this job <laughs> because in, of in some small part because of microblogging. One hundred percent because of microblogging. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Me. Look at where our posts have brought us. That's uh, right. Here mm-hmm. to this moment on the podcast, yeah. it could happen here. Uh, the podcast where mm. we don't explain what the podcast is. That's right. Nope. Nope. Yep. And. Yeah, the podcast also contains me, Christopher Wong, contains Garrison Davis, it contains James Stout. Mm-hmm. And allegedly Robert Evans says Yeah, however, yeah, comma, yeah, yeah, Robert yeah. Evans and, is... Yeah. I, I think yeah. he's legitimately he, actually busy right now. He is, he is like <laughs> recording something else or something. Yeah, yeah, he's doing a marathon thing, but if you look at the iHeart page, it's only Robert. We yeah. have we have a lot of a lot of podcasts on... Yeah, anyway. It's mm-hmm. true. On, on the Cool Zone Media. Yeah, on, on the Cool Zone Media, that's right. Mm-hmm. 
So speaking of podcasts we've done on the Cool Zone Media, we did one that came out the one before this one. Mm-hmm. And what was it about? It, it was it was about how a bunch of socialists want five hundred thousand more cops, or specifically several interventions. Yeah. yeah. So okay, I I asked myself the question when I read this: Why? Why do they want this? <laughs> how did we well, get here? Because they're rich <laughs> and they're scared. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. sort. Uh, this is true. It's there's Elite there's also capture. sort of there's also sort of deeper roots to what's happening here. And okay, so like it, it is true that there's been a whole wave of people who were sort of nominally progressive or like socialist in 2016 or 2017 who turned right in the past few years, particularly over racial issues like Lee Fang, uh, Glenn Greenwald, like more recently the TYT people. Like, Bashar Sankara's been doing crime wave shit, like, kind of recently, which was actually really funny. He had this tweet about how, like, oh, the crime rate's not actually down. There's specific neighborhoods where the crime, where people are poor, where the crime is up. And then you look at the data, and that's exactly the opposite of what's happening. But, okay, so, but this entire push for sort of more police is part of a a broader political project that Adana Rusumi and his sort of allies and Jacobin and et cetera, et cetera, have been pushing for years now. And this... sort of like political project is the class side of what's called the class versus race or the race versus class debate. So for people who were either weren't here for this or have like blissfully forgotten this, the, the the race class debate was basically an argument about sort of the role of race in leftist organizing. Um, The argument was basically like, okay, should we understand race as like a structural force in, in the U S that requires its own specific organizing around racial justice and like liberation movements, or should we attempt to put class first and attempt to solve racism by appealing to like the interests of the entire working class and only doing class-based organizing? Um, there, there are broadly like three types of class first people. And weirdly, we're going to see two of them here. Um, there are a very small number of very committed and very radical Marxists and like a small number of anarchists who think that like, well, race was a product of class anyways. And so if you end the class system and abolish private property, that's the sort of like actual central like mechanism of oppression in society and if you do that like you know race will sort of fall apart and so you know you care sure. about class uh-huh. um yeah mm-hmm. whatever sure it's all I, false consciousness anyway yeah like yeah, these people are wrong i think they're less dangerous than the other kind of two people but we're also going to see one of these guys later so there there's the people <laughs> i call the like class with like a k people who are just straight up like racists like yeah, I mean, they are they they, they, they they are class with a kkk is, yeah right like they they yeah, yeah. you know the, the the groups of socialists i've compared them to are like the socialists who came to the u.s after 1848 and were like oh shit who cares like slave like we, we don't care about slavery the actual thing that like is good for the working class is stealing more land for indigenous people and this is how we're going to solve the labor question oh yeah or I'll also the sort of like like the the, the 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 people who were in the knights of labor in like the 1880s who were like all right we need to we need to defend labor the way we're going to defend labor is by ethnically cleansing the entire west coast of chinese people like mm-hmm. th- th- these are basically these guys right they're, they're just straight up racist who want unions and health care um they used to be a real faction in the DSA, um, formed around this like absolutely dog shit uh, subreddit called Stupid Poll. Um, there used to be a bunch of them in Philadelphia, and these kind of people like they were like Red Scare's initial base. And so by you know this was like the 2017, 2018, 2019. By now, like in 2022, these people are almost entirely deranged tradcaths who spend literally their entire time deep throating Peter Thiel's boot. So they're kind of mostly like they're, they're just right wingers now. <laughs> like that that's what's happened to these people. Um yeah. good riddance, fuck them. I yeah. 
And then there are people like Adonari Usumi and Bashkar Sankara who don't really want to end capitalism and think that socialism is just sort of like welfare states and some unions. And also, and they also, and this is sort of critical, tend to think that racial justice organizing is a distraction from their main goal of achieving socialism. And by achieving socialism, I mean electoralism. And by electoralism, I mean getting these people elected to office. Yeah, yeah. I hate these people. Their politics sucks. I, I've been fighting them for like since I became a leftist. I have been at war with these people. And to to, to get a sense of how we got from you know, but what was legitimately. In a lot of cases, what was at least legitimately an argument about how to deal with racism to a bunch of socialists going, we need 500,000 more cops. I, I want to take a look at a piece uh, Adam Arusami wrote in Catalyst with David Zachariah called The Class Path to Racial Liberation. And I, I want to take a quote from its opening to give it a sense of people of like how awful this politics is. This is like like one of their sort of like opening statements about what, what they're, why they're taking the class side in the debate. We argue that the class-race debate should center on one principal domain, the distribution of material resources. Now, okay, at first glance, this seems kind of reasonable enough, but there's another incredibly important aspect of any attempt to grapple with race and class that Usami is just ignoring entirely, and that's violence, right? Race, race is not just a measure of economic inequality, it's an index of violence. And, you know, racialization increases your risk of interpersonal violence, it increases your risk of sexual violence, it increases your risk of mass communal violence, a la lynchings or sort of ethnic cleansing campaigns. And maybe most importantly for this whole argument, like being racialized dramatically increases the risk of, of suffering state violence. And this is a real problem for the sort of class first people because, you know, Usami's sort of multiple, like multiracial working class electoral project won't do shit to prevent people from experiencing state violence just because there's welfare programs. You know, we, we talked about this, what this looks like in our Brazil episodes, right? You actually have, like, legitimately a uni- like a sort of united multiracial working class that elects a social, a social democratic government, and they enact anti-poverty reform, reforms and increase the size of the welfare state. And while this is happening, they also increase incarceration, the incarcerated population by 620% and created a rate of police killing that is 11 times higher than it is in the U.S., Right. And this is the thing these people really don't want anyone to think about, which is that race is actually more complicated than economic inequality, which this entire politics is just dedicated to not seeing because class first politics, like a lot of what it really is about, amounts to a theoretical framework that gives you a way to argue that race is not an explanatory framework for literally anything so you don't have to talk about it. And anyone who talks about it is dividing the working class or some shit and it... Yeah. Class traitor. Yeah, it fucking sucks. And, you know, like one of, one of the big sort of political violence things is mass incarceration. And one of sort of Adonner's like political projects is arguing that mass incarceration isn't about race at all, but it's actually about class. Which, uh... <laughs> so uh, we're going to see some more bullshit. Um, he, he, right. he, wrote, he wrote an article in Catalyst called The Economic Origin of Mass Incarceration Alongside... You Chicago professor John Clegg. And I I have like I have an enormous special contempt for John Clegg for two reasons here. One, because, you know, Adonner's like an irredeemable Jacobin, like soak them hack, right? Clegg is nominally was was part of the sort of the Anglophone Marxist like ultra left, right? Like he he was one of the con- contributors to the sort of to to the ultra left theory journal, like ultra left sort of Marxist 
Communization Journal endnotes, which, you know, like it, that influenced oh, yeah. me a lot when I was like a tiny baby leftist. And he, <laughs> I, I also have an incredible amount of contempt here because he's a Harper Schmidt fellow at the University of Chicago. And here's the thing. Okay, I don't know what Harvard is like, right? I've never been there. I, I don't know what their campus is like. I, I don't know what it's like to be on, be on campus at Harvard. I know what U Chicago, the U Chicago campus is like. I know that there's a cop on every fucking corner. I know that there's surveillance cameras literally everywhere. I know that they lock down the entire fucking campus while hundreds of heavily armed cops storm through every building and every courtyard in the area every single time a kid steals something from a gaming store and runs for it until they've hunted them the fuck down. And I know that, you know, I, I, I know that the cops almost fucking killed me while I was there during a police chase. I know that John Clegg was on fucking campus when the U Chicago Police Department shot a kid who was having a mental health crisis. And... To, to watch this shit every single fucking day and to make this kind of argument is just fucking unforgivable. It is, it is fucking atrocious. I, I, I guess I should, I should explain this a little bit for people who, who don't understand this. So the University of Chicago is like in the middle of the south side of Chicago. It like, the like most of the neighborhoods around it are like 80% black. And then there is just this fucking university they've planted in the middle of it. And this college has the world's largest private police force. There's the also the regular fucking CPDs around there. There are like for like blocks and like 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 through other neighborhoods. There are just U Chicago police officers there. There are fucking CPD cops everywhere. It is a fucking militarized hellhole. And yeah, and you know, like it, it is a place where like the way that race functions in the U.S. is blindingly fucking obvious. You can you can immediately understand it by looking. <laughs> Like, you, you walk outside your fucking dorm, you look at the cop, and you look at how the cop treats people depending on what the race is, right? It is so unbelievably obvious. However, comma, in this article, <laughs> Clegg and Usami are going to argue that mass incarceration is actually a product of, of class policy resulting from a, a lack of social democracy and underdevelopment resulting from a transition from an agrarian economy to an industrial economy in the, in the, in the 20th century. People, people are saying this. And, and the subsequent okay, mass okay. migration of black people north. Like, oh. what, what kind of agrarian economy we, we have to ask? Yeah. Who, like, who is doing the labor in said know, agrarian economy? How much were like, they paid? It's like it's like the the, the 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 basic argument that they're gonna make is that like well so there were a bunch of people who'd been slaves and then they became not slaves and then a bunch of them started migrating north but because there was this mass migration all these people showed up to the like showed up to these cities where there was no infrastructure and then so there was a bunch of crime and then because of the crime there was mass incarceration which is hmm, okay we're yeah. we're gonna get some more into this um but before we go into the sort of reactionary part of this article right. You have to understand that when these people say that this is a a like a class based policy, like class here does not mean the same thing that it means for like you know a regular person who thinks about class or like you know a Marxist, which again both these people nominally are. Um, here's from the journal Spectre, which did a really good sort of critique of of this whole absolutely dog shit article. Quote: Clegg and Usami's claim that class is essential to understanding mass incarceration amounts to a repackaging of a widely understood fact as revelatory insight. And while they title their article, quote, The Economic Origins of Mass Incarceration, they never delve further into class in a Marxist or even critical sense. Instead, they use educational attainment data as a proxy. They note that a large portion of people who are imprisoned have low levels of educational attainment. And I, 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 I am glad to know that everyone on this call who does the exact same job as me, uh, it, we're all from different classes. 
Congratulations, <laughs> yeah. James. You are now the bourgeoisie. Congratulations, yeah. Garrison. You are now proletariat. I'm, I guess, yeah. the labor aristocracy. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> why I'm here to expropriate the surplus value from your labor. Garrison. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, and like, uh, if you go to prison, it's uh, it's my fault. Yeah. Like I, I just okay. So like, yeah. What an asshole! What a, what a, what a ridiculous fucking claim! Yeah, and, and it's like like these these okay. So like like it used to be like the Jacobin people do this all the time, right? Like they they had this they made this famous study about the people who vote for Trump that was like, oh, it's people people who voted for Trump did it in like working class areas, and again, working <laughs> class was by uh, education data, and then also they didn't go because it turns out like this is actually true, right? There there are a lot of people who voted for Trump for working class areas. It turns out who those people are are the small business owners in working class areas. <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't fucking go granular enough, enough so that you know they do this shit all the time right and th- this is the kind of analysis that like like yeah using uh, shit name? as a proxy for class yeah. is like a, it's yeah. a classic fallacious thing yeah so, like like uh, yeah. what's his name uh, nicholas kristoff uh <laughs> fa- fa- yeah he did this too also like like this this is this is we're, we're getting fucking kristoff level analysis out of these <laughs> supposed marxists and like okay so all right, the curious thing here is that Clegg, at least on an intellectual level, knows better than this, right? Like, he vote for, he wrote for EndNotes. EndNotes has a very sophisticated class analysis. But if you're actually interested in the sweeping arc of the history of the proletariat, you can't make the kinds of arguments that Clegg is making in this thing. And so, you know, b- b- because, he, because he's trying to make this argument, he's reduced to this, like, like just absolute, like, like seventh-rate, like, fucking New York Times pundit-level analysis. <laughs> yeah. Right, it's like okay, and, you know, and, like they're, 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 it's it's this is really sad because for actual Marxists and not sort of like liberal bourgeois hacks doing like fucking New York Times bullshit, you know, class is about ownership, right? It's about who owns the means of production and who's forced to work for them. And you know, okay, so you have this, you have the proletariat or like the working class, who are the people who own nothing and are thus forced to sell their labor for people who do who do own stuff, right? But this also presents a problem for this entire argument because. If you actually want to do class analysis, you have to understand that race plays a major role in who even gets to become part of the regular proletariat in the first place. Because most, there's a lot of people through the development of the course of capitalism who fucking never even got to become wage laborers because they were enslaved, they were exterminated, they were turned into debt peons, and, oh wait, guess who fucking got that shit? Oh yeah, it wasn't white people. And you know, if 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 you're if you're gonna write and, and, and if you're gonna be writing arguments and like explaining the rise of like a mass system of enslavement, you might want to think about this. But no, <sighs> <sighs> okay. So, do you know what else is responsible for a mass series, a mass system of enslavement? Uh, the advertising and how they affect our brains. Yeah, that mm-hmm. one. I was gonna go with Stalin, but yours was good. Well. Same same dev, honestly. Yeah, Stalin, first mm-hmm. mass marketer. So true. Yeah. <laughs> Famously, yeah. Stalin will send you a meal kit if you ask him. Okay, we're back, and we're back to talk about the other argument of the economic origin of mass incarceration, which is that the argument that mass incarceration happened because people were legitimately scared about crime. Like, oh, seriously, no. this is their argument. Their argument is that crime went up People demanded less crime, and then the government did it. <laughs> like I, right. wait, did they did they give analysis of the class of people who demanded well, less they, crime? Okay, they 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 make this fun argument that both black and white people were demanding the end of crime, which is sort of true. But mm-hmm. you know, if you look at what, like, 
Like, yeah, like, obviously, this is the thing, right? Like, you, you can find people of any race who can t- who will take basically any political position. And so if if you go looking for, like, black people who are tough on crime, you can find it, right? There are black politicians right. who are, yeah, like, yeah. tough on crime, right? But that's also not the reason why mass incarceration happened. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sorry. And also, like, you know, if, if, if you, and, you know, there was, there was also, there were people who, who, like, weren't tough on crime people who were, like, talking about, who were talking about trying to end, like, sort of like uh, like violence spikes but if you look at what they were saying it was stuff like uh we we want the police to like respect human rights instead of property rights and uh you know okay so i, I yeah this this yeah, is just sort of silly right it, it, yeah but but, but the, the the point of this is that this is basically this is their full on broadside against abolitionism as like a body of work right it is sort of modern abolitionism um, it, it's directly criticizing uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, The New Jim Crow Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblind List. Yeah. And it's also like a volley basically against anyone who's trying to explain mass incarceration through race. And so what they argue is that crime increased because there wasn't a strong labor movement to solve the problem that like caused solve the problems that caused crime with economic like redistribution. So the state turned to like a cheaper option, which was prisons. And the ch- is it a cheaper option? Well, okay. So they're 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 not wrong in a in like there is some truth here, right? Which is that there is a reason that mass incarceration started spiking when capitalism went into crisis in the seventies and eighties. And it is actually it is actually genuinely cheaper for 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 the bourgeoisie to run a prison state than it is to run a welfare state. But and and this is the important part, right? Both the welfare state and the prison complex are diff- are just different forms of counterinsurgency. Usami, who is a social democrat, is ideologically incapable of understanding this. His his entire ideology is that like is is based on the fact that the welfare state is the endpoint of socialism, but this is completely backwards, right? The welfare state yeah. and and social democracy were first implemented by Bismarck, like specifically yeah. as a way to buy workers off to stop them from carrying out a socialist revolution and actually seizing the pro- like seizing the property of the ruling class and using the production for the benefit of mankind and not profit. That is why the shit the welfare state was invented. Like yeah, that, that like was the first time I was put into practice. <laughs> if you go back to like Edmund Burke, right, in the French Revolution and reform to preserve the idea that like we have to give people these little these little slices here and there, like give them a treat. And then, yeah. then, then, then they will never come and take the cake. And, like, and if, if you read these people, they're really explicit about this. Like, they will just yeah. openly say we're buying off the working class. But these absolute clowns have, like, somehow convinced themselves <laughs> that this is what socialism actually is. Yep. It's when and, treats. Socialism yeah. is when treats. Social, socialism is when, socialism is when you, you confuse table scraps for treats. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and, and this, this comes to sort of the other thing that these, that, that, these people can't understand, which is that social democracy was a class compromise, right? There was a deal that the capitalists and the working class agreed to. And and when I, when I say they agreed to this, right? Like this isn't just sort of like an, like it kind of is an abstract deal, but there were also very literal deals, right? There's this thing called the treaty of Detroit, which is this massive, basically set of negotiations. And then like agreements that are made between the U S government, like a a huge portion of organized labor, the auto industry and the auto companies, right? Which, which basically, like, the, 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 the substance of the Treaty of Detroit was, like, if you give us all of this welfare shit and benefits shit, right, we won't, we will stop constantly going on strike. These are explicit deals. They're explicitly being negotiated between these massive trade unions and, and like, the, 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 the capitalists who own companies by the American government. 
And so they, they get this deal. The deal is you get unions and pension and a vacation and like healthcare as long as you don't like seize control of factories and run them for themselves. Yeah. And this held from sort of like the 50s through the 70s. Partially this held because also the US specifically was just really, really rich. And its economy was growing really fast. But, you know, but by, by, the, by the 1970s, suddenly the rate of profit is starting to collapse. And suddenly it does actually become possible to both pay for the welfare state and have capital turn into more capital at the same time. And, you know, what happens is, is, is full on class war over the course of the 70s and the 80s. And, the, the, you know, the, the capitalists win the class war. And the product of this, and this is true not just in the U.S., but in, in like a lot of other neoliberal countries too, is that there is a massive uh, military the, – the, the state is sort of stripped down to nothing in terms of like providing services, but there's this massive buildup of the military and police and also prisons. And so, you know, th- th- this is in some sense – like if you, if you want a class-based explanation of mass incarceration, like this is part of what – like that's a big part of what's going on. It's also true that in the U.S., insofar as there was sort of a revolutionary force, it was black people doing like – like doing the Panthers, doing uh, the uh, I'm blanking on it, doing the the Black Liberation Army, and this meant that sort of the, the sort of counter revolution to this was specifically about deploying the sort of like like deploying the state against these people because yeah yeah like this movement is is actively trying mm-hmm. to destroy capitalism by destroying the racist ap- like police apparatus and indigenous folks too I guess yeah, at the yeah. same time period like AIM for instance yeah. And you know, so the, the ruling class sort of loses their minds, and this is this is also this is also part of what's happening here. But the problem is the sort of Jacobin cop freaks like need the police for their like social democratic hell world that they want to build, and so they can't have any like it. It is it is incredibly structurally dangerous for them for people to be arguing that like the police are inherently a force of like systemic racial oppression because yeah. they want them around. <laughs> yeah. And so they so, do all this So they bullshit, can keep playing right? 50 bucks per article. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Clegg, meanwhile, as best I can tell, just doesn't want to use race as, like, an explanation for shit. Like, they, they literally argue in this in this thing, like, in this in this article, that white flight was actually just capital flight and wasn't about racism. Ah, uh, good. And they just, they, they're, they're doing this entire thing about, right, the, the sort of political economy of, 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 of the city, and they just, they never mention, they're, they're so ruthlessly committed to their program of not talking about racism, but don't even mention redlining. It's like, <laughs> like, they've managed to go to the right of, like, the libertarian party on race. It's like. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, outflank him to the right. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to read more from the, the Spectre article that's, like, yelling at these people. Considering their investments in the category of violent crime. Clegg and Usami seem curiously serene about the practices that upheld segregation. They would have us believe that such tactics are simply, quote, caste-based remedies of exclusion and that, quote, such strategies were rational, even if suboptimal in the long run, effectively rationalizing and apologizing for racism. (laughs) (laughs) So this is great. And then they, they cap this off with this giant, like, swelling crescendo of an argument about how the left can't ignore crime and you know okay so this is an argument with political consequences right and you can see those consequences in that in the five hundred thousand cops article we were talking about yesterday um here's a quote from that article this figure shows the same prisoner and police data as shown in figure one but this time denominated by the level of homicide rather than the population america's outlying incarceration look rate looks normal given the level of serious crime and now the level of policing in the united states appears exceptionally low compared to other countries 
So, okay, you, you can see the line of argument here, right? It goes, like, mass incarceration isn't about race, it's actually about class, and actually it's really about crime. And then it goes from the crime to, oh, well, this is about crime, to we need to actually do something about crime, and then that turns into the only thing we can do about crime is have more cops. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. And and, and and the other part of this, right, it goes back to the thing about, like, Okay, the thing about like the you know, and this is something that Garrison was talking about yesterday, right? Like the 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 way in which you can only think the level of policing in the US is exceptionally low is if is if you never interacted with a cop. And yes. This is a deliberate thing, right? The the sort of Jacobin cadre of like faux Marxists, like their entire political project was orig- like originally was driving off the anarchists who'd founded Occupy, you know, dream in like and driving these people into the political w- wilderness to displace it with their sort of bureaucratic cop socialism, right? Like what one one of the first like big Jacobin articles was a giant thing about why the Zapatistas aren't a model for the American left, because <laughs> right, like you, you can see what's happening here. Uh, okay. This is they, yeah. these people are, have been anti-anarchist like to their core, and, be, and again because they need cops, they need to get rid of the people who hate the cops. Like again, the people who were actually on the streets during Occupy, who have seen shit like, for example, the bloody stains on the wall outside of police holding pens where the cops smashed the heads into of like every single person they arrested, a thing that happened constantly during Occupy, right? And these people who, you know, have seen the police shoot their friends' eyes out, like, are incredibly inconvenient if you're trying to put yourself on top of a police state. And, you know, so, of course, are abolitionists, which means you also need to sideline them. them. And, and these are, this, you know, this sort of strategy is an old entrenched, like, position of, of, of these people. Um, in, in 2018, Jeremy Gong, who was, like, the one time, basically, like, the dictator of DSA East Bay, uh, was caught in, in secret documents saying, quote, we are not, in cap, this is, by the way, in his capital letters, not for abolition of prisons. I would go further. 90% of black people want more police in their neighborhoods. Really? All right. Yeah. Jeremy <laughs> Gong, by the way, Asian dude, not black. Uh, fuck you. Eat shit. I, I hope you're having fun. Like, I, well, I don't have, I don't hope you're having fun. I hope you're having a bad time losing another election by getting 3% of the vote or some shit. Like, fuck you. Eat right. shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I should mention this also, like, it, it, it it's a very obvious thing to say, but it, like, it should be pointed out that like everyone who's making this argument like specifically these arguments about cops and about the stuff being about crime these people are all either white or asian and i i genuinely think that plays a, a pretty big role in why they're doing this it is just a breathtaking position to take in 2021 to yeah. to as a white person like uh, i i'm i'm looking at the uh, anna kasparian article which uh, she wrote for newsweek a great God, yeah. s- source of unbiased content on the left about how uh, we need to stop gaslighting. Progressives need to stop gaslighting people on crime. Uh, uh, to, as a white person in 2022, like take the stand with the platform that has been given to you with all the privileges that you have had and, and gaslight black folks about the importance of race is it, just like, b- breathtakingly lacking in, in like context or self-awareness or like, have you not been fucking paying attention? Like, at least for the last two years, if not for the last 20 years, you know? Yeah, and I mean, like, this is a whole thing, right? Like, they, they have this whole sort of political project that's, like, like, like makes talking up, like, their goal is to make talking about this shit sound cringe. Because, yeah. you know, they and they have to, right? And this is, this, this, is, this is also sort of class-based survival strategy, right? Because, like, 
they, these people couldn't fucking hack it as abolitionist scholars. They, they have no fucking idea what they're talking about, right? Yeah. If, if, they, if, they, if they have to actually intellectually, like, be in the same sphere as, like, someone like Ruth Gilmore Wilson, they are going to get fucking blown. Like, these people are, like, <laughs> it, it, this is, this is yeah. like a fucking battle cruiser going to war against a speedboat, right? Like, <laughs> they can't fucking hack it. And so they have to sort of, like, do all of this shit. To convince people that, like, no, 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 it's actually really not about race. Uh, it's it's actually about class. This thing that I can very easily pretend to care about from academia in a way that I can't with you know pretending to care about race because, like, I I, I can't even fucking fake it, right? And, and you know, I would say this like <laughs> back in 2018, right? Like, Jeremy Gong and his allies are very careful to frame their view in terms of like, well, we want to end mass incarceration and police violence, but we have to be tactical about how we do it and the tactical about how we do it is black people want more cops right but but that that was their internal <laughs> documents their external their external statements were like eh, well some police abolitionism stuff looks like more cops anyways but, but but you know internally they were always saying this and now with the you know these people think that there's a political right turn coming and they think that you know they can fucking take their mask off and just say what they really mean yeah. which is 500,000 more fucking cops and, you know, and, and part of what's going on here, right, is like, like the reason this is happening is because when the uprising happened, these people were just caught with their pants down because they, they, their entire political project for like fucking how, how, how many years were, were they doing this? Like seven years was elect Bernie Sanders. And then he lost back to back successively to like Hillary Clinton, who was maybe the least popular candidate the Democrats have ever run ever. And <laughs> Joe Biden, who is a fucking senile rapist who like again was all like um, um, they they lost his election to a man who couldn't remember who who he had been vice president under and they couldn't <laughs> beat him right like yeah. so these people were completely discredited and then you know the uprising happened these people were caught with their pants down because they'd spent their entire fucking time organ like arguing that like there's no path to liberation through race like race any kind of race or like politics at all intersectionality is bullshit like we just have to focus on class we just have to focus on class and their fucking pure class electoral campaign failed in Oh hey, guess what? It failed in the South. Like, wow, damn! I, 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 I wonder why this politics fucking yeah. got swept by Joe Biden. Like, okay, and then you know, and and, and then the up the uprising starts, and the uprising is you know the uprising is about anti racism. It is about people looking of the at the violence like of the police against black people and going fuck this. And they have nothing, right? Like, the, the, the whole intellectual leadership here, like, all these people are fucking calling for more cops. Bernie Sanders is arguing for more cops, right? Like, Chapo's fucking, Chapo was literally making the same arguments that my fucking mayor made while she was raising the fucking drawbridges to stop protesters from being able to get back into the middle of Chicago, which is that actually, like, cops, uh, becoming a cop is actually one of the few ways that uh, non-white people can uh, join the middle class. Uh, right that was i think i think amber made that argument right um so you know th they have nothing right and, yeah. and you know okay and, and and you know and the uprising eventually gets suppressed which is the best thing that ever happened to these people because if the uprising has succeeded these people were done right like but all of this has enormous consequences right which is the the, the failure of the working class to appear at the ballot box to like pull bernie sanders over the line against joe biden revealed something that was like patently obvious to anyone who'd been watching how the working class is moving worldwide for the past 20 years which is that the only thing that can actually unify the if, if you care about class politics, the only thing that can unify the working class and pull it together as a coherent political force to do a thing is their hatred of the police. If, if you look, if you look at what the work, working class politics in the 21st century, the, the, the working class finds its historical unity exactly and only on the barricade. It appears undivided yeah. literally nowhere else. It is impossible. You can't do it. The only thing that does it is, is yeah. fighting the police. Like more broadly, in like 
means of state violence, right? Like if we look at the popular front in Spain, it's it, you even get like cops who are installed by a socialist Republican government joining the working class to fight the military. But yeah, instead we're going to be like the working class will be united in this op-ed at Newsweek.com. Yeah, and, or in this, this fucking we'll... electoral thing, right? And it's like, no, and, and, I, and I think that like... This, this is partially about these people yeah. not understanding the sort of broad arc of, of, of the last decade, decade and a half, which is that, like, this was the actual meaning behind the people want to follow the regime, right? This this was what was going on in the last decade of uprisings and street movements across the world, right? Is the, yeah. the, That was the thing that could unify the working class. But, of course, and, and this is the sort of secret of all of this, right? Like, these people don't want to unify the working class. They only want to unify it if it's under their control. The, the, erup- the eruption of, you know, like actually the working class standing side by side together fighting the cops on barricades in 2020 was the worst thing that could possibly happen to them because, it, it you know, it pointed to another way of doing politics that they uh, like in the in the street that they thought they'd, you know, crushed after the defeat of Occupy. And yeah, yeah and, and, you know, and they they were they were they were incredibly scared by this. They were pissed off by this. And, you know, I I, I I mentioned last episode that I was going to talk about the sort of class politics that's at work here because, you know, the, these demands for more cops, like, they don't come from the working class, right? Like, insofar as there's ever been a referendum on the police as an institution, it was 2020. And, yeah. you know, we know what that looked like, right? It was, a, it was a, a bunch of fucking working class kids went into the streets and, you know, and fought like lions against the fucking cops. And even the sort of liberal, like the liberal middle and professional classes, like eventually turned against them, you know, as, as sort of 2020 rolled on. Right. And, you know, the, like those people still hung on for months and months and months, you know, like refusing to leave the streets, even after the fucking federal marshal started literally assassinating people openly in the streets. Right. Like the, the, the whole demand for more cops, for like a harsher crackdown on crime, all of this stuff comes from precisely the opposite direction. Right. It's entirely generated by the by the by, by by basically the media class, right? It's it's class base is a combination of these sort of like faux progressive like media outlets, and originally this starts with the New York Times and the Washington Post, and then moves left or nominally left, right? And it, when it hits like the fucking TYT and all of their like bullshit, right? And then you know, and and then at, at that point, having 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 run through the media people, right? It's it starts running through these pseudo radical academics like Christopher Lewis and Adonai Usami, and then. The, the last group of people who are backing this is this is a, is a very weird one, but uh, there's a collection of paid union staffers who like for their jobs because they're in the big unions work on police and prison guard contracts. Um, this this was actually this is this is a, this has been a huge problem with the DSA uh, in 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 what was it 2016? No, 2015, 2015, 2016. One one of the the, the MPC elections they had um, for the for the National Political Committee, which is like the DSA's big major body. Uh, like governing body, right? Uh, they they accident people accidentally elected a police union organizer because he was like they knew he was a union organizer, but they didn't know that he organized <laughs> police unions. And uh, then he he fucking refused. Like nothing nothing was gonna happen. And then they, basically what happened is everyone on the left of the organization bullied him out, and so he resigned. <laughs> but like, yeah, there's a lot of those people, right? And those people's class incentives are incredibly obvious, right? But. Yeah. And didn't the AFL CIO even in 2020 like refuse yep. to reject police unions? Right? Yeah. They were like, no. People, people if I no. remember, if I remember, I think I think someone threw a Molotov like into the headquarters of the AFL CIO yeah. because of it. Like, yeah, like th- this this was a whole fucking thing, and you know, like this sucks. Cops are not fucking workers. Jesus Christ! Like, 
they're like they're just not if you if you look at what they actually do they are they're they're, they're like they're, they're basically minor feudal lords in that they extract rent from everyone by fucking walking up to people and robbing them and then they also extract rent directly from us by take it by stealing just like enormous increasingly large amounts of city funds under basically the threat of extortion and violence yeah little uh daimyos <laughs> yeah it's 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 shit i want to come back to the sort of left media outlets right because yeah. What what we've been seeing here is that as as these sort of left media outlets get larger, right, they they increasingly adopt like insane small business tyrant politics because that's that's who they're becoming, right? Two IT notoriously tried to bust its own union staff, yeah, because it turns out as journalists become bosses and capitalists, they have they have their own class interests to look out for, right? Yeah, and they will continue producing this class discourse, which serves as nothing other than like uh, best like a safety sort of steam valve right for people who are frustrated by the class situation that they work in if if not like an outright sort of disinformation campaign about what class is yeah and you know and and, and there's i think there's another thing going on here too which is that like okay if if you're like a sort of like media outlet and your thing is that you hate liberals and that you're on the left right there's there's kind of a cap to your audience base and specifically there's a cap to the, the kind of audience you can have that actually has money because you know you you can you can get a broke base of sort of progressive workers and you can get some college students yeah. right, but at some point like those those are not people that have a large amount of money, yeah. And at some point the right offers a, a listener base that has a bunch of money, and this gives you a revenue base for sort of would be like media tycoons hitting the limits of their original base, and this is responsible for things like like Max Blumenthal and ex like TYT reporter Jimmy Dore like descending into just full on COVID denialism. And I mean, you know, it's, it's not like these yeah. people were like doing good before, but like, you know, full on right wing, like, like yeah. Ma- Max Blumenthal <laughs> going from being like the most pro CCP guy the world has ever seen to literally writing articles about how social credit is coming to the US uh, in a form of COVID restrictions, like <laughs> this kind of shit. And, you know, so like th- th- that's part of the class politics going on here. Like w- there's another thing which is like, OK, there's the Harvard academics uh, I don't think we need to say anything complicated about their class loyalties, except that like none of these dipshits will ever be beaten half to death by a cop. Um, yeah, I mean, we talked about the union bureaucrats, right? Um, they're slightly more complicated, but again, like in class terms, you get people who are either driven by purely by sort of the the, the revenue that cop unions bring in, and then you get people who are opposed to political organizations like the DSA taking firm stances against police union organizers because it would affect their own ability to win off, like win elections inside the DSA, a thing that has happened so many times. <sighs> it's great. It's a, it is very funny that they chose class as uh, they chose uh, like education level as their proxy for class. And we are discussing this in the same week that we released an episode about a grad student strike at the largest university in the country because grad students are unhoused because they can't afford to pay their rent and feed themselves. Yep. It is, it is atrocious shit. Like I just, okay. I I, I hate these people. Um, Yeah. So I want to close off Mm. by talking about something, which is that, there's also a political angle to all of this, right? These people, all of these people doing this fucking tough on crime bullshit, all these people fucking going right, all of these people calculated that a right turn in American politics was coming, right? That's why TYT endorsed a fucking, re- literally a Republican in California who was also <laughs> yeah. an insane tough on crime guy. This is why, uh, this is why they had, uh, 
Not Larry. No, no. Uh, uh, Rick, Rick Caruso. Oh, Caruso, yeah. Who was a Republican yeah. who changed his party yeah, affiliation yeah. so we could run the Democratic thing. Who fucking yeah. sucks ass. That's why they endorsed yeah. that guy. That, that's why they had Matt, uh, quote, alleged pedophile Gates on their show on yeah. fucking election night. Right? They had like, Larry Elder on their show as well. Like, yeah, election yeah. denialist Larry Elder. Yeah. Like, th- th- this, this wasn't just a pure product of these people going insane watching videos of, like, people looting grocery stores and turning into, like, tough on crime yeah. reactionaries. This was a political calculation. And... What? Big stuff, but uh, yeah, but 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 they fucked up, right? These people yeah. fundamentally don't understand what this country is. They're scared. They've yeah. given up. They saw a single homeless person on the street and turned into a fascist, and they think that the American people are just hopelessly reactionary. And the only thing that's left to do is solve the situation by selling out. And they're fucking and they're wrong. Smart. They don't think they don't credit people with having like compassion or empathy or intelligence either. Yeah. right? they think they will just go the direction their stupid grift show points. Yeah, and, and, and they're wrong. They're incredibly wrong. This is a country that in the name of fighting racism and the police, in the name of solidarity with people who are not their fucking selves, people who they will literally never meet, put on a mask, picked up a brick, and waged war against the best-funded police force in human history. And for like a week and a half, those same fucking Americans who the entire political spectrum had written off as hopelessly beaten down and passive and right-wing and like pe- people people who will take any amount of abuse and never say anything back, wrecked the fucking, wrecked the cop shit so hard they lost control over the centers of ma- multiple major American cities and had to call in the fucking National Guard who in turn got their shit wrecked so hard that they had to rely on liberal civil society to calm the protest down and even then the president would have fucking deployed the army against them if he'd actually been physically able to and the only reason that these people weren't fighting the fucking army in the streets was that was that the fucking american generals refused to go along with it right like that that is who the u.s is that 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 is who this generation is this generation is forever the generation that burned a third precinct and the fucking ex-left is running right just don't fucking get it Right. They, they think the entire clock has been round back. They think that like those that like the, the people who did that have already been destroyed. They don't matter. The only thing left, yeah. you know, that you can do is join the right and mitigate the damage. And they're fucking wrong. They are wrong. They can't see it. They cannot see that there is no way to turn the clock back to before the uprising happened. They can't see that like this entire country that the that the American working class, that parts of the people who are not part of the American working class have been fundamentally changed. And. Yeah, they, 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 just, they just can't see it. And because they can't see it, the only thing that they're ever going to feel is the weight of their, is, is the only thing they can feel is the weight of their ignorance. And the only thing they're going to feel on top of that is them getting fucking buried by the weight of a history that has left them behind. Because fuck these people. Fuck the cops. Fuck the people who support the cops. These people will be down, but will be fucking drowned by the tide of history they thought didn't fucking exist. Fuck them. <sighs> Okay, this is what, yeah, I, you could probably tell I wrote this really, really pissed off at five in the fucking morning because Jesus Christ. <sighs> that was good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. Pick up a brick, put down the young Turks. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't fucking support more cops. Every, every, uh, everyone yeah. will hate you. Your coworkers will hate you. Your friends will hate you. Your family will hate you. The guy, the guy at the fucking corner store will hate you. <sighs> yeah. It, I don't, if you find your fucking left hero standing the people who murdered George Floyd or stood around and watched George Floyd being murdered, then they are not a leftist anymore. <laughs> it's okay to tell them to fuck off and die. Yeah. And I mean, like, and we can go back to the first episode, right? Like, the reason these people are calling for 500,000 more cops is that they've given up entirely, right? They, they literally yeah. do not think it is possible for anything to ever improve in the U.S. And, and they're will- they are they're- wrong. 
Yeah, and I think that they're okay with the way that our police behave. And if that makes them feel comfortable and safe, then they don't mind that I mean, cops, people die cop, at the hands of the police. Cops protect rich people. These people have yeah. gotten wealthy yep. enough to yep. have the cops now benefit them. It's it's that simple. Like that's that that's it's it's it's. I think that really is the the yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, drive, yeah. the driving like, motivator here. Yeah. And and, and I, like I, I will say this too. Like if, if if we ever get to a point where we start fucking doing this, like take us down too. Like, yeah, this, yeah, this, yeah. this is this isn't just a sort of like we're trying to build our business or whatever. I don't like I don't fucking care. I I I would I would rather fucking go broke in the streets. I would rather fucking die than be a person whose job it is to say we need more cops. Fuck these people. Like, <sighs> God, yeah. fuck them all. Yep. Mm-hmm. They've blocked me on Twitter, so I can't say it, but you all can. <laughs> get, yeah. get after them, <laughs> podcast fans. Oh, God. We are, we are not inciting a harassment campaign. Instead, no, go no, do better not. things. No, go. No. Yeah, I don't, don't waste. Don't, no, yeah, in all seriousness, don't waste your time doing discourse with people who exist to create bullshit discourse. They're just a distraction. Go and help someone who needs your fucking help. Uh, it's cold, it's wet, it's wintertime, and there are unhoused people who are shivering on the street. So don't fuck with. The, the young Turks just ignore them. They're pointless. They're yeah. useless. Go, 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 go out there and fucking build the socialism that these people think is impossible mm-hmm. because we can do it and we will. And then we will fucking laugh at them because yeah. we've done it and they are fucking bullshit. Yeah. <sighs> All right. that's, that's the episode. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. 
With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org.